We are back in the control center here on TBS, cinching them up for the bash at the beach a week from tomorrow night. It's live and available only on pay-per-view. So little has been said and so much has not been told, so much not known regarding the unwelcome arrival of these two outsiders here at World Championship Wrestling. We know who these men are. We've got a pretty good idea why they're here. They want to take over. Some are calling it a hostile takeover. The stopgap could well be WCW's answering trio of Sting, Lex Luger, and the Macho Man, Randy Savage. They'll defend our corporate dignity against these outsiders and their mystery partner. And by the way, who will that man be? They say they won't announce the individual until the event itself. Plus, in other action, a Carson City Silver Dollar match. Yep, you got it. Big Bubba meets John Tenta, the man formerly known as Shark. For high-flying action from south of the border, it's Rey Mysterio Jr. squaring off with Psychosis. Get this, for the Lord of the Ring title, with Tate Fitz, Diamond Dallas Page, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. And don't forget the grudge match between the WCW heavyweight champ, The Giant, teaming up with Taskmaster Kevin Sullivan, Jimmy Hart in their corner, to meet Horseman Arn Anderson and Chris Benoit. There's no question, it's all ready to explode. That explosion will happen live on pay-per-view a week from tomorrow night in Daytona Beach, Florida. This is, without a question of a doubt, the most important pay-per-view in WCW history, the Bash at the Beach. Call your cable company right now. Satellite dish owners, call Turner Premier at 800-843-9266. Also, DirecTV, 1-800-347-3288. But make the telephone call right now for next Sunday's Bash at the Beach, only on pay-per-view. Welcome to where the big boys play. Welcome to 20 Years of Nitro, our week-by-week -week breakdown of World Championship Wrestling's flagship show, where each episode is viewed, reviewed, analyzed, and categorized as we compile an audio anthology of our tour along the southern front of wrestling's Monday Night Wars. I am your host, Tim Root, and with me, <laughs> as always, is my broadcast colleague. It's only Dave Amantorp. Dave, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to go through this show because obviously Bash of the Beach 96 has a lot of historical impact on the wrestling world, but I just don't feel like a lot of people know what else happened on the show. So I think it'll be fun to look and see if like little noteworthy or like uh, significant matches or little nuggets of, uh, of events that are interesting to look at. So I'm really excited. I mean, obviously, since we started with the whole in Scott Hall showing up on Nitro, this is like the big moment. So I'm really excited that we're finally here. Yeah, really, you could say we've been leading to this for about, oh, I, a rough count, I'd say like seven weeks, four before Great American Bash, and yeah. then three since then to now. So we've really been building and building towards this point, and it is, of course, July 7th, 1996, and we are coming to you live as live can be in front of 8,300 fans here at the Daytona Beach Ocean Center, which sold out two and a half hours early and turned 2,000 fans away. Now, in typical WCW fashion, it's still a little bit of a mixed bag because they hadn't anticipated selling out. Yeah. So there is still some paper. 8,300 total fans, 6,400 paying fans. Oh. So they had a bunch of people who had been given comps, you know, from like, I think when you paper, you kind of, you go to like 
local stores and you you know mm-hmm. give them the chance to give away tickets. So a lot of these people showed up with these free vouchers, yeah. got into the show. So to the point where they were lines snaking around the building to buy tickets, and those people got turned away <laughs> and could not buy a ticket. <laughs> they turned away money, basically. Yeah, this show, despite being a sellout and being a huge, huge event for WCW, the gate was $72,000. And that's... N- wait, that's not very good? That's lower than, like, a WWF house show during the same period. Oh, okay. That is not very good. Okay. I just a, a big house show. I shouldn't just... You know, not if they're in, like, uh, Des Moines or something. Right, like MSG or something like that. Right. I, I mean, obviously, we'll get to it with the next show, but it's like... It's too bad they follow up with the least amount of money they could possibly make with their next few Nitros. <laughs> and uh, pay-per-view, for that matter, because oh. Hog, Hog Wild's coming up That's next. That's right. They <laughs> saw all this money and said, you know what? We're fine. <laughs> <laughs> this show did a 0.71 buy rate, which is actually pretty in line with past editions of The Bash of the Beach. So the stuff that sort of starts here is going to pay off later. But really, they didn't see like a huge increase buy rate with the third man storyline. It was really something that more paid off down the road. Yeah, and I would imagine with uh with a lot of like the the papered people there, it's because like this this event was booked way before they decided they had this huge angle going. Right. So, because yes. I, I would imagine if like, if they just set up the booking or like the scheduling for this arena. With this whole storyline going, they would not have copped any tickets. Well, right. Yeah, you're right. They set this up so far in advance. You can see, you know, the original poster, Nash and Hall are not on it, but Hulk is, even though he wasn't booked for the show. <laughs> right. Uh, the original promo that we talked about a few weeks back with the the guy hallucinating, yeah. you know, really didn't play on the big storyline that was really what was going to be selling this pay-per-view. So right. you're right. Most of the marketing and those things are so far in advance that... It was really tough for them to predict by the time they got here how big an event this was truly going to be. Right. Especially because, you know, given the nature of the big reveal that we're, we're going to be building to, Bischoff can't tell that to everybody. So you can't sell the show on being how momentous it's going to be because you can't say, like, at the end, this huge thing's going to happen. Right. Because then the second you do that, Meltzer gets a phone call and it ends up in the Wrestling Observer. Yeah. You can't even say who the person is that's showing up. You right. can't, because if you say like so-and-so is going to be there, people are going to put two and two together pretty quickly. Well, and as we'll talk about later, he didn't know who was going to be that third person until fairly recently. So even if he'd wanted to tell people oh. to give months of planning, that was not a luxury he was afforded, you know? So let's walk through the pre-show a little bit. I actually found a uh, original version of this pay-per-view that included the episode of Main Event that aired on TBS that served as the pre-show mm-hmm. for tonight's festivities. I, I did notice they called it the pre-game. Yes, they did. <laughs> yeah. It would, in which I wonder how much uh, Bobby Heenan indulged in that part of it. Yeah, Main Event sort of was uh, like a precursor to the way that WWF would later use Sunday Night Heat, where it aired Sunday nights right at the time what it would be like an hour before a pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. So most weeks it's just like a you know regular syndicated show. But on pay-per-view days, they actually have matches and little bits of storyline that are to entice you to buying the pay-per-view. Yeah. So in a totally dark match, before main event begins, Jim Powers pinned Hugh Morris. Uh, cool. So they're, they're getting their <laughs> I, lighting I, cues and everything figured out. <laughs> Just, eh, who cares? <laughs> you are looking live at a jam-packed capacity crowd. It is sold out. And we are live on TBS and the main event, undeniably, unquestionably, the most important night in the history. 
the history of World Championship Wrestling. And we are on alert as never before. Hi, everyone, along with the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. I am Tony Schiavone here on the main event. Each and every time we have a pay-per-view and come to you live, you usually see Eric Bischoff sitting here. But that is not the case on this night. On the attempted hostile takeover World Championship Wrestling, we have not seen Eric Bischoff at all. I have called the hotel across the way, trying to get through to him. He is not answering the phone. We have not seen him at all. We just do not know where Eric Bischoff is. What is going on here? We see security men around us everywhere. Well, I tell you what, it is another ploy, I believe. You talk about events. There are huge events that go down in history. This is one of them events. Let me tell you something. There are horses that run in a race. All of them can't be the same. One horse always steps out and declares its independence, if you will. So tonight, Bash at the Beach will go down in history as WCW declaring its independence. This is WCW's Independence Day. Now, at the start of the actual pre-show itself, Tony Schiavone and Dusty Rhodes tell us that Eric Bischoff, who normally hosts main event on pay-per-view days, is missing. Dusty and Tony are both very worried, but the show must go on. And this is a storyline that's going to be a major part of the announcing throughout the evening. They're going to talk about where is Eric Bischoff? Is he being held hostage? I mean, that's that's going to be a very frequent topic of conversation. Yeah, a bit too frequently, if you ask me. I'd agree with that. In the first match on main event, Rick and Scott Steiner beat Harlem Heat via DQ, so Harlem Heat retains their belts. Uh, this is after Robert Parker and a returning sister, Sherry, interfered, so Heat retained their titles in five minutes. After the match, Sherry, who had been fired in February in the middle of her storyline with Colonel Robert Parker and Medusa, uh, got fired thanks to her personal demons. She made out with Parker right there in the middle of the ring. Wow. So they are, once again, a couple. And I guess that kind of answers last week when Parker was out uh, looking at his cell phone or whatever, and he was talking about, my twinkle eyes is with me. Oh, no, he's looking at a picture in his wallet. Oh, yes, thank you. Yeah. You're right. Uh, I'm putting too modern a spin on it, because it's not like he was getting texted pictures back then. <laughs> but yeah, so that, uh, that storyline, that's kind of, I guess, this is the resolution. They've been mm -hmm. chatting with Parker and Sherry, enticing Sherry to come back. And she is indeed, once again, in her tumultuous uh, romance with Colonel Robert Parker. And I was, I was going to say, this seems like a match that would have been suited for the pay-per-view. But I can get having like a pay-per-view caliber match on main event to kind of entice people to order it. Welcome back, everybody. We are live from the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach, Florida. The Bash at the Beach. 36, 37, 38 minutes away. You still have time to call your local cable company. Much of the buzz here in the backstage area revolves around these two outsiders that have entered World Championship Wrestling, challenging virtually everyone. Later on tonight, they're going to be meeting Lex Luger Sting and the Macho Man Randy Savage. Today, when I walked in this facility, I got a pretty good idea. I got a pretty good idea who was going to be their third man. We'll share that with you tonight on the hotline. Give me a call at 1-900-909-9900. Call the hotline right now. And if our camera could follow us, officer, please, there's a reason for tight security here. I'm going to try to get a word, if I may, back here with the two gentlemen, the outsiders we're talking about. Fellas, is there... Mr. O'Keefe. Not a good idea to go in there. I thank you very much. Right now, let's... After that, we get a little bit with Mean Gene, who says that when he arrived at the building... He got a pretty good idea of who the third man is, so you can call his hotline, and he's going to tell you all about it. <laughs> so I want you to keep that in mind for some of the things that he's going to say later on the pay-per-view itself. Right. Here in the pre-show, he's yeah. basically telling you, I know who the third man is, pay me money and I'll tell you. Right.
Hard work Bobby Walker defeated Billy Kidman. Speaking of pay-per-view quality matches. <laughs> right. <laughs> Dusty speculates that Bischoff is being held hostage. I'm just going through the, the pre-show very quickly. I'm not yeah. doing a full recap any of this. Mm-hmm. The Rock and Roll Express beat Fire and Ice in like two minutes. Fire and Ice, uh, they've been teasing a breakup for a while. Not, oh, that's right. Not on Nitro, but just mm-hmm. kind of keep reading about it on Saturday night and stuff. Uh, they argued after the match. Eddie Guerrero pinned Steven Regal in three minutes and 38 seconds. It was a bad match, shockingly, considering the two men involved. So I, I, I really didn't miss much is what you're, what you're getting at. So that's the end of the pre-show. Uh, I thought before we go into the show itself, we'd kind of talk about uh, sort of the most common names on the list of third men rumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so kind of top of that list, I would say, would be Bret Hart. Yes. He's been sitting out from WWF for quite a while. He's on a lengthy hiatus. Mm -hmm. As you can kind of see in the movie Wrestling with Shadows, he actually is, you know, basically a free agent and he's getting wooed by WCW and WWF during this period. Yeah. So naturally people are suspecting if it's a group of people who are coming in from WWF or at least that's the way it's being portrayed that Mm -hmm. they're coming in from WWF, Bret Hart would be kind of the most sense to, to fit that mold. Yeah. The British Bulldog? Okay. He, uh, we, you know, we talked a little bit. He's had problems with McMahon lately. He even gave his notice. Uh, he ends up re-signing a contract, but he gave his notice at one point yeah. to sort of get negotiating leverage. He's been pretty unhappy there with the way his family's kind of been portrayed in some of the storylines. There was that whole deal with Michaels. I forget. Sean and uh, him were having a feud, and his wife was involved in the feud somehow, and Davey was pretty uncomfortable with the way the whole thing was going. Yeah. I mean, weren't they, like, suggesting that his wife had the hots for Shawn Michaels yes. or they had like I think they suggested that for a week and then like the next week it was very quickly dropped because you could that's like must have been when he put yeah. in his notice and they were like oh yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll stop that but <laughs> and the next week Shawn Michaels is like I have no idea who you are <laughs> Mabel uh, no <laughs> oh, that would have been that would have been so bad yes what? that would have been like booing for all the wrong reasons all right, the Ultimate Warrior. We've talked about his problems with Titan lately. Seems like he's on the verge of getting released. Mm-hmm. You know, we know as well. We're reading history, so. But even if, if you're a smart fan, you know that's impossible because Dave's kind of laid out the contract situation. Yeah, but certainly for a lot of people, that seemed like a possibility. Jeff Jarrett is known to be on his way out of WWF at this point. Mm-hmm. That would have sucked. That would have been <laughs> terrible. I'm I'm not. A, I mean, I should be upfront with my biases. I don't like Jeff Jarrett. Yeah. At, at at the time, I was a big Jeff Jarrett fan. I really liked. I just thought that he was like a pretty good wrestler, not a really big personality. But you know, I also was a long time Bret Hart fan, so that's my standard, I guess. <laughs> but his career to me hasn't aged very well. When I look back, I'm like, yeah, he was just kind of average pretty average at everything and but very convinced that he was at the top yeah to the point where he just made a company where he could be the top guy all the time ain't he great (laughs) ted dibiase who would have sucked Mm -hmm. he just he hasn't even wrestled in years he's been a manager oh yeah i I didn't even imagine that was like oh him as a wrestler right i i i I guess i'm assuming well yeah to be the third man in a match right yeah because like i think people expect a wrestler and if someone comes up and is like, yeah, I'm kind of the manager for the hostile takeover, that would not be a very good, that would not be a good reveal. And then the main names of people already within WCW would be Lex Luger, Randy Savage, and Hulk Hogan. Okay. 
And that that makes, I mean, if you're a person that's kind of like reading the, the dirt sheets during the time, mm -hmm. that makes the match interesting because it's like someone in the match might betray WSW. I think, uh, yeah, I think if you don't have what ends up happening, I think Lex would have been an interesting choice because it fulfills what seemingly has been his storyline since he came back to the company on the very first Nitro, mm -hmm. where he's been a tweener, and it's been kind of unclear at times his intentions, and then for maybe two months he's really cleaned up his act, so it almost seems like it'd be the perfect time for him to stick the knife in. I, I think that if, if you were looking at it from that angle, then I think it would be even better if like in the end it was Sting. Yeah, I don't even know why Sting wasn't it wasn't like seriously mentioned unless they brought it up to him. He's like, no, I will not do that. Well, yeah, I'm gonna have a lot to say about that. Oh, later okay. on in the show. Cool. So with that, let's go live to the Ocean Center. It's time for Bash of the Beach, 1996. Transpire. We do not know where Bischoff is, and we don't know yet who the third man is. A lot of butterflies going to the big six-man tag later on tonight. You should see the energy level in the back. I would have thought everybody would have been solemn, sitting around, scratching their heads, wondering. No, everybody's up. The energy level is a 10 back there. It's the highest I've ever seen it. Where Eric Bischoff is, is the talk back there right now. They can bring on their third guy, fourth, fifth, it doesn't matter. They're ready back there. How about a dream? Well, I tell you what, we're tired of talking about it. We're all here to bash you to be just, as he said, the energy is so high, the level is so high, the, the things that could come out of this are, are so tempting to go ahead and say, let's put this thing on first. Let's put that match on and go with it, and let's do this thing. Eric Bischoff, is he held hostage? We don't know. Who the third guy is? We don't know. Let's do this thing, Tony. We know it's Sting, Lex Luger, and the Macho Man against the Outsiders, and whoever the third man is, it will transpire in this three-hour broadcast. Here we go to kick off let's the go. Bash at the Beach. Our show begins with the Bash at the Beach logo hovering over the sea as a shark fin ominously pokes through the water and the words, the hostile takeover, float up from beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. I really love how much WCW plays up the themes of their pay-per-views. Like, this yeah. show is beachy as hell. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we'll talk about it as we go through. I just wa I wanted to say, from since it's like we're just starting out of the pay-per-view, anyone else, I watch this on the WWE Network, and I really like the network summation of the pay-per-view. It simply says, one of the most historic events in pro wrestling history, Randy Savage, Sting, and Lex Luger face the Outsiders and a mystery partner. 
That's all it says. They're protecting kayfabe even on the network. I love it. They're protecting kayfabe for WCW (laughs) 20 years later. That's awesome. That is great. I watched the, as I mentioned, the full version of the original pay-per-view. So I may have some notes on things that you didn't have because the network is missing Mm -hmm. a a couple small things in the show. Okay. And also the, the, like the whole intro package and stuff like that, it, it incredibly reeks of 90s. Oh, yeah. We get, like, very 90s intense guitar, and they've just got, like, blue-tinged highlights of the Mm -hmm. Outsiders, kind of their reign of terror so far in WCW. But I just wanted to say, like, I think for the time, this is a really good video. Yeah, it hasn't aged particularly great, but it's not bad. Yeah. The only thing I would say is that they need audio of the highlights that's kind of missing. It's really just, you can barely hear the audio. It's really just seeing yeah. the Outsiders do stuff while guitar music plays. Mm-hmm. As we transition into the arena, Pyro goes off, and Tony Schiavone proclaims that never in the history of this great sport has there been a night like this one. He welcomes us to the show, and we cut to him alongside his partners for tonight, Dusty Rhodes and Bobby Heenan. Tony is, for some reason, dr- dressed in a double-breasted black blazer, some grayish <laughs> dress pants, a white dress shirt, and a red cummerbund and bow tie. <laughs> I, what the fuck is with this outfit? Like, it is baffling. I, I, I actually, uh, he just recently put out an episode uh, of his podcast where he recounts this evening. Okay. And his co-host gives him some shit. He basically just says, yeah, my wife dressed me. She said it looked good. So that's the <laughs> level of care that Tony Schiavone was putting into his wardrobe. And it kind of also sh- says a little bit, I think, about WCW because Vince would have a shit fit like he pays attention to like the presentation you know what his announcers look like what yeah. is every aspect of his production how does it look whereas wcw sometimes is a little loosey-goosey with that bobby is wearing his uh, usual garish like heenan kind of old man in florida yeah <laughs> outfit, right. which makes sense because he is an old man in florida on the, <laughs> right. the, the show uh and dusty looks awesome he's wearing an all black suit mm-hmm. black dress pants black shirt black coat he looks great especially compared to tony sitting next to him it's such a weird reversal yeah and you're you're talking about like the presentation of how vince would pay attention to this and it's like dusty's like opinion on how he should dress changes from pay-per-view to pay-per-view because last time he just had like that like pleather jacket that he just had to take off halfway yeah the then show. he just had like a a massive blue t-shirt under it with like the neck cut out because <laughs> right. his head's so big and yeah and now tonight he's he looks great right <laughs> it's so weird <laughs> i guess maybe they did give him a note after last week le- month's show <laughs> listen <laughs> dusty <laughs> when he showed up they were like okay this is fine for tonight but going <laughs> forward it's like one of those things like we we can't make him change it <laughs> We'll let him know to change it next time. (laughs) Tony welcomes Bobby to the booth as Bobby wasn't a part of the main event announced team and talks about uh, the storyline with Bischoff being missing. Bobby says that the energy backstage is at a 10 and all talk is on where Bischoff is. Tony spends an awful long time standing with one hand very awkwardly resting on his cummerbund. It's just like not a... I'm going to tweet a picture of that if I I can remember because it's just not a position anyone stands in ever. Yeah, it was. It's like the it's the Ricky Bobby. I don't know what to do with my hands <laughs> thing. Dusty talks about how tempting it is to just have the hostile takeover match first. He just wants to get to it, and that's gonna kind of be the feeling throughout the show. Is like, can't mm. we? You know, it's um, Millhouse just wanting Itchy and Scratchy to get to that damn fireworks factory. <laughs> right. When are they gonna get to the fireworks factory? <laughs> 
the, definitely <laughs> the hostile takeover match is the fireworks factory of Bash at the Beach in 96. <laughs> right. Yeah, I liked it because um, I said that Dusty Rhodes spoke for all of us when he says that he's tired of talking about the hostile takeover and he's ready to basically see the outsiders in action. But then again, I'm like, you know what? Planning-wise, you don't have that match first. <laughs> no, God, God. <laughs> but no, it tr- it is true. It's like, and it's really weird looking back at it because it was only a five or six week buildup, which is not a long buildup. Well, yeah, and that's if you go from when Hall debuted. It's only a three week build from the last pay per view. Right. That's that's crazy to me. Yeah, because it feels like it's been a long time. We're like, I want to see these guys in action. No, I don't want to see John Tenta versus Big Bubba at first. We go to the ring where Dave Penzer introduces Psychosis, who comes out to some weird rock accompanied by xylophone. Yeah. His theme is bizarre. (laughs) Shivani welcomes Mike Tanay to the broadcast booth as WCW's resident expert on not America. (laughs) (laughs) Bobby asks Tanay if he knows who the third man is, and Tanay says that he doesn't, and it's all anyone backstage can talk about. But wait a minute. Bobby told us all anyone backstage could talk about is where Bischoff is. Wait a second. Which one of them is lying? (laughs) I think Mike Tanay's the third man. (laughs) I also like the fact that, like, Bobby Heenan, he's like, Mike Tanay, you're also, like, a, a broadcast journalist. You yeah, might, he says, you like, might you're the wrestling in- insider. Yeah, yeah, he's like, you might have this information, and this is information everyone wants. So I felt like that was a really good approach for him to, like, not only keep the storyline going, but make Mike Tanay look really, really important, too. Yeah, and it just it helps sell the angle like anything. And this is one thing that WCW will be doing great over the course of the next few weeks is the stuff with the outsiders – it affects everyone. It's not this storyline that's isolated in its own little bubble. Mm-hmm. It affects everybody. Everybody in the organization, even the guy who just comes out and talks about the Lucha guys. Yeah. He cares about it, too. Mm-hmm. You know, so that it's great. I absolutely agree. Let's talk a little bit about the set of the show, which features a sandy beach on either side of the entryway. The entryway is, like, made to look like a dock, which yeah. is great, like an old wooden dock. It's got a lifeguard chair, a giant beach ball, some surfboards, and... Other beach accoutrement. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Out comes Rey Mysterio, and the ring already has the giant pole for the upcoming Carson City Silver Dollar match. Yeah. This pole is like 20 feet high, which begs the question, how on earth are John Tenta and Big Bubba going to climb that fucking thing? Right. And why is it set up now? There was no way that they could set that up <laughs> before that match. It's crazy. <laughs> I also like the idea that there's like some crew members that like, yeah, you're on sand duty today. <laughs> Yeah. Just pouring sand, <laughs> pouring sand. There, There is a lot of sand. Yeah. Oh, God. That arena is going to have sand in it for fucking months after that. <laughs> it's going to keep finding sand in places it didn't realize it could get sand. <laughs> the popcorn maker. <laughs> As the bell rings, Dusty mentions that these two have faced each other before, and it's surprising that Dusty would know that, uh, given that these matches were in Mexico in ECW. He and Tony also put over Ray huge with Dusty saying that many people consider him to be the future of wrestling. Ooh, I thought that was I mean, that's great to especially for an old timer like Dusty to look at a tiny little guy like Mysterio Mm. and say he could be the future of wrestling. That's that's quite endorsement. Yeah, I find it really remarkable to see Ray Mysterio Jr. at this time, because compared to how he is nowadays, he's like 
half the size. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, Bobby, however, compares Ray to Demi Moore, as Moore had recently shaved her head for her role as G.I. Jane. <laughs> so Bobby seems like there's there's some good effort to put over Ray, and then Bobby just is like, no, he, I'm going to compare him to a woman's haircut. <laughs> This is this is uh, the beginning of a trend for Bobby Heenan on tonight's show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mike says that this is one of the most heated rivalries in Mexico going back eight years when they attended the same wrestling school. Psychosis, uh, like a lot of guys, Psychosis, Hoovy were a part of that same wrestling school. Okay. So right as Mike is talking about how this rivalry goes back eight years and it's one of the hottest in Mexico's, Psychosis refuses a handshake and slaps Mysterio, which is great. It's like... Right as the commentary is talking about how it's a heated rivalry, we see that it's a heated heated rivalry, and mm-hmm. that's just how wrestling that's wrestling commentary one hundred and one. Like what you're saying should complement the things we are seeing in the ring. Yeah, and it immediately explains it to the live audience too, because I would sit, I would imagine most people don't at the arena don't know both of the guys. Yeah, which one is face and which one is heel? Oh, that guy won't shake hands, and he slapped him. Like now I know who the dick is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's psychosis psychosis is the dick <laughs> ray hits an arm drag that sends psychosis to the outside and into the rail back in the ring he gets a single leg takedown and then locks on a single leg boston crab they do some cool mat based wrestling as heenan now compares psychosis's hair to peg bundy from married with children <laughs> shut up bobby <laughs> i don't like saying that because heenan's probably the greatest announcer of all time but He's got some he's got some high points tonight and he's got some real low points and this match is mostly low points. <laughs> Tony mentions that both guys wrestled last night in Mexico, which is correct. Ray teamed with Conan against Psychosis and a guy named Halloween uh, in Mexicali. They went on first so that they could fly straight to Los Angeles and then across the country to Daytona Beach, Florida. <laughs> the match starts to pick up when Ray gets a wheelbarrow arm drag and then goes for a cabrada but Psychosis dodges before hitting Mysterio with a big roundhouse kick. This sends Ray Ray to the outside, where he moves a chair out of the way just in time to catch Psychosis, who comes at him with a huge tope suicida, which shocks the crowd. Like, they're a little into the match, but as soon as he does that tope, you hear people be like, whoa, like, that I, was, that I was, should be paying attention. And that was one over the top rope, right? Yes, yep. Yeah, I, I just had the note that Psychosis nearly kills himself with that. It's insane. Because His, he goes flying, and he's like, directly into the barricade with that yeah his head ends up going under the guardrail and some jerk fan gets like a very subtle kick in <laughs> like he doesn't like wheel back and kick him real hard but he kicks him in the head <laughs> right. hey this is where my feet supposed to be <laughs> i paid a lot for these <laughs> psychosis throws ray back in the ring and hits a body slam and a huge leg drop and you know hogan is somewhere yelling at bischoff about these mexican guys using his finisher <laughs> As if Bishop didn't have enough to deal with. <laughs> Psychosis wears Ray down with a chin lock, a body slam, and then goes to the top rope for a guillotine leg drop, which gets a two count, and now Hogan is getting Psychosis's visa revoked. <laughs> Another leg drop happens on the outside when Ray is draped on the edge of the ring, uh, the hardest part of the ring, Dave. Right. So that leg drop has to hurt even more. <laughs> The announcers speculate about Eric's whereabouts. Nobody knows if he even made it to Daytona Beach. No one's seen him in town yet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Tanae talks about Ray being a huge fan of Scott Steiner, something that Ray mentions uh, in his book, actually, and how he has mastered the Frankensteiner, a.k.a. the Hurricane Rana, uh, and can hit it anywhere and from any angle. Bobby says that Ray is a legend in San Diego and is often referred to as the original San Diego chicken. Right. (laughs) 
Shut so, up, Bobby. Yeah, just Bobby. Come on. <laughs> I, I like that note about Scott Steiner because when I heard it, I was like, I kind of feel like that's bullshit. <laughs> no, yeah, it, it's absolutely true. <laughs> of all the guys that Rey Mysterio could have picked to idolize growing up in, in San Diego and then later Tijuana, he went with Scott Steiner. He really admired the guy that like inflated his body. It was like, maybe I should do that down the road. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to store that in the back of my mind. <laughs> Psychosis stays in control for a bit until they wind up on the apron and Ray gets pushed back onto his back. Psychosis charges and Ray launches him backwards with his legs, sort of like a monkey flip, yeah. but it's more just like a, a launch, I guess, into the ring post. Psychosis falls to the outside, where a fan in the front row holding a Lucha Libre WCW-style sign <laughs> snaps a picture. It's like, how happy must have that guy been? Yeah. He's there with a sign for the Lucha guy specifically, and then Psychosis ends up right in front of him. Right. He's definitely yeah. whipping out that like those old disposable Kodak cameras. You remember those? He, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's super excited. <laughs> yeah, and nowadays he's probably like, fuck, where is that picture? <laughs> Ray comes running at Psychosis with a running hurricanrana from the apron, which is perfect. It, it's right after Tanae got done telling us that he can hit that move from mm -hmm. any angle, you know, at any time. It's so great. Yeah. It's it's like they had planned out with Tanae when to say this shit so they could, like, just right at that exact moment back him up. Yeah. Ray throws Psychosis back in the ring and hits what would become known as the West Coast Pop, a springboard Rana where he holds onto the legs at the end for a pin, but Psychosis kicks out it too. Yeah, I was kind of curious as to when this becomes, like, his finisher because he did it. And I was like, wait, is this match over? I don't, I don't remember if it's over now or not. Ray goes to work on Psychosis's knee. He sets Psychosis up on the second rope in the corner and hits a drop kick for two. A drop to a hold into a head scissors by Psychosis. Now who gets Ray up and whips him off the ropes and then launches Ray over his head. And the tiny Mysterio sails all the way from mid ring onto the top rope where he lands chest first. This is the part where I remember how small he is because the rope does not give way much to the entire body of Rey Mysterio. Yeah. <laughs> Psychosis gets an inverted DDT and Mysterio powders to the outside. Psychosis joins him and drops him neck first onto the guardrail. Psychosis climbs back into the ring and goes to the top rope. Then the fucking insane 24-year-old hits a top rope senton all the way to the floor. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, just picture he's on the he's on the top turnbuckle, and he jump. Mysterio is lying on the floor next to the ring. Mm -hmm. Psychosis jumps all the way down onto him, and basically lands. I mean, the idea is that he's landing with his ass on Mysterio. He's not because that would kill a person. Right. So his ass is really just hitting the the floor that has like a gym mat over concrete. Yeah, that is gonna wreck your fucking tailbone, dude. I was about to say it's like he's almost directly landing on his tailbone. I tried to look up to he he had a couple matches as even last year. I couldn't find any footage, but I was like, how does this guy move in this day and age? You know, I wanted to see oh, like psychosis. Sure. Like, can yeah. he move around mm -hmm. based on some of the crazy that guillotine leg drop that he did? You remember when Fandango debuted at WrestleMania against Jericho, and that was his finisher? Yeah, was the guillotine leg drop, and then I think a month later he stopped using that because it's like, dude, you're you're gonna be paralyzed yeah there's yeah. no way you can use that at like house shows and stuff you, right you, come on yeah psychosis hits an enziguri which Tanay calls and bobby asks him where he gets all these move names like i'm pretty sure they call enziguris like tony knows what an enziguri is that's not that crazy right the kick gets a two count and tony says that if you don't know the names sometimes you just make them up fuck you tony and fuck you bobby like they're clearly making fun of Tanay 
because they're jealous that he knows this shit. They're like, you can do this. We can't. We're going to just subtly dig on you and bury you throughout yeah. the commentary. It's bullshit. Yeah, because I, 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 I had mentioned how the senton from the top was like tremendous, but Tony Schiavone suggesting Mike Tanay's making up the move names yeah. is like, that's not tremendous. <laughs> they're trying to put over the match, but they're also burying the other announcer like as much as they can. Like, yeah, he makes his information up. This insider who we bring out for his knowledge is just bullshitting us. Yeah, Tony shows his level of paying attention to the match by saying that Psychosis has been working submissions while Ray has been going for high-risk moves. Psychosis is the one who hits a suicide dive over the top rope, yeah. a guillotine leg drop, a- another leg drop on the outside, like on the apron of the ring, mm. and a top rope sent on to the outside. Right. Yeah, he's not hitting. He's just sitting there working submissions. Right. <laughs> Great call, Tony. <laughs> Ray escapes a hammerlock with something akin to an arm drag and then cartwheels up onto Psychosis's shoulders for a spinning Rana that sends Psychosis to the floor. The crowd is loving this match now as Ray hits a springboard dropkick. Psychosis stands up on the apron and Ray hits a top rope head scissors that lands both men out on the floor. Holy shit. At this point, you can see that like both the wrestlers are kind of regretting some of these decisions because they're, <laughs> they're getting a little bit slower to get up because they're too young wrestlers from from mexico that don't have this big exposure mm-hmm. now they're the first match on a pay-per-view and right away i'm like oh yeah they're gonna throw all the stops and they're even getting to the point where they're like yeah th- this is really hurting but we're just gonna keep plugging along because this is like this is like their big time to shine today basically gloats that he told you that he could do that move anywhere at any time <laughs> and like i don't blame him the way they've been shitting on him i like that he's right. like Hey, look at how good my commentary was and how it helped this match, (laughs) you assholes. (laughs) Ray puts Psychosis back in the ring, then hits a split-legged moonsault for two. Whipped into the ropes, Ray is launched into the air by Psychosis, but hits a dropkick. As Psychosis gets to his feet, Ray hits him in the back with a springboard dropkick that sends Psychosis back to the outside. Ray follows up with a corkscrew Asahi moonsault on the floor, but hits his (laughs) own knee on the guardrail, and I get flashes of... I've had surgery five times on my right knee. Yes. <laughs> like, as soon as his knee hit that guardrail, I was like, like, oh, I see why you got surgery all the fucking time. <laughs> it's like, and it's just like, there's one. <laughs> and and even when, I think even Heenan, like, mentions it. So you can tell, like, oh, wait, it got the, the, the American commentators actually put notice on this match. Yeah, Bobby mentions it after Tanae says, like, oh, that's a variation on an acai moonsault. And Bobby just yells, what? Like, right. I don't think that's a thing. And then <laughs> he actually comments on the match. <laughs> Ray calls for another West Coast pop and springboards into the ring, but Psychosis catches him and turns it into a sit-out powerbomb for two. Psychosis holds Ray upside down and facing outward and runs him into the corner. Ray ends up sitting on the top rope and Psychosis goes for Splash Mountain, which is basically your opponent is sitting on the ropes, the top rope. Mm-hmm. You stand on the second rope. And then you hit like a razor's edge. But it's like a razor's edge into a sit-down powerbomb. Yeah, a razor's edge into a sit-out powerbomb, right. But what happens here is that when Ray's legs get to Psychosis's head, he actually turns this into a hurricanrana, which is insane. Like, it's crazy that he yeah. manages to hit that counter. And that is the finish as he gets the win in 15 minutes and 38 seconds. Yeah, they got a lot of time for this match, too. Yeah, I mean, it's they WCW is clearly trusting Rey Mysterio. They've had him on for two matches. He was on the Great American Bash and one match afterward. 
and they're you know they're mm-hmm. already like all in on the Rey Mysterio experience. You can tell. Yeah. Uh, this match got four and three quarter stars from Dave Meltzer. So Ooh. as close to a five star match as you're going to get without actually being one. Uh, would you agree with that? Do you think it was was that good? I I think it was a really really good match. Um, I, I yeah I guess I mean I can't really think of any part that was like anything really wrong with the match. Yeah, it's tough because it does go from spot to spot without a ton of selling. That's a little bit of the lucha style though. So like, I you always got to kind of take the match on its own merits a little bit and think of it in the context of what the performers are going for. Yeah, and and the one one thing I would be a little bit nitpicky about is that when he reverses the Splash Mountain into a Hurricanrana, Psychosis sells it like he's knocked out. It seems like something that would be immediately into like a like a, a roll-up or something like that, but I'm sure it's like such a high spot, especially in the 90s when it probably hasn't been seen very often, that like if you hit a high spot, you, you get the victory. Yeah, I thought it was a great match. I'm not going to sweat the star rating too much. Right. Um, I probably personally wouldn't call it a five-star match, but I don't know what I would call it. And it's also hard for me because Dave has the benefit of he rated it in 96. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing I'm rating it now having seen the guys that grew up on Rey Mysterio and have managed to take that even further. So it's hard for me to contextualize. It's certainly the best match on this show. Yeah. I mean, let's just say that now. Nothing else comes close yeah. from an in-ring standpoint to this match. Right now, I would say I would definitely put it as at least four stars. And the quarter stuff, I don't really care. So, Sure. <laughs> as the replays roll, t- Tony S. Bobby to call the action on the replays, <laughs> which is a massive mistake, as Bobby does not know the names of these moves. First, he calls the Hurricanrana to the floor some kind of inverted Frankensteiner before saying of the top rope Frankensteiner, I don't know what this is called, before just telling us in the audience, you people figure it out, I can't call it. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot believe it. Uh, We were just talking about that match we just saw very quickly. Conan is U.S. champ. Uh, Describe for me what happened in that that last match. What was that final move? Well, Psychosis brought him up for a top rope splash mountain, and Rey Mysterio caught him in the air with a top rope Frankensteiner. All right, I know for a fact that last night you wrestled in Mexico. You've had a hard day of travel in uh, jetting to Los Angeles, then back here to uh, Florida. Tonight, I talked earlier on with the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. He seems to me to be very confident. I might even say, Conan, he is overconfident. This title is on the line. Flair wants it badly. Well, maybe he's got reason to be overconfident. You know, he's done it all. He's won that world title 13 times. Nobody's else, nobody else has done that. But tonight, I'm overly cautious because every, everywhere he goes, he has an entourage. I haven't been here long enough to form an alliance. I haven't been here long enough to be afforded that luxury. But I'll tell you something, Ric Flair. If your manager gets in the match, I'll cripple him. If one of the women get into the match, I'll clothesline him. If that football player gets into the match, I'll chop block him. But Ric Flair, I'm going back home with this U.S. title. All right, uh, I would say this man has got his act together after a long day of travel. Conan with a title defense coming up here at the Bash at the Beach. Right now, let's get you back up to the ring for more action. Backstage, Mean Gene is alongside Conan, and since Conan is Mexican, uh, not really, he's Cuban, but they will refer to him as Mexican about a thousand times in the show, so let's just go with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gene is of the old guard. He asks Conan... Uh, hey, could you tell me what happened at the end of that match? Yeah. I've, like, never seen something like that. Just like, hey, you're the same race as those guys, I think. Will you tell me what it was they were doing out there? Uh, and Conan obliges. He says, yeah, he 
was going for a top rope splash mountain, but got caught by Rafe with a top rope Frankensteiner. So Conan does just fill him in, I guess, which mm-hmm. is nice. But by, by the way, Conan looks exhausted. Yeah, yeah. So let's <laughs> talk about that. Gene says that Conan wrestled last night in Mexico and had a hard day of travel, as I mentioned, flying from Mexico to Los Angeles and then to Daytona Beach, and how not only had Conan teamed with Ray last night in that tag match I already described, but two nights ago he tagged with Ray against Psychosis and Damien on Friday night, July 5th, in an insane-sounding street fight cage match in Tijuana where Conan's head was busted open by light bulbs, which is why he has that huge bandage on his head tonight. (laughs) So, yeah, he looks exhausted. He looks beat up. Mm -hmm. He does not look like he is in position to be delivering a great match with the Nature Boy later. (laughs) Or or even a promo. (laughs) Because he looks like, can I just get a nap before my match? (laughs) Gene tells Conan that Flair is very confident, perhaps overconfident, and wants the United States title very badly. Conan says that Flair has earned that confidence by being world champion 13 times. Tonight, Conan is going to be overly cautious because Flair has an entourage, something that Conan is lacking. Conan warns Flair that if Flair's manager gets involved in the match, Conan will cripple him. Flair, of course, doesn't have a manager, and I'm thinking maybe Conan hasn't seen Arn wrestle you know, one of these times he's been up for Mexico, and so he just thinks that old bald guy with glasses has to be Flair's manager. I, I, anything he says wrong here, I just, I'm like, he's tired. <laughs> he's just a man, like, he's an entourage, so there's a manager in there somewhere. I was thinking maybe he was, he was referring to one of the female valets that Flair has as a manager. Not except the next, thing, yeah, the next thing, <laughs> <laughs> the next thing he says <laughs> is that if the women get involved in the match, he'll clothesline them. <laughs> right. I like not only is he going to, like, I'm going to attack these women, yeah. he has a specific move for them. <laughs> He's got it all planned out. <laughs> and if, I hope I hope it's like that that rolling clothesline that he does. <laughs> if that football player gets involved, Conan will chop block him. That's pretty much the promo. Yeah, he... Uh, although, like, in his defense, pretty recently Jimmy Hart was managing him. That's true. Well, and he's in and out of AAA all the time. Like, he's yeah. not regularly with WCW all the time. And if you watch his show, Jimmy Hart is managing like half the wrestlers. <laughs> he comes true. out for almost every match. Oh, I also <laughs> wanted to say like um, at the end of the interview, Gene like sends it back to the announcers, but there's a few seconds after that. And then Conan just like steps just a little bit closer to Gene. <laughs> like he's like, I need to make sure I'm in the shot, but he gets like, <laughs> kind of too close to him and the, neither of them say anything it just moves on it it's like for some reason just really funny because he's like wait am i wait I get a little bit closer over here back in the arena big bubba comes out accompanied by jimmy hart i like as bubba comes out i like that the the graphics for the wrestlers names they'll come with a shark fin in front of them or like a boat. Mm-hmm. It's just more of that like fun theme stuff that I think WCW does really well. When it's Halloween Havoc, it'll be like a spooky skull will be in front of the name or a spider. Yeah, at like at the time Halloween Havoc was by far my favorite and I think it's like cuz it's so Halloween themed. Yeah, it's awesome. It's great. It's it's I really really like that. And also, it's something totally missing now because the only thing that differentiates WWF pay per views these days is when one of them is a is gimmick match themed. Mm-hmm. Your TLCs, your Money in the Bank, you know those kind of events. Yeah, and that and that like honestly something I don't like about WWE nowadays. They just use the regular sets for everything now. Right. Yep, and it, it doesn't feel any different than like 
especially since a couple months ago, I went to Backlash. And when yep. I went to Backlash, it's just like the SmackDown and or the, the Raw set. So it's like it doesn't feel anything special. As Bubba enters the ring, Bobby claims that his informant, Woody, told him that a car has pulled up out back and three WCW executives with briefcases got out and are now in a room which is being guarded. Could this have something to do with the third man? Could it have something to do with Eric Bischoff? Or is Bobby just making up his own angles that will never pay off? <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's the last one. <laughs> is, it, is, this, is this when um, uh, Dusty asks who Woody is? Yeah. And he's like, he works for me. He works for me. <laughs> That's his only answer. <laughs> Who's Woody? Ah, oh, he works for me. <laughs> um, also, for some reason, and I don't know if you picked up on this, th- this particular match, you can really hear the announcer announce the guys coming to the ring. And for some reason, it doesn't sound like Dave Penzer. Yeah, it's they do an odd thing um, in WCW. Or not an odd thing. It's just their production choice that's different from what I'm used to. Most of the time, they cut off uh, the announcer mic so that you don't hear it on the actual broadcast. Yeah. Only the people in, in the arena will hear it. Mm-hmm. And I used to think it was because the WWE Network was dubbing over the music. But when I watched the live, the actual feed, no, it's just something WCW does because most of the music is the original music. I thought that it was like almost all dubs. But no, it's only kind of a select people mm-hmm. here and there. And for some reason, they just turn Penzer's mic off uh, on the broadcast most of the time. And you're right. It didn't really sound like Penzer. I don't know who else it might have been because um, I, I think it's Penzer. I believe I saw him there a few times. Yeah, I mean, I definitely saw him because like uh, at the beginning when they do the fireworks and Dave Penzer just kind of casually stands in the middle of the ring. I was like, that's a pretty badass look to have right there. <laughs> Looking like he doesn't care about the explosions going around around him. But no, like for some reason, this match, you can really hear them being announced and it just doesn't sound like him. I don't know if it's like an audio thing or if they did like, hey, like this guy from the local radio station is going to announce one of the oh, matches. Sure. I, I have no idea. And to be honest, I didn't like really look into it either. Yeah, so It could be like Booger from Booger and the Monster in the Mornings <laughs> or something. It's my favorite show. <laughs> Booger and the Monster. Uh, we haven't talked about Randy Anderson being weird with the ropes since, like, our third episode. That used to be a common theme, mm-hmm. that Randy Anderson was just kind of weird about being on the ropes all the time. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> as the entrants for this match uh, come out, he's just sitting on top of the ropes. Like, <laughs> he's just sitting there having a chat. It's it's really strange. <laughs> he just He approaches his profession really differently than, like, literally every other referee in the history of wrestling. <laughs> He's sitting in front of the pole and up on top of the pole, which, as I mentioned earlier, is seriously like 20 feet above the ring, like Mm -hmm. let alone the floor. At the top of the pole is a sock full of silver dollars because this is a Carson City silver dollar match. If you're wondering, by the way, why this is a Carson City silver dollar match Uh when we are in Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, I actually kind of looked into it. And in Carson City, Nevada, there was a mint from 1870 to 1893 and they minted silver dollars there, and they had a thing where all the coins minted at that facility had a little CC logo on them, mm-hmm. and since the facility was only open for such a short period of time, and they only made a small amount of silver dollars with that CC logo, those became like collector items. So a Carson City silver dollar is like a harder-to-find prized coin amongst coin collectors, 
why that had to be involved in yeah. this wrestling match, I don't know. <laughs> but that is why it is a Carson, because that was really bothering me. So I had to dig into what the fuck was going on with that. And I hope it's because Big Bubba is also just an avid like coin collector. <laughs> and he just wanted to, <laughs> he just wanted to like bring his like personal passion into it. <laughs> That's, I really, really hope that's true. That'd be amazing. Uh, as John Tenta comes out, Bobby asks how John Tenta could possibly get up that pole, which is precisely the reason this match is stupid, so maybe don't draw attention to it? I don't know. Tenta, of course, still has half his head shaved, but apparently he didn't want to leave half his beard shaved after Nitro last week because he just shaved the rest of it off, and now he's just got a mustache. And he looks so much like Carl from Aqua Teen Hunger Force oh. that, like, I'm starting to wonder if the character was based on him. Oh, man. Doesn't I he? As soon as you say, I'm like, yes, that's <laughs> totally. <laughs> if you just put sweatpants and a wife beater on John Tenta, it's fucking Carl. And sweatpants and a wife beater is not very different than what he's wearing already. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. Tony Schiavone explains the rules again. The first man to retrieve the silver dollars from the pole can use them. And this is always my problem with on a pole matches. Does that mean that if, let's say, Bubba gets them down and Tenta wrestles them away from him, if he uses them, is he disqualified? I, I, I don't. I wouldn't think so. But then, and so also, then don't say the first man that gets them can use them because anyone can use them. It's just they're on a pole until someone manages to bring them into the match. And the other thing about the on the pole matches, especially when it comes to a weapon. They never make it clear, can the match end before that item's retrieved? Right. Yeah. Like, what if they just decide they don't care about the silver dollars and they don't need them to win? Because I was like, what if, say, the the pole is about 40 feet too high for either guy to reach the item? Why why don't they just say, like, we'll just fight it out anyway? (laughs) Tenta lumbers into the ring and Bubba powders. Despite one competitor not being in the ring, the bell rings. (laughs) Tenta leaves the ring and Bubba climbs in. Tenta follows, so Bubba ducks out again. These two are going to be blown up in 30 seconds if they keep jogging in and out of the (laughs) ring like this. Instead of the regular minute it takes. (laughs) Tenta looks annoyed in the ring as Jimmy Hart points at his brain to show that Bubba is staying away from his opponent because he's very smart. (laughs) Yes, so much brain in there. Bubba finally climbs into the ring and Tenta charges him, but Bubba catches him with an elbow to the temple and some punches. Tenta sends Bubba to the ground with a shoulder block, and Bubba rolls to the outside yet again. Bobby says if he were Bubba, he'd lure Tenta across the ring and let Tenta get a couple shots in while having Hart sneak up the pole and grab the sock, which is a good observation, but also gives away how this match is going to end. <laughs> right. uh, it also kind of gets, like I said, to the inherent flaw of on a pole matches. If the rule is that the first person can get the weapon to use it, what happens if the other guy wrestles it away? What if Jimmy, if Jimmy Hart does go up and get the sock, now he's the first guy to get it. Is he the only one who can legally use it in the match? <laughs> also, this match is apparently no disqualification. Let's just say that now. Because it has to be for some of the things that happen throughout it. Oh, yeah. I, I imagine that was implied since there was like a foreign object that can be used during the match. But But the whole thing is if you get that object, you can legally use it. It does not explain why there's no disqualifications on anything else. That's true. I fucking hate the stipulations of this match they make no sense no one thought them out at all no one had a conversation to say what are the rules of this match and it drives me bananas or they did have a conversation but they did not ever explain it to the viewer yes all we know is that there's the silver dollars on the pole 
and whoever grabs it first can use it. That's the only thing they've explained. Nothing else about the match has been explained. Is there countouts? Is there disqualifications? Who can use the weapon? Uh, can the match end before the weapons get? Uh, that's always the one I, I'm like, can you end the match before you grab the weapon? I've always wondered that, and they never explain if the weapon has to be retrieved first. So Tenta is in the ring, and Bubba gets back up on the apron and holds the top rope, and they do they do that bit that I love in wrestling that makes zero sense, where Tenta like pulls the top rope that Bubba's holding onto, which causes Bubba to flip over the top rope into the ring. Yeah, that <laughs> that's not how physics work. It's I whoa <laughs> how that doesn't expose the business is like beyond that any it, like. People have held ropes before in their lifetime. I think they would know that if someone were to shake it violently, they wouldn't flip forward yeah. with their entire body. Tenta then chokes Bubba with his boot. Back on his feet, Bubba gets control of this match with some punches, and Tony contrasts this match to the Ray Psychosis match, a comparison doing favors to no one currently on my television screen. <laughs> Bubba tries to slam Tenta's head into the turnbuckle, but Tenta blocks it, and instead it's Bubba who eats turnbuckle and crashes to the mat. You know when Tenta was born, he was 187 pounds, says Bobby? <laughs> and Tony just says completely seriously, I don't believe that at all. Right. You know, when Tenta was born, he was 187 pounds. I don't believe that at all. I, I, I said that I really like that because that's Tony Giovanni playing the straight man, like, perfectly. Yeah. His, the, the way he delivers it and he immediately says that is so funny. <laughs> it really is. You know, when Tenta was born, he was 187 pounds. I don't believe that at all. Yeah. Just, no, no, <laughs> no he wasn't. Nope. That's ridiculous. No, no person's nope. born that big. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Tenta starts climbing the turnbuckles by the pole, and Dusty theorizes that Tenta could bend the pole since he can't climb it, and actually I think that would be a great finish for this match. Bubba stops Tenta from getting very far and then begins to climb up, but Tenta throws him from the top turnbuckle onto the mat. Tenta walks across Bubba's chest and then makes like he's going to climb the pole, but Bubba sort of picks him up for like a back suplex that Heenan compares to the implosion of a derelict hotel. <laughs> Now Bubba begins to climb, and the crowd is booing, so as much as I wanted to talk shit, this program does have some heat with the crowd, amazingly enough. I was about to say, because, I mean, we've talked before about how, like, long shows can kind of kill crowds. Yeah. And, and at this point, this is actually, like, their sixth match. God. So the fact that they're, they're like, into this match shows that there's, like, a little bit of enthusiasm. And that was the kind of, when I was thinking about it, when we were talking about main event, and it's, like, a basically, like, an hour-long show that has four matches yeah. before the pay-per-view even starts. Right. That just doesn't seem like a very good strategy if you want to have a really good reaction from yeah. the crowd during the pay-per-view. Oh, also, I wanted to point out that uh, I like the fact that um, uh, Dusty Rhodes calls him Bubber all the time. <laughs> yes, yes. Somehow, uh, the cameras miss exactly how. Tenta knocks Bubba down from the top rope, and uh, Bubba crotches himself on the link between the turnbuckle and the corner post. This is like the first of a thousand fucking hits to the groin tonight. Oh, there is yes. a low blow in every match, I think, except for the opener. I don't believe there was one there. Tenta lifts Bubba up, which is pretty impressive, and then basically like Atomic drops him back onto that little connective piece of the ring that he had just crotched him on before oh so he goes out of his way to crotch him again yep <laughs> tenta throws bubba to the outside and starts trying to investigate the pole realizing that he has no chance of climbing it he turns his attention to the straps holding the pole to the ring post bubba charges in and chokes tenta with his belt 
So, like I said, this has got to be some kind of no DQ match. And this is where I'm getting, this is what I was driving at before, with no one knowing exactly what's going on with the rules. Tony does his best to try to claim that Randy Anderson doesn't see the belt, uh, but if Randy Anderson doesn't see that belt, he needs his driver's license taken away immediately (laughs) because he's staring at it. (laughs) Right. In fact, as Bubba hops out of the ring and pulls on the belt, wrapped around Tenta's neck, Randy Anderson acknowledges the choking, like he makes like the choking gesture with his hands, mm-hmm. and then half-heartedly admonishes Bubba, but allows it to continue. So now the fact that Tony was just saying that Randy Anderson didn't see it means not like that doesn't make any sense because right. Randy Anderson does see it and is fine with it, I guess. <laughs> I'm going to allow this. Bubba continues to lynch Tenta in front of us as Dusty helpfully informs us that Bubba is trying to take Tenta's breath out from him. Like, yeah, that's usually what you're doing when you're choking someone. Yeah. And also, it's like, it's almost uncomfortable because Tenta is selling it like he's almost dead. It's gross. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know, like, because years later, Ray Trailer is going to be involved in another really awkward uh, hanging yeah. moments at a big pay-per-view like i don't know how he always gets mixed up in these <laughs> other than never mind i'm not gonna go down that road who <laughs> other than like do we have like a, a pro at the whole hanging thing in wrestling yeah how about Ray Trailer? yeah there? how about that guy from georgia they've got some <laughs> thoughts on hanging they'd like to share with everyone <laughs> they have thoughts on it <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, uh, <laughs> that was the most, that was the gentlest way you could possibly That was the that. thing I'd cut myself off from talking about a second ago, but then it just, yeah, I had to make we, that I, we were We were progressing <laughs> in that direction. Now Bubba has a roll of tape, and he tapes Tenta to the ropes as Jimmy Hart distracts Randy Anderson. Why he's distracting him when it was, like, just established that he didn't care about belt choking, mm-hmm. kind of beyond <laughs> me, but whatever. And I guess the idea is that when Randy Anderson sees, uh, seconds later, sees Tenta taped to the ropes, yeah. he'll have to assume that since he didn't see who did it, he <laughs> has to assume maybe Tenta did it himself and he can't disqualify anybody. <laughs> he, was, he was trying to tape Bubba, but it was like, whoops. <laughs> yeah, so that's exactly what happens. He turns and he sees Tenta tape the ropes and he's just like, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> that's, that's John for you. <laughs> I'm going to allow this. Bubba wraps his fist with his belt and nails Tenta a few times. Then he whips Tenta a bit with the belt and chokes him some more. Now Jimmy Hart hands him some scissors. He goes to cut off more hair of Tenta's, but Tenta crotches him, something like the fourth crotch shot of this match alone, gets the scissors, and frees himself. Tenta takes the scissors to the straps holding the pole and manages to get one off before Bubba beats him down with a bunch of brawling before a standing spinebuster. By the way, this feud... So far, it's been full of these moments where it's like they're using weapons that like legitimately hurt people. <laughs> yeah, scissors in the ring. It's insane. Yeah, well, scissors and like whipping people with a belt and the sock full like from that nitro. Yep. yep. I wanted to lay that out for how this match ends. Bubba then sends Jimmy Hart up to the top of the pole for the silver dollars. 55-year-old Jimmy Hart does a great job of shimmying up that pole which is seriously very, very high. Yes. Like, if I got to that top of the pole and I'm not someone who really has a fear of heights, I'd be scared to death, like, looking down at how far that floor is underneath you. Right. I, I would say that the, just to kind of give someone who's not watching the show a visual indicator, I'd say the top of the pole is at least as high as where a belt would be hanging in a ladder match. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, because uh, 
uh, Bobby Heenan makes a point during this match where it's like, it might be easier just coming down from the rafters to get it. <laughs> and I was like, it's funny, but it's not entirely untrue because it's like, it's ridiculous. Because when you said 20 feet, it, it looks even higher than that. It's crazy how high that is. Bubba watches Hart go up and thus fails to notice Tenta sneak up behind him. Yes, he fails to notice a 350-pound man sneaking up behind him. And literally his one opponent. (laughs) Tenta hits a power slam as Jimmy Hart slides down the pole, sock of silver dollars in hand. Jimmy does his usual broad shtick of, like, waving the sock with glee and, like, jawing at the crowd and just Mm. completely failing to notice what's going on in the ring or hearing the loud sounds of a body slam or anything. (laughs) Right. Jimmy Hart turns and is in complete shock when he sees Tenta standing there smiling. Tenta pushes Jimmy back and Hart has to grab the pole so he doesn't fly down to the arena floor. So he kind of spins around the pole. Mm -hmm. It's a little slow because Tenta, I think, was scared to actually hurt him. So he barely pushes him. It's all Jimmy Hart actually using his own momentum to throw himself back. Mm -hmm. Bubba gets to his feet and approaches Tenta, who reels back and swings the sock with both hands connecting right to the jaw of Bubba, who falls to the mat like he's been shot. His selling of getting hit with that sock is A+. He does such a good job, I think. Yeah, and this is what I was kind of leading up to, because Tenta's been on the receiving end of some brutal shots. And this, like, one time he gets to hit him, he puts all the effort in the world behind it. Yeah, like, he goes Hank Aaron. Yeah. <laughs> this is his one time to, like, get a really solid shot, and he just drills him. There is a huge pop from the crowd as Tenta covers Bubba for the 1-2-3 in a shockingly long nine minutes. Yes. <laughs> so I'll say about this match before we kind of talk about the aftermath. The match is bad, and it should not be nine minutes. Yeah. But I love the ending. I actually thought the ending was great. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could just isolate that and add it onto a a different match that had like four minutes before that, you know, for a total length of about five, yeah. that would have been great. Mm-hmm. But Jesus, these guys did not need nine minutes. It's insane. We kind of talked about like, oh, they're having another match and having another match. This feud has been going on for a long time, but... I felt like if they finally decide to end this feud, it was a great cap. Like I agree. Of him, of John Tenta, who has just gone beaten up and just like abused basically by Big Bubba and, and humiliated to just drill the shit out of him and pin him. It feels like a, a great way to end a feud. After the match, Tenta drops a few of the silver dollars out of the sock. But the fact that he's holding the sock upside down and only about 10 fall out and yet the sock still looks completely full, sort of gives you the idea that inside the sock is, like, more balled-up socks and then about 10 silver dollars. Yeah. Like, just enough so when he pours them out, some come out. Mm -hmm. But the way he's holding the sock, like, no, about 200 should be tumbling out of there right now. Yeah. This At this point, I I, I got up and I was doing something else, and uh, I liked it because I could hear, like, the silver dollars dropping. Mm. They got they picked up the audio on that really well. Tenta puts a coin on each one of Bubba's eyes, <laughs> and fucking Bubba casually just talks to him. <laughs> <laughs> They're doing a close-up of your face, and you're supposed to be unconscious, and you're just like, mm, yeah, go get some barbecue now. Like, what the <laughs> fuck, dude? It's, it's so stupid. Oh, that's too bad because that's, I mean, I, I missed that part where you did the, and yeah. I was like, that would have been a great, like, visual 
thing. Yeah, but putting like, the coins in his eyes is great. It's like, you know, an old uh, funeral tradition to put him on so, like, you can pay the guy who brings you the river sticks or whatever the fuck. And yeah. It's just, it just completely ruined by Bubba talking and the camera not cutting away. Right. <laughs> they, they stay right on him. They're like, they're like, okay, don't see any problem here. So the the rules of the match made no sense. Randy Anderson looked like a complete boob. A lot of the action was boring, uh, but because the ending was so fun, I kind of liked it. It was it was a big, silly Memphis-style match, especially with Jimmy Hart from the Memphis territory. That's kind of where he got his start and stuff. Mm-hmm. The way that he just comes down that pole, just so happy. Just no idea of what's going on behind him. Right. I love that kind of shit. Yeah, and, and that was the thing of like the... Uh, the pole being too high, it's like it kind of told you how this is going to turn right. out. Uh, like, who's going to go up? The really big fat guy, the other really big fat guy, or little Jimmy Hart? <laughs> the announcers banter for a bit with Dusty imploring Bobby to ask Woody who the third man is. <laughs> Bobby says he's asked around, including people that don't know anything <laughs> about wrestling. <laughs> and nobody knows. Why? Why? <laughs> That's so weird. Tony Tony with the call of the night says, quote, By 10 o'clock Eastern time tonight, we will have found out in the history of our sport as we know it for many, many years may have changed. <laughs> I think... I, 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 like, looked over that sentence a dozen times, and I think what he meant is, when he says in the history of our sport, I think he meant if. Because you say, by 10 o'clock Eastern time tonight, we will find out if the history of our great sport as we knew it for many years has changed. Yeah. But just a couple words are flipped around, and it just becomes, like, Donald Trump-esque word salad that means nothing. It's a bunch of, like important sounding phrases with no no meaning in them yeah, at all and and you you pointed this sentence out to me like before we sat here to, po- yeah. to podcast and and the thing is honestly the in between talking to matches i have just really tuned out and tony Schiavone says a lot of those kind of phrases a lot <laughs> yeah so if you had pointed that out i probably wouldn't have even picked up that that was a really bizarre sentence <laughs> it was because it was like a lot of Tony Schiavone things mashed together. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so I would have heard it. I'd be like, yeah, that sounds like a thing he would say. Moving on. He has like like five bullet points of like what he should say between this match, and he fits all of them in one sentence. <laughs> all right. Well, with that, let's go to the back with me and Gene Okerlund. Again, gentlemen, I thank you very much. It is very tense back here in the locker room area coming up tonight, a match that uh, many have labeled as a hostile takeover match. These outsiders are going to have a third man joining them. They're going to be facing the macho man, Randy Savage, former tag team champions. They've held numerous titles. Of course, the current reigning uh, WCW World Television champ, the total package, Lex Luger Sting. Guys, I don't think I've addressed this. I'm assuming everybody is in the building right now, macho. And uh, who do you think their third man is going to be? You know what? I don't care. I know it's going to be somebody. So that's really all that matters to me. Because he's going to get hurt just like those other guys are going to get hurt. This is equal opportunity, equal war type situation. We're going to take him out, are we not? Lex Luger, it's got to be very, very difficult to prepare when you don't know who this third man is. 
That's very true, Gene, but we are prepared. You know, we've waited a long time for this. They've made a lot of noise, haven't they? A lot of loud noise. They've come in and talking trash. The WCW was an honor and privilege to be chosen for this team. I speak on behalf of all of us, and we were represented well. We were represented to the best of our abilities. And you know what, guys? What is it? You know what point needs to be made here? Make the point, what is it? Thrown announcers through stages. You've talked real loud, but now actions speak louder than words. Isn't that right, oh, Stinger? Yeah. You know what the unknown does mean, Gene? The unknown gives me a real dry mouth. The unknown makes me a nervous wreck. The unknown puts chills right up and down my spine. I like that, that's good. The unknown gives me goosebumps all over my body. And you know something? It does the same thing to the macho man. It does the same thing to the total package. We are a team and we are pumped and ready. We're up for this one. You guys I better get it. Let's just go do it. Thank you very much, gentlemen. They are the total package. Lex Luger, Sting, and the Macho Man, those three men collectively tonight to represent World Championship Wrestling in this gigantic hostile takeover match. I can never recall a match of this magnitude. Mean Gene is alongside Team WCW. We've got Lex Luger, Sting, and the Macho Man, Randy Savage, who are all wearing Sting face paint again tonight. Gene asks Savage who he thinks the third man is. Macho Man proclaims that he doesn't care. It's going to be somebody, and that's all that matters to him. <laughs> this is an equal opportunity, equal war type situation. You know, Dave, one of those equal opportunity, equal war type situations <laughs> right. that we all run into so often in our lives. You know, those equal wars in which everyone can be murdered at any time. <laughs> Gene asks Lex if it's hard to prepare not knowing who your, one of your opponents is. Lex says that it is true, it's hard, but they're prepared anyway. So I guess it wasn't that hard. I always like it that, that Gene Oakland, he pretty much asks Luger like yes or no questions, and he manages to say both <laughs> every single time. <laughs> Are you worried about this? Yeah, you could say I'm worried, but really I'm not. He says that the outsiders have made a lot of l noise, a lot of loud noise, <laughs> and they've talked a lot of trash, but he considers it an honor and a privilege to be on this team. Lex does this thing he always does where he buys his brain time to think of the next thing he wants to say yeah so he goes to he goes like hey sting and Mach, you know what and Mach is just like what <laughs> and lex goes do you know what point needs to be made <laughs> and Macho just yells make the point <laughs> and lex lex just lamely finishes that actions speak louder than words <laughs> like he bought he bought himself all this time to think of something to say and mm -hmm. what he came up with is Actions speak louder than words. <laughs> it seemed, Macho Man was probably like, I'm so sick of bailing him out every single time. So it's like, <laughs> if you ask me a question, I'm like, no, no, don't. You answer it. You go ahead. <laughs> the floor is yours, Lex Luger. Sting tells Mean Gene that the unknown gives him a real dry mouth. <laughs> it makes him a nervous wreck and sends chills up and down his spine and gives him goosebumps all over his body. <laughs> Macho somehow figures that that's a good thing. He's yeah. just like, okay, I don't, I wouldn't want one of my one of my teammates so scared he has a dry mouth and goosebumps all over his body. But I mean, then again, Sting is making it sound like it's a pretty cool thing. Sting is making it sound like he's horny as shit. If you <laughs> right. ask me, Sting ends with quiet intensity, saying that they are pumped and ready to go. 
as a screaming macho man steps all over the end of his promo. And then Lex starts yelling, and now they're all just talking over each other <laughs> as the segment just sort of ends with Gene saying that he can never recall a match of this magnitude. This is probably a good time to say Gene's backstage interviews throughout the show are a true highlight. You can, and we will, you can pick apart like pieces of them individually and laugh at individual lines, but they do a great job of enhancing the show. He, he's just constantly mm. talking to people, who do you think the third man is? He's kind of backstage investigating, seeing yeah. what information he can dig up. It's just fantastic. I think it's a really great way of stringing the show together and really shows why Okerlund is so great and why I really feel like wrestling is missing a Gene Okerlund figure now. One thing uh, I found interesting in the Tony Schiavone podcast covering the show is he, and we'll talk a lot about this later, he does not know who the third man is. So as he's calling the show, he's kind of trying to figure it out because, you know, like anyone else, he's curious. Mm -hmm. He watched this promo and it really stuck out to him how Sting was kind of standing in the back sort of on his own a little bit. And it started planting the seed in Tony's mind that the Stinger could be the third man. <laughs> right, because WCW is known for that kind of subtlety. <laughs> <laughs> DDP comes out and is ignored by Tony, who is doing a little promo on how the WCW team represents the entire roster as well as the production crew. <laughs> Speaking of the production crew, one of those amazing bastards better have earned a massive bonus check because as DDP comes out, he's filmed by a camera that's down at, like, sand level mm -hmm. next to the entrance ramp. And it <laughs> it has little plastic crab claws <laughs> in front of the camera. <laughs> and it's moving sideways throughout the sand. So it's as if we're getting the view of DDP's entrance from the perspective of a crab. <laughs> and it's incredible. <laughs> Kudos all around. <laughs> and I agree with the point that Tony was just making about WCW being something worth fighting for based on this sh camera shot alone. <laughs> <laughs> DDP is wearing some shiny blue gear tonight that looks pretty cool. And he's chomping on a stogie and playing with a roll of athletic tape as this is, of course, a taped fist match for the non-prestigious non-title of Lord of the Ring. Two matches in a row, Dave, where tape plays a major force. Right. It seems every other week that DDP comes out with new attire and it's a, it's like always nicer and nicer attire. He's real, that benefactor really putting in the money for that. Hacksaw is out next waving a big American flag because he can't get over otherwise. He gets some USA chants going, which upsets DDP, who is American. So I don't know exactly what his issue is. As the match begins, we get some general opening side headlock stuff, which ends when Hacksaw hits a shoulder block and DDP bumps all the way through the middle and top rope to the outside. We get some stalling by DDP, who gets back on the apron, spits his gum at Hacksaw, and then runs away in fear. <laughs> Classic. DDP walks around telling the fans to shut up before getting back in the ring and raking the eyes. He drops down to the floor again and grabs Hacksaw, who's still in the ring, by the legs and drags him over to the corner. Using the roll of athletic tape we saw him enter with, he tapes Hacksaw's legs together around the corner, uh, a spot that might have been kind of novel if the preceding match didn't also have a guy getting trapped to the ring by tape. Right. Dusty even mentions John Tenta and how we just saw this. <laughs> so there's like no attempt to be like, yeah, uh, sorry, guys. We, we didn't really talk these through. D yeah, didn't really cover it up. They're like, hey, that's the thing we saw. <laughs> there's also so little tape that there's no way that Hacksaw wouldn't be able to just free himself if he'd put in any effort. Right. He, like, tapes his feet with, like, one go around. Yeah. Uh, when Nick Patrick jumps out to help, it only takes him, like, seconds to free Hacksaw. 
Uh, with Patrick out doing that, though, DDP somehow gets the tape off Hacksaw's fists. We don't really see how, assuming he has some scissors, because now there's scissors in two matches in a row, too. Yeah, no, he has scissors. Okay, I guess I just didn't see him. I just, Patrick was out trying to free him, mm-hmm. and DDP goes in the ring, and then all of a sudden, the tape that's taping Hacksaw's fist, giving them all their extra power. Because mm-hmm. remember, a tape fist is, I mean, that's basically like a lead weight, Dave. It's right. It's got the force of a thousand tons right. or something. <laughs> By the way, this, I mean, this match in general, spoiler alert, is awful. It's terrible. But that is great strategy by Diamond Dallas Page. Taping up the legs just so it distracts the referee so he can go into the ring and cut off the tape. Because I I didn't even think about that as an option. Like, if it's a tape fist match, find a way to get the tape off the other person's hands. Sure. I absolutely agree. The one thing I'll say, though, is, is like the Carson City Silver Dollar match, you can't use the tape to tape your opponent's legs together. That should have been a disqualification. <laughs> is this no DQ now? But if it's no DQ, he wouldn't have needed to distract Nick Patrick. He could have just knocked Hacksaw down and cut the tape off. I, I, I'm not. I'm not going to get into it. I'm right. Just. I, I'm just saying. Dumb rules aside, yeah. the strategy is really awesome. I agree. I agree with you there. Hacksaw gets up and hits a couple big punches on DDP which ends up hanging DDP on the middle rope until Hacksaw stomps him to the outside. They then do this really dumb teeter-totter spot where DDP is standing on the apron with his feet inside the ring, but his upper body is leaning outside, uh, and he's hanging onto the top rope. Hacksaw then will punch DDP, and DDP will like lean back and let his feet fly up so his feet catch on the top rope, and then he like bounces back to a standing position mm-hmm. so he keeps getting punched and then teeter-tottering back and forth and it's very stupid and the physics make no sense yeah hacksaw can't punch you so hard that you fly back and then the force of your feet hitting the ropes brings you all the way back to a standing position there's no way that makes any sense but at this time that's a ddp thing to do just like yeah comical selling he's way too wacky for me uh, in <laughs> this is, match he is way too wacky <laughs> ddp is Way too wacky. (laughs) Eventually, he tumbles down the steps behind him to the floor as Hacksaw starts up a USA champ. The two men brawl on the outside so DDP can comically sell more. Tony says that if Duggan gets the ring, he'll have one of the most prized possessions in our sport. And Tony, you are a fucking liar. (laughs) My note says, Tony needs to apologize for this comment. (laughs) One of the most prestigious prizes in our sport, the Lord of the Rings. Bobby jokes that Duggan will have two rings, one in his finger and one in his tub. The, the the thing I like most about that line, which is not really that funny, just he's gross and has a dirt ring in his tub. Right. But Tony, his reaction to that, he goes like way more southern than he normally is. He just goes, oh boy. <laughs> in the next like 30 seconds is how to keep Hacksaw Jim Duggan from whipping his butt right out here at Bash of the Beach. If Duggan wins, he gets the ring. One of the most prized possessions in our sport. That'll make two. Two rings? He's got one around his tub. Oh, boy. Here we go. And he sounds like a plantation grandmother who is just about to faint due to the vapors. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hacksaw gets a vertical suplex, bringing DDP back into the ring. DDP blocks another suplex attempt by holding the ropes and hits an armbar takedown. DDP yells, bang, and holds both hands up in the air, having not quite figured out the diamond cutter symbol oh yeah uh, he's he's like almost there you can see the pieces it's like every week his hands get a little closer <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
He chokes Duggan on the second rope and gets an elbow to Duggan's face before heading to the top rope, where he's immediately crotched on the turnbuckle by Duggan. Uh-oh. Yeah, so now this match uh, shares the last match tape, scissors, and crotch hits. Somebody call the family, yells Dusty. <laughs> family? Yeah. I guess, like, call DDP's wife and be like, his dick hurts, so leave him alone tonight. I, like, I don't, I don't know why you're calling the family. <laughs> Duggan throws... <laughs> Listen, Kimberly, his dick hurts tonight. <laughs> Dusty, why are you calling me? Aren't you on pay-per-view right now? <laughs> Duggan throws DDP headfirst into the turnbuckle ten times. Tony comments on the fans counting along, and Heenan says they can't be because it's more than six. <laughs> Tony counters that he heard them count all the way to ten, and Bobby says they had to take their shoes off. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wait, is that suggesting they are missing <laughs> like, fingers? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, yeah, they're stupid. And they're missing fingers. <laughs> Duggan clotheslines DDP to the outside. Dusty just now notices that Duggan's tape is gone. <laughs> and Tony seems kind of annoyed by this, pointing out that they've said it many, many times. And in fact, when it back when it happened, Dusty was the first one who commented on it. He was like, oh, his tape's gone. So it's, it's baffling that he's just noticing it. <laughs> Dusty asks, yes... Dusty then asks, when did Duggan tape the tape off? Like, like he took his own tape right. off. And Tony has to explain to him that DDP took it off when he was, back when his feet were taped together. Oh, yeah, I think I commented on it, says Dusty. I, if they were showing the, the commentating table, I can, almost, I can almost imagine Tony, like, checking his watch. Oh. Like, oh, how many more hours do I have with this? I was dying with laughter when he asked oh, when yeah, did Duggan. I think I commented on it. When he asked when Hacksaw took his tape off, I was like, "Why on earth would he do that? The tape is the source of all his power." <laughs> Duggan and DDP brawl on the outside before Duggan rolls DDP back into the ring. As Hacksaw climbs over the middle rope, DDP kicks it, and Duggan is hit in the groin. <laughs> Somebody call Mrs. Hacksaw. I swear to God that when the it hits him, that he yells "ho!" like <laughs> at it's selling, getting hit in the groin. And that's that's the only word he could say. <laughs> He's like the Hodor of pro wrestling. <laughs> Hacksaw continues into the ring despite the hit to the groin, and Diamond Cutter comes out of nowhere for the one, two, three. Nobody gets up from this. Yells Dusty. <laughs> so they are at least. His selling's wacky, his character's goofy, mm -hmm. he's in this dumb feud with Duggan, uh, but they are, if nothing else, really selling the diamond cutter as a great finisher. Yes. Yeah, that match sucked. I agree that getting the tape off was good, but it didn't really seem to come into play. It wasn't like Hacksaw then went for a big knockout punch that mm -hmm. didn't knock him out because it wasn't taped. Right. You know, it didn't really seem to play into the match. Yeah, I, I disliked it because it was like a, a wrestler had a really... I think was a good strategy for a guy who's like, I'll do this first thing, and you yeah. think that's my strategy, but that's really just to divert his attention so I can get the tape off his hands. Yeah, because and DDP never he never uses his tape. I mean, his fists are taped, but it's never a part of the match at all. Yeah, like, his, I don't. But then he'll like he'll like rake the eyes. It's like why yeah. don't why don't you punch him? <laughs> yeah, this it was very confusing and not very good. <laughs> Following the pinfall, Hacksaw immediately sits up, no-selling the match and the diamond cutter, <laughs> right. just completely burying it. He then crawls over to a corner while DDP conveniently looks out at the crowd while talking to the ref. 
<laughs> someone uh, tosses Doug in a roll of tape, and he does his usual big sloppy job of taping up his fist before going and nailing DDP, stealing back any heat that DDP might have gained from the match. Fuck you, Jim Duggan. <laughs> Nobody gets over this way. I hate... They do this all the time in wrestling. They'll do it... I'm trying to remember the match. I think they do it later on in the show. But if you have a match mm-hmm. and someone beats the other person and shows that they're better, don't immediately reset them back to the same level. No one gets over that way. Right. It's amazing how long stuff like that has been going on in wrestling. And as much as I don't like Hacksaw Jim Duggan, he knows more about wrestling than I ever will. He's, you know, of course, obviously. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but how he and the, and the agent and whatever producers and anyone that put this together... Like, why any of them can't see why this type of stuff just hurts wrestling is beyond me. It's crazy. At the end of the match, you're, you you feel like Jim Duggan won. Duggan finds a way to just make sure the diamond cutter doesn't look good either. Fuck off, Jim Duggan. You're right. I, I concur with that thought. Tony begs Hacksaw to stomp on the unconscious page as uh, the referee just puts the ring in Paige's <laughs> hand as he's laying there out cold. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, I'll just put this here. <laughs> Hacksaw does not stump on his downed opponent, though. He just starts some USA chants as we go back to the locker room. And a lot more to come as we go to Mean Gene Okerlund. Gentlemen, please come on in. Jimmy Hart, you little twerp. The 7-foot-4-inch, 471-pound heavyweight champion of the world, representing World Championship Wrestling the Giant, Kevin Sullivan. Tonight, Arn Anderson, Chris Benoit, two out of the four horsemen. And considering, well, considering you, Mr. Sullivan, no disrespect, things don't look real good for you personally. I don't think they're going to let this guy even get in the ring. They're going to double-team you if they get a shot. They're going to double-team me. They can bring all four horsemen out. Let me tell you something. This is home court advantage, and there's something burning in my gut. You think I'm the weak link? Well, ask the giant, and he'll tell you exactly what I am. Giant, uh, be honest with us. Do you consider the Taskmaster the weak link of the Dungeon of Doom? I never and once in my life would ever consider the Taskmaster as a weak link. He is the backbone of the Dungeon of Doom. He is the one that brought the Giant to WCW to reclaim my birthright and put an end to all that Hulkamania stuff. And you talk about the horsemen, the elite, this, that, and the other. They're not the elite. I am the world heavyweight champion. I always will be. I am the elite. You come after the Taskmaster. You come after Kevin Sullivan in his hometown, his home court. <laughs> Looks like we're going to have some horse stew later. <laughs> All right. Uh, they are thoroughbreds. Don't make no mistake about that, Jimmy Hart. The best of the horsemen go against the best of the dungeon. We'll see who wins. <laughs> Can you do me a favor? I don't want to offend you, but would you brush your teeth? You know, stop it with me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the bash at the beach, absolutely electrifying. Standing by my good friend and broadcast colleague, Lee Marshall. Take it away, Lee. Thank you very much, Mean Gene. Standing here with two of the four horsemen, the Canadian crippler, Chris Benoit, the enforcer, Arn Anderson, and it boils down simply to this, Arn. If you can beat either the Taskmaster or the Giant, one of the four horsemen gets a shot at the heavyweight championship of the world on TNT Monday Nitro. Before I get to Sullivan and the Giant, I want to talk about the outsiders briefly. Yeah, Eric Bischoff stood up to you and you shoved him through a table. Big deal. 
Tonight I think you're going to find a little rougher road with Sting, Luger, and Savage. Now, I'm no big fan of theirs, but I just want you to understand whoever you are, what kind of fight you're in, and maybe if you survive it, you can jump on the horseman. But the fact is, first things first, Sullivan, we're looking at this thing as a vehicle to get the world title back where it belongs. Now, I've been walking these streets of Daytona Beach for a couple of days, and all I'm hearing is, boy, what a beating Kevin Sullivan's going to give you. He stuck his hand out to you in friendship and drew back a nub. Well, that's the way of the world, the world the four horsemen live in. And, Giant, we chop you down in half. You're only 3-6. I got to think, Chris Benoit, that you've got some unfinished, unsettled business with the taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan. Silent, but violent. Kevin Sullivan, Giant, the horsemen have tolerated the Dungeon of Doom far too long. Tonight, we're gonna finish off what you started. Sullivan, I'm gonna leave you for dead. Giant, you've given us but another opportunity for the horsemen to reign supreme in the WCW. Coming up, tag team action, the Giant and the Taskmaster, Benoit and Anderson. You talk about some tag team action, you're not gonna believe what's coming up. In fact, let's get to the ring. Backstage, Gene Okerlund lets us know that we can type Go Convention to chat live with WCW stars <laughs> on CompuServe. This bit is not on the network, by the way. It was oddly, like, trimmed off. Oh, yeah, I was like, I didn't remember that part coming up. Yeah, so you didn't get to see Mongo and Deborah pretending they know how computers work. Those videos are always funny because they do, like, they, the wrestler always does this over the top, I'm typing on a computer. <laughs> yeah, and he's, like, saying to Deborah, he's like, like pointing at the screen like this guy thinks he knows something about why I should do the better just like <laughs> right. it's he's you know he's pretending like he's really arguing with some chump in a CompuServe chat room although if someone was getting worked up like that it would be a coked up Steve McMichael like spending half his time before his match just like arguing with someone online Gene then welcomes Jimmy Hart who he calls a little twerp the WCW champion the giant and the taskmaster, Kevin Sullivan, who is sucking in his gut even more noticeably than usual. <laughs> Gene basically says the horsemen are going to dominate Sullivan and not let the giant into the match, playing off the idea that we've kind of established on recent shows that Sullivan is going to be the weak link for the Dungeon of Doom. Sullivan says that he has home court advantage and says to ask the giant if he's the weak link. The giant says he's never considered for a second in his life the taskmaster to be a weak link. <laughs> Rather, he's the backbone of the Dungeon of Doom and the one who brought the giant to WCW to reclaim his birthright and end Hulkamania. Sullivan is tripping balls. Right. Uh, because when he is called the backbone of the Dungeon of Doom, he stands up tall, sucks in his gut even more, and every vein on his neck begins to pop out. His jaw starts making weird movements. And then he bizarrely salutes. <laughs> like himself. Yeah, he's he's saluting that he's being talked about nice, I guess. But he doesn't do it to the giant. He does it like to the middle distance. Right. Is he saluting the giant? The ideals of the Dungeon of Doom? A giant cartoon Richard Nixon that only he can see? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yeah, because 
when he says it's a bat, he's the backbone. It's like someone just inserted a backbone when he says it too. There's also uh, this weird moment that I didn't mention back in the pre-show where they get uh, these guys get another promo with Gene, and the giant says something about the Taskmaster always covering his back, and Taskmaster gets this like big childlike smile on his face. And tries to, like, climb up the giant's back like he's literally covering it. <laughs> he's just, he's just like, doing this free association goofball thing with stuff he hears. He is so clearly high <laughs> on something. Right. And it's, like, it's more than being drunk and it's more than pot. Like, he's tripping hard on, right. I don't know what. <laughs> then he suddenly... his back. I better get up there fast. Right after, right after the salute... He suddenly looks at the giant like he's just now noticing that other people are in the room. <laughs> he notices that Gene is staring at him, and he suddenly looks forward with this sheepish and concerned expression that I know too well, because it's the same expression I made when I was 18 and my stepsister and I got high before dinner, and I thought my dad could tell. <laughs> right. And if you follow me on Twitter, you've already seen that joke, but <laughs> it was very, very true. It's the exact same face. No, it, no, that's it's such a per, that's a perfect way to describe, like, I... I can visualize the Taskmaster's expression by that. Yeah, it's just like, oh, oh, oh shit, we're laughing too much, and Dad knows. <laughs> he knows why. <laughs> Giant, meanwhile, is saying that he's going to have horse stew later. <laughs> Jimmy Hart says it's the best of the horsemen versus the best of the dungeon and laughs in Okerlund's face, prompting Gene to insult his breath. Gene then tosses it to the voice of Tony the Tiger, Lee Marshall, who is standing in the aisle with Arden Benoit. Marshall covers the stipulation for the match. If the horsemen win, one of their members can get a title shot on Nitro. Arn takes a minute to tell the Outsiders that they're in for a real fight with Sting, Luger, and Savage, even though he's not a fan of any of those men. Maybe if the Outsiders survive that match, they can later face the horsemen one day. Arn warns Sullivan that the horsemen view this match as a vehicle to regain the world title. He says he's been walking the streets and everyone is telling him what a beating Sullivan is going to put on the horsemen. Sullivan stuck out his hand in friendship and drew back a nub. But Arn says that's just the world the horsemen live in. Arn finishes by telling the giant that if they chop him in half, he's only three foot six, which sounds cool, but is completely meaningless. Right. It's like, <laughs> giant, you're very strong. But if we make you not strong, you're not strong anymore. Right. Yeah. He's and, very tall, and if he was not as tall, he wouldn't be as tall. Right. Good point. He's tall, but if you divide his height by two, <laughs> this is what you get. Also, who are the people that are saying that Kevin Sullivan is going to beat the hell out of the horseman? I think they're playing on the idea that this is his home turf, because he's like, I was walking around the streets, like, yeah. you know, it's Daytona Beach. I don't think the people of Daytona Beach give two fucks about <laughs> Kevin Sullivan. Or, but... or they're walking around that part of Daytona Beach where the gates of fate are. <laughs> And the demons of yeah. the gates of fate are like, ah, you're going to be destroyed by All the... All right, we're in Daytona Beach. Let's go surfing. Uh -huh. uh, then we'll tan for a little bit. Mm -hmm. We'll stop by the gates of fate for a quick picture opportunity. And then crab cakes. <laughs> we'll ask people who's going to win the match tonight. <laughs> we'll be appalled by them saying it's <laughs> Kevin Sullivan. Marshall asks Benoit if he has unfinished business with the Taskmaster, and as always, Benoit ignores the question and <laughs> right. also, as always, gives a very generic and awkward promo. I didn't really even write down what he said. It's just his promos are so bad right now. And they always start with him saying silent but violent, mm -hmm. which is a weird thing to say right before you go on a diatribe for like 45 seconds. Yeah. Like 
he should just say silent but violent and then nothing else. That yeah. would make more sense and mm-hmm. cover up for the fact that he sucks at talking. For most of the time, I f- I'm like, eh, it's he's passable. But this one in particular is like, oh, he is struggling to figure out what to say next. And when Chris Benoit is struggling to, to, for what to say next, it's just like he's tripping over like his own words pretty much. Lee Marshall does some general summarizing and sends it back to the ring, and Jesus Christ does he overact what should be a very simple part. Lee Marshall still has an awesome voice. Yes. (laughs) And down the road, we'll get to hear a whole lot more of it. Public Enemy's music hits, and fuck me, it's time for their four-man dog collar match with the Nasty Boys. Public Enemy comes to the ring carrying a table. As they enter the ring, I notice that there is a buxom blonde woman in short shorts and a bash t-shirt just kind of milling about by the ring. I don't know if, like, maybe they have cheerleaders that kind of hype stuff between the matches. or Like, I just could not figure out what her purpose was. It's just like, hey, here's a hot woman. She's just kind of hanging around. Well, I mean, they've sometimes had, like, these, like, ring girls or something that, like, that take, like, jackets and things like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what she's doing. Because I know Disco Inferno utilizes one of them later on. Oh, okay. Sure. Tony, Brain, and Dusty debate when an object becomes, in Dusty speak, plunder. (laughs) Right. Yes. It's basically, he refers to, wet, it's a thing he do, does on Saturday night where he's uh, the color commentator, mm-hmm. where he just calls weapons plunder and yeah. really finds it enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And Brain pretends to misunderstand him and thinks he's saying plunger, and it's, the whole bit's not worth getting into, but they talk about it for quite a while. Yeah. I, the only thing that's, no, to me, noteworthy about that was when he's trying to get the plunger joke out, yeah. as he refers to that thing you use on a commode. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I don't, I hate the commode. <laughs> It's a urinal. Just call it a urinal. The Nasty Boys come out to their horrifying theme song that they sing themselves. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's so terrible. Now, if you haven't seen a dog collar match before, uh, in these two men each wear dog collars around their necks, and then the collars are joined together by about 10 feet of chain. In this case, we have four dog collars, although they are separated into pairs, so it's not like there's... Uh, chains that connect them all together which would have been <laughs> that would be crazy would have been a ni- i mean this match is already a complete nightmare but if you could imagine four men no so they're just they're kind of paired off and it looks like they've done it by hair color as rocco rock and jerry sags are linked together and brian knobs is paired with johnny grunge huh i never thought of that bobby says you've got to call everyone you know now and tell them to watch nitro tomorrow because if they don't manage to find out what's going on with eric bischoff tonight surely they'll know tomorrow by nitro Surely, surely they'll explain it on Nitro tomorrow. We aren't going to talk about every time they talk about Bischoff or every time they talk about the third man. Mm -hmm. Just know that throughout this entire show, they are constantly mentioning those things. Yep. And not even in a bad way. uh, Mm -hmm. This whole night feels like it's about the third man reveal. Yeah. And since the payoff, spoiler alert, is worth the hype yep i have no problem with how frequently it's brought up it's it's great actually mm-hmm. okay so i really kind of did my notes for this match as bullet points because holy shit there's a lot to take in here most of it's in split screen yeah because you've got two different pairs kind of wandering around so they start off uh, by standing off in the ring and the crowd chants we want blood <laughs> which they're literally clamoring for blood <laughs> Speaking of the dog collars, Tony says that the muscles in your neck are very powerful muscles indeed. <laughs> oh. It's such a strange thing to say. Okay, cool. 
they do the split screen and of course uh that makes it very tiny like because they they put it in pairs and then above the pair is the bash at the beach logo mm-hmm. and the the logo is like arguably bigger than either one of the screens it it's definitely bigger than now we're watching this in modern times with our huge tvs if you were watching this back in the day with like your 20 inch There's big the, cr tv you're like what's going on yeah this would have been a night i mean it's already a nightmare but mm-hmm. and and is and as is like tradition when it comes to split screen as soon as you go to split screen something happens of which it's like the actions on both the screens oh yeah it always always happens my, my other note on the split screens is that dusty calls them our double trouble bash in the beach bubble <laughs> And I, it seems like he ad libs it too. It's not like a. Thing I have, had... I have no doubt he ad libs. Well, yeah, because I don't think he prepares any notes. I don't. I, just the top of his head. It's our double trouble bash of the beach bubble. It's so good. <laughs> Both teams head up the aisle immediately mm-hmm. uh, with trash can and trash can lid shots as they sort of wander that way. Rocco Rock stands on the guardrail for no other reason so that he could be crotched on it. <laughs> like, that's it. He gets up and stands on it so Sags can hit it, and then, ow, my groin. And that's three matches in a row with groin hits. <laughs> on the sandy beach part of the set, Nobbs hits grunge with an inflatable shark, which, of course, could not hurt at all. It's an inflatable shark. Right. The announcers try to sell it as a rubber shark because that would hurt a little more, I guess. <laughs> because grunge... Grunge is selling yes. being hit by an inflatable <laughs> shark. It reminds me of the old story about Owen Hart and I forget, was it Mick Foley? They're trying to have the worst match possible, so they grab bags of popcorn and then they sell for each other. Oh. Like they hit each other with popcorn and then just sell like it's like a lead weight. Right. Or I've always heard that story of um, like there's an indie battle royal where someone gets eliminated because a fan throws a, uh, a drink at the back of their head. And they think they're getting hit over the top rope, so they get eliminated. <laughs> the fan got an elimination right. in the match. <laughs> Sags beats Rocco with a surfboard. Bobby says he's hanging 10, and Dusty is gleeful because he was about <laughs> to use that same line. Yeah. And he just, he's tickled pink by the fact that they were going to make the same joke. Yeah, and I, I like it that Bobby Heenan's like, no, you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> Nobs brains grunge with a chair. Sags follows up with a surfboard to grunge's head. Rocco Rock hits Sags with a life preserver. <laughs> that's the type of match we're getting here. By the way, that's a literal surfboard. It's not the wrestling move, the surfboard. <laughs> yeah, none of these guys are doing a surfboard. Don't worry about it. Public Enemy gets some chair shots in. Johnny Grunge hits a bulldog onto a chair on the dock part of the set. Rocco Rock climbs the lifeguard chair. Sags, it's like, you know, one of those lifeguard stands like you'd see at the beach. Yep. Uh, Rocco Rock climbs to the top. Sags pulls the chain and Rock flies off the chair, basically turning it into a somersault senton into Sags. Mm-hmm. It's a decent, decent little spot. I like that they're using the goofy beach set. Yeah. Like, if nothing else, I'm enjoying that they're incorporating that in kind of silly ways. After a trash can lid shot or some other bullshit I didn't quite see, <laughs> Nobs goes for a pin. So I guess this is false count anywhere, which <laughs> was not previously announced, but okay, let's go with that. He gets a two count. On the other side of our screen, Rocco Rock ascends the lifeguard stand again. So maybe the spot was blown last time, although the somersault senton looked good. No. This time, Sags just topples the whole stand over. <laughs> so I don't know what the point was. Like, I don't know why he went back up to the well again. It's very strange. 
So now in our split screen, uh, Nobs is on our left, and he's fired up after a series of surfboard shots to grunge. On our right, Sags and Rocker Rock are down from the lifeguard stand demolition. Uh, Nobs gets another two count on Johnny Grunge. After some more minutes of interminable bullshit <laughs> uh, brawling in the aisle, Sags gets a table, which he throws down onto Rocco Rock. Sags then hits a pile driver on Rock on the concrete. The crowd does not give a shit about mm-hmm. this match. They were hot for nine minutes of Tenta and Big Bubba yeah. in a Carson City Silver Dollar match. They do not give a shit about this match right now. By the way, when the um, when the lifeguard tower t- is toppled over, there's a there's a point at which like they're stuck because the chain is underneath. Oh. <laughs> I just want to point that out because like they also noticed it, and there was a moment where like they didn't realize why they couldn't move away. Sags and Rock bring the table down the aisle towards the ring until Sags charges and Rock dodges, and Sags lands on the table, partially breaking it. Rock climbs the guardrail and comes down with an elbow or an axe handle and, quote, puts Sags through the table, but it was already really pretty much broken. Yeah. Nobs does a leg drop on the concrete onto Grunge for a two count. Back to Rocco Rock and Jerry Sags, and uh, Sags needs to, like, get up for the next spot. Yeah. And Rocco actually has to reach out and take him by the hand and help him to his feet. (laughs) The announcers feign surprise that this is headed back into the ring. Bobby hey, what's that big thing in the middle of the room? (laughs) That's where everyone stands and gets introduced before they go fight on the floor, right? (laughs) Right. Tony giggles with delight, (laughs) and that's pretty fucking funny. Yeah, that's the highlight of this match, I think. With grunge and knobs in the ring, Sags pushes another table up uh, into the ring with them. All four men wind up in the ring, and Sags is prone lying on the table. Rocco Rock heads to the top rope and is going to try to put Sags through the table, but Sags gets up and pulls the chain, causing Rock to essentially swanton bomb the table, but the table does not break. Also, that's this is another one of those like physics things, like getting yanked by the chain does not make you flip over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would fall face first, not do a beautiful flip. <laughs> Sags decides to try again or something and starts getting Rocco to his feet. Rocco gathers the chain in his hand and hits Sags in the dick, but Sags is just uninterested in that plan because now they're just freestyling. So he just doesn't sell it. He's like, no, that's not what we're doing right now. Right. He just gets Rock back onto the table. Which is also, what are we at, like the fifth ma- or fourth match in a row with a dick shot? Oh, well, this is like the fourth dick shot of this match. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Sags wraps chain around his elbow, and Dusty predicts a blivet off the top. In a moment of Dusty speaks so strange that both Bobby and Tony just openly mock him for right. it. They're <laughs> just like, oblivion, huh? Yeah. Okay. No, it, I couldn't even like figure out like what word he meant to say. <laughs> Sags comes off the second rope with an elbow, but the table once again holds strong and Rocco just bounces off. By the way, to picture it when Sags is wrapping a, the chain around his arm, yeah. it's like Jim Duggan doing the tape fist. <laughs> It's yes. such a terrible job. It's like you're you're just going in circles. Well, how is this difficult? <laughs> it's like all up and down his yeah. arm. He like kind of gives up after a while. It's just he makes it look so tough. Tony, for some reason, at 10 minutes into this match, says, you may wonder who the legal man is. And then says, like, of course, there is no legal man. It's just a tornado match. Mm-hmm. But like why he says this 10 minutes into the match, no one watching this is wondering who the legal man is. Yeah. Because well, cause I th- I'm pretty sure it was implied there was Texas Tornado rules. Yeah. And most wrestling fans understand that means everyone's legal. 
It's it's such a weird time for him to make that comment. I don't really get it at all. <laughs> right. Sags tries an Irish whip on Rocco Rock, but the chain gets wrapped around Rock's ankle and he just trips over it. It's very sad. <laughs> I don't know. Just seeing it, I was like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> it's not even funny. It's just kind of sad. Grunge ends up going over the top rope and Nobbs yanks on the chain so that Grunge is literally hanging there choking. So now that's another repeat spot we've had tonight <laughs> right. is a guy choking with something held over the ropes. Mm-hmm. Sags whips Rock into the chain, which essentially clotheslines him. Sags covers for the one, two, three. This match was 11 and a half minutes long. Yes. It felt twice as long. Mm-hmm. I hated it. I I hate this garbage wrestling. Like, yeah. I really do not enjoy it. I think, if I remember right, their first match was Clash of the Champions in January. Yeah, and that one was... And we really liked it, right? Yes. Yep. What has happened? Right. Why can they not do one... I mean, for one thing, it's just the same two teams mm-hmm. doing the same junk over and over and over and over again. Yeah. I, I was going to say, like, there's that the, the part of the end where Rocco Rock gets clotheslined by the chain, mm-hmm. and my immediate reaction is, like, yeah, that would kind of suck, but that wouldn't, like, get, I wouldn't be defeated by that. Right. So then Sags, at least he grabs, because, like, you, another thing that happened was, like, the, the dog collar broke off of Rock or Rock at some point towards the end. And they eventually mention it, but Sags takes the entire chain and just, like, drops it on his face. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I would be <laughs> done then. So he at least realized, like, the clothesline's not a very, like, that's not exactly like a finishing move, so he added that in there. But, yeah, this this match was just, like, a mess. And the majority of the beginning was more like Tony Schiavone getting to say goofy things about the action. Like, yeah. he hit him with a shark. I never thought I would say that. He hit him with the surfboard. What a crazy match this is. <laughs> well, in a rare moment of honesty after the match, Tony just says, that was a mess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Tony also says that on his podcast, he did not like this match and hated calling these like split screen style. Ma- There's just too much shit going on. It's impossible to call. Yeah. I can't blame him for that at all. Seems right. Uh, the Nasties celebrate, but Public Enemy attacks them so that nobody can get over. Mm-hmm. Uh, Segs <laughs> tries to reenter the ring and Grunge whips him with the chain, like whips him hard in the head with the chain. Yes. Uh it, it looked very painful. And then suddenly we cut to a table that uh, Sags has gone through. How did he go through the table? <laughs> right. We'll never know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and yeah, there's like the, the part when um, when Nobbs gets hit with the chain, he actually just kind of slumps over like he might have got legitimately injured. And then Tony Schiavone was suggesting he was legitimately injured. But let's cut over to this other thing instead. Transitioning from the match, Tony says that we have no idea who the third man is. And Heenan says it should be the table, which I like that line. That yeah. was good. Tony says that maybe Gene knows who it is, and we go to Oakland, who is in the hallway flanked by police. Tony, I don't know if I have an answer. I will tell you this. As you recall, our broadcast colleague, Eric Bischoff, was injured at the hands of these two outsiders. They're in a locker room right behind me here. I have security. If either one of these men would have the gall, the unmitigated gall to touch me, I would go right to a lawyer's office. They have done the damage already in World Championship Wrestling. Tony, Dusty, certainly... Bobby the Brain Heenan, even you can empathize with what is going through the mind of Eric Bischoff. He's seen these two men. Apparently, anyone and everyone is fair game. Tonight, though, in my opinion, they are going to have their hands full. I was hoping to get one of the outsiders out here 
for some kind of an idea, some kind of word regarding who their third man is. I mean, we have had speculation in recent weeks on numerous people that could fill that particular position, the third man to join these two big men. Right now, I have this shield here. That will not be the case out of the ring during our main event, the hostile takeover match. The electricity even back here is just absolutely so thick you could cut it with the knife. Ladies and gentlemen, you are part of history, history in the making here at the Bash of the Beach. Further thoughts, let's go back to our broadcast team. Gene says that the Outsider's locker room is behind him and he has security with him just in case they have the gall. No, he corrects himself, the unmitigated gall oh. to touch him. <laughs> in which case, he would head straight to a lawyer's office. He threatens that a lot and I always love it. He's just like... He's no bullshit. Like, he's not going to fight you. He's going to just go sue the shit out of you for touching him. And not only that, like, but that's a thing he always does because he has, like, a fleet of lawyers. Right, yeah. His first thing is to sue the shit out of people. I didn't take a lot of notes on kind of the rest of what he said because it just felt to me like it was going nowhere. It becomes pretty clear mm -hmm. that he doesn't know who the third man is. He doesn't have any real information on it. Contrary to what he was saying earlier on that pre-show yeah. about his hotline. Back in the arena, Disco's music hits, and it's time for the WCW Cruiserweight Championship match. Disco comes out with his gold album and his ring gear that's kind of a creamsicle color this week. Mm -hmm. It looks good for, like, a heel who's kind of disco-based. I thought it was pretty pretty good gear. Yeah, and the impression I get from Tony is that this is, like, the first time they've seen him wear that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Disco gets on the mic and demands that his music be cut. He knows that everybody came to see him dance. And after he beats Mr. Personality and wins the title... Everyone is invited to his disco dance party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the point where uh, Disco Inferno hands the gold record to one of the one of those girls at ringside. Oh, okay. So I was wondering if maybe that's what they were there for. That could be. Malenko's theme hits, and out comes the man of a thousand holds. The Iceman is red hot tonight as he marches to the ring deliberately with just a look of hatred on his face for the it Disco Inferno. And considering. How serious Dean Malenko is. If he's pissed off, I'm like, I'm backing off from this. I'm like, hold on to the belt. Yeah. I'll try it other time. <laughs> he gets in the ring, hands his belt and vest to Randy Eller, and immediately takes it to Disco before the bell has a chance to ring. The match starts up on the outside where Malenko whips Disco into the guardrail, beats on him a bit, and throws him into the ring post head first. Back in the ring, Dean gets Disco into a corner and has words for him, but Disco shoves him back. Dean does a backward somersault and then a forward handspring and hits Disco in the gut. Yeah. <laughs> he's messing with the wrong dude. <laughs> this is not Disco's day. If, that, if he pushes him and he's just like, I'm just going to show even more athleticism as a result of this push. A drop kick from Dean gets a two count. Dean stays in control and hits a brutal brain buster for another two count. Dean slows it down with a headlock and then a head scissors, but Disco makes it to the ropes. This just pisses off Malenko more, and he continues dissecting Disco. Bobby quips that the music will be much louder for Disco tomorrow, because both his ears will be on the same side of his head. <laughs> that aforementioned uh, Brain Buster? Yeah. M most of the announcers thought that match was over right there. Because, oh, sure. Because like, he's just beating the shit out of him, and this looks like it's going to be a squash, pretty much. Side suplex from Dean, and then a leg hook, but Disco who has prided himself in submitting quickly in the past, refuses to quit. Oh, right. Like, yeah, he's actually a bit like, you know, done the whole point at his brain. Like if mm. I, you know, I don't want to get hurt kind of thing. But no, tonight he's, you're right that this is basically a squash so far. He's, he's had zero offense, mm -hmm. um, but he has at least 
not just tapping out immediately when he's put in a submission hold. Right. Dean continues to work the leg, and Disco tries to stand and does some good selling, unable to stand because his leg has been worked on. It kind of goes away in a few minutes, but it was right. a good in the, good in the moment. Good intentions. Dean gets a drop kick on the back of the seated Disco's head for another two count. Dean locks in an STF, but Disco again stays resilient. The announcers are still very concerned about where Bischoff is, but also take a moment to note that Disco has no had no offense yet. Mm-hmm. It just kind of like contrasts how they're trying to sell it as a serious angle, but in the middle of like wondering if their friend has been kidnapped or killed or hurt in a car crash, <laughs> they're just like, oh, also he doesn't have any offense yet in this match. That's weird. <laughs> this is an interesting <laughs> match. Also, our friend might be dead somewhere. <laughs> Dean soon has Disco in a corner, and the Inferno shows signs of life, punching his way out of the corner and reversing their position. The crowds and announcers are suddenly behind this plucky young babyface. <laughs> Disco gets a clothesline and then lifts Dean onto the top rope neck first. The announcers commend Disco for not checking his hair. Disco hits a face buster, but before going for the pin, checks his hair. Yes. <laughs> Enraging Bobby Heenan. <laughs> Malenko gets back in the driver's seat after a headbutt to the abdomen. He sends Disco to the outside and shoots himself. No. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> He's like, fuck this, I'm out. God, this would be a memorable pay-per-view. I was going to say, with the with the part where he checks his hair yeah. and he didn't get some rage, and Tony tries to save it by like, yeah, he didn't really fluff it, though. Yeah. He just touched it a little bit, which shows he has a lot more focus tonight, <laughs> which is like, that's really, really digging for a compliment. <laughs> So as I was trying to say, he sends Disco to the outside and then shoots him into the guardrail like Irish whips him into the guardrail. (laughs) Dean gets Disco in some kind of crucifix submission, but Disco again won't give in. Tony uses thwart in a sentence, but Dusty thinks he said fart, and they all (laughs) laugh about it for like 25 seconds. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) These are grown men at work, no less. Uh, I mean, for the record, at this point, this is the 10th match of the night. Oh, God. (laughs) Disco works his ass off to get to the ropes and finally gets his toes on there for a rope break. Dean comes down at him with a leg drop using the second rope to get extra height. It looks great, and it gets Mm -hmm. a two count. Disco fights his way back into things with elbows. He misses a corner charge but blocks a double axe handle and gets a neck breaker. Once again, though, he checks his hair before the pin, and it ends up not being enough, only getting a two count. You were were mentioning that Malenko came off the second rope for that the kick. Yeah. And um, that was the point at which um, Bobby Heenan was saying this, like, this is his home. He feels, like, so at at home in the ring. Mm -hmm. He knows every angle of it. He knows how to utilize every part of it. And he says that's how Disco pissed him off, was by coming into his home back on Nitro a few weeks ago and and shooting his mouth. Because, like, he came in during the match. Is like, to him, that was a home invasion. Yeah. And I was like, that's a a great way of selling that. It really is. It's I too mean, bad they didn't think of it until like during the match. Right. Because it's a great way of selling the feud. Yeah. Yeah. Because and at the time it was like it was incredibly goofy because the referee didn't give a shit if this other guy was in the ring. But I mean the fact now the way they're interpreting it is the way they should have like at the first place. Like you you invaded like his time in the ring and that's why he's pissed off. A back body drop earns Disco another two. He hits a very nice swinging neck breaker, but begins to dance. No, 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 shouts Tony. 
Disco snaps out of it, hilariously realizing what his dancing is costing him. <laughs> and he rushes down for a pin, but he's wasted too much time. <laughs> and Disco kicks out it too. It's amazing. Yeah. He starts dancing and then it's like, what am I doing? <laughs> right. It's, it's really good character work. <laughs> Dean gets a springboard drop kick and tries for a Texas Cloverleaf, but Disco rolls them up for two. Disco gets a huge clothesline for another near fall. Dean blocks a hip toss and gets his own big clothesline. He goes for a drop kick, but Disco grabs the ropes to stop his momentum, so Dean ends up just falling to the mat. Disco tries to follow up with a backslide, but Malenko fights off the attempt and hits the Tiger Driver, a double underhook powerbomb. He locks in the Texas Cloverleaf, and the match is over. Uh, the end gets a big pop from the crowd, and this might just be my own interpretation, but I really felt like it was one of those pops that was like respect for both of you guys. For mm -hmm. having a good match, not just we're happy Dean won. Yeah, because because during the match they treated in Disco as the baby face, mm -hmm. so I don't think they'd pop for him getting beat. I think they were popping for like, wow, good job both of you. Like, yeah. especially Disco, who you were not expecting that from. No, not by no, not by any means. Uh, so that match was twelve minutes long, and it was very good. It yes. was like mm -hmm. shockingly good. And now, not only that, like I mean, because one to me, one of the big elements of a of a good match is like you're telling a story within the match. And they were. It was the idea of Disco Inferno realizing the, the the opportunity he has and trying to overcome, like, his own per characteristics to, yeah. to like, oh, wait, I, I, need to, I need to try harder because this is a championship match. Like, I have opportunity here. And, yeah, I, I thought this match was really, really good. I'm... It's not it's not on the level of the the opener, but it's not. But I will say I think it's the second best wrestling match on the show tonight. Yes, no, I totally agree. Uh, which is it's a way to compliment it, but also it's not saying a lot. Too. <laughs> yeah, but. yeah. So this was just like a a surprising hidden gem. It's not a five star classic, but it is a good match. Certainly to date, the best Disco Inferno match that we've seen. Yes, far and away. Mm -hmm. And I really, I really hope, and I'm skeptical just based on the little that I do know, but I really hope that we do see some development in Disco after this. Um, so it'll, I'll be very interested in seeing what happens for his character. And I'm someone who's been, despite loving Disco Inferno, been very against him getting this championship match. Yeah. And I thought it was a real waste. So, like, okay, they really won me over here. Mm -hmm. And, okay, like, now it's time to see if you do something with that. Yeah, I mean... Again, I, I mean, I've said before many times how much I love the Disco Inferno, but no, he, there was nothing going on in his career at that point that suggested he earned a title match because, like, he was on Nitro but was literally losing every single match on Nitro. And it's not a good way to, to, to prop up a, a new championship if just anyone could get a title match. But, I, yeah, I, I think in the future, like, most fans are not going to remember how the match came together, mm -hmm. and they'll see that, like, this was a great match. And Disco Inferno, like, put this extra effort in because he wants this championship. Tony calls the match a cruiserweight classic. And the announcers put over the match as Malenko holds his belt and yells at the camera. Tony does a real great job of putting over Disco, uh, a character who he normally shits all over. Yes. So it means a lot coming from Tony that he's mm -hmm. talking about how great Disco was, that he was a force to be reckoned with. And he also says something about how that match was so great because Disco came to fight. Yeah. So just a real good job by Shivani. We are at the Ocean Center here in Daytona Beach for the bash at the beach right across the street, right across one double-A, or is it double-A-1? Ah, one or the other. Right across the highway is the beautiful Atlantic Ocean, beautiful sand beaches here at Daytona. 
And this afternoon, I put on my loincloth and copper tone and went over. You're not going to guess who I found. The lovely Kimberly, welcome back, first of all, to World Championship Wrestling. My dear, that is a very familiar sight. That is the latest from WCW merchandise. That is that cotton. Is, is it kind of a, a terry cloth combination uh, towel? How, how does it feel? Oh, it feels so soft and luxurious, Jean. I could just, I could fit you in it and you could just see for yourself. All right, I'd be very curious about the tan lines, but that's uh, another subject. You know, I could visualize, perhaps, Kimberly, you and I on the beach, lying on that beach towel. That's a, a, a nice thought. I don't know, I can't quite picture it. Well, let's uh, just go. Well, let's I'll, go do it. Well, this is a very good time. At the you, know, you pulled me off a most beautiful sunset stroll. I was out there enjoying myself, and only for you would I come in and help sell the towel. I, I'm, I'm certain, right, especially when we're facing east. You can imagine what we would do on this beach towel. I can imagine, lose me, just uh, somebody out there watching. Kimberly in this beach towel. And by the way, they are available by mail order, or you can call. Telephone number's on the screen, 1-800-WCW-8661. Believe me, this is a quality product, ladies and gentlemen, something that you can enjoy this summer. Enjoy your own bash at the beach. We've got a post office box also on the screen. You can take a look at that. If you cannot make that telephone call, but do, do make that call right now, 1-800-WCW-8661. And Kimberly... You and I might. I've got a question for you that What's you can that? answer on your hotline. What do I have on underneath this towel? Uh, tan lines? I don't know. Ooh, maybe that's something that you can confide in me, and I'll share that next Saturday on my hotline. In the meantime, ladies and gentlemen, we have got an extraordinary pay per view coming up from the Black Hills in South Dakota. Right now, let's take a look at Hog Wild. We're heading for Sturgis. The bad boys and girls of WCW straddle their hogs and head to the world-famous Sturgis Rally. We're going to take you places you've never seen before. You'll smell the gasoline burning and hear the tires squeal. Make the ride to Sturgis for WCW's Hog Wild. Saturday, August 10th, live and only on pay-per-view. Call your cable operator to order now. So, Dave, you will not have seen this. This is exclusive to the uh, original version. This is not on the network here. Okay. Backstage, Mean Gene says, right across the highway from the arena is the beach. He says this afternoon he put on his loincloth and copper tone, and you won't believe who he ran into, the lovely Kimberly. <laughs> in, in walks the booty babe wearing nothing but a branded Bash at the Beach beach towel. Uh, it's interesting that all of a sudden she's Kimberly because she... Last I remember seeing her, she was the booty babe still. Yes. But they mm. just call her Kimberly tonight, but they still act like you know who she is. Hmm. Uh, a number is put up on screen for you to order one of these uh, towels. Jean asks Kimberly if it's cotton or terry cloth. She doesn't know, but says it feels so soft in her skin that she could just wrap Jean up so he could see for himself. <laughs> uh, we then just get a, a minute or so of a mix of like general kind of sales and perving. Yes. Perving, is perving. that a word? And then some pimping of the hotline before Gene gives us a little preview of next month's pay-per-view where we're going to be heading to Sturgis, South Dakota for Hog Wild. Back in the arena, Joe Gomez is coming out to some upbeat Spanish guitar, which is not the music he came to out uh, on Nitro a few weeks back, but is an improvement, so I'm going to allow it. <laughs> I'm going to allow this. <laughs> he glad hands on his way to the ring as Tony reminds us of the preposterous angle for this match. <laughs> Which is that G Joe Gomez was a big Bears fan who was so disappointed by Mongo's heel turn that he wanted a physical altercation with him. <laughs> right. 
keep in mind that at least uh, as far as everything we've seen, and we haven't watched like Saturday Night, I suppose. Uh, I'll, actually, I have, but I kind of skip around. Mm-hmm. But we've we've never seen that come out of Joe Gomez's mouth. That's only just been told to us right. by the announcers. Uh, I don't. I'm not saying I want Joe Gomez promo time, but it's just funny that like the entire uh, angle behind this match is something that's just like completely given to us through exposition from the announce team. Right. Like at this point, in theory, Joe Gomez might not even know why the feud's going on. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. They might be signing him up for this, and he's like, "Yeah, okay, I guess I'll face you, Michael." Oh wait, why am I pissing? <laughs> who, who are the Bears? Football. <laughs> What's a football? <laughs> What's a football? We go back to crab cam as Mongo comes out with Deborah. He's wearing his Bears Letterman jacket and wearing his trademark shades while holding up the horseman symbol of excellence. In proof that professional wrestling is the greatest thing to ever exist, Deborah has a new heel dog to replace Pepe. (laughs) That's so goddamn funny. God, that's great. Just the fact that just think about that. They're like, okay, he's heel. He needs a new heel. To, Pepe was too over as yeah. a baby face. They'll never want to boo him if he has Pepe. Well, at first he didn't suggest that Pepe got a makeover. Yeah. And, and yeah, because this this is a little white poodle with like one of those pom-pom haircuts. <laughs> right. and, and then he suggests that like they stuff Pepe somewhere <laughs> in the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the pre-show, Mongo and Deborah gave an interview to Lee Marshall revealing that this dog's name is Angel. Tony laments that poor little Pepe is now on the shelf. That's what he keeps calling oh. it. It drives me crazy. <laughs> right. uh, he says that Peppy is now on the shelf because the McMichaels have money. Uh, but weren't they already millionaires? <laughs> anyway, Bobby says Pepe isn't on the shelf. Deborah and Mongo are using him to prop their screen door open. <laughs> A line that Tony can't help but chuckle at. <laughs> right. Dusty fawns over the toughness of his fellow Texican, which I guess is what he calls people from Texas. <laughs> and he says that Mongo possesses a meanness only seen every 10 or 20 years in a man. What? Yeah. I guess he thinks that every like couple decades, a man is born with incredible meanness. <laughs> it's like a continuing cycle throughout human history. <laughs> and the current mean man <laughs> is Steve Mongo McMichael. The mean man with the heel dog. <laughs> it's like the lore of like a candy man sequel or like it's just so strange <laughs> it's like every 20 years there's a comet and also a heel is born <laughs> are they connected who knows <laughs> at the bell gomez approaches approaches mongo in the corner mongo fights out with chops before whipping gomez back into the corner for more chops mongo whips gomez into the opposite corner strikes a three-point stance and hits a corner clothesline Mongo talks trash that fires Gomez up, and Joe hits some punches before whipping Mongo into the ropes for something. They just awkwardly collide into each other. Mm-hmm. Mongo pushes Gomez into the corner for a knee, then whips Joe into the ropes, misses an elbow, and eats a crossbody from Gomez that earns a two count. Okay, couple things I want to point out by this. <laughs> by all means. <laughs> First of all, Steve Mongo McMichael is terrible coming off the ropes. He does not have the form whatsoever coming yep. off the ropes yet. Also... I feel like this is a match that's interesting to watch because watch it with on with a with the thought that like Steve McMichael legitimately hates Joe Gomez and just doesn't want him to get offense in. Mm-hmm. Every time Joe Gomez gets offense, he like forces the offense back onto him. Like he's when he pushes him in the corner for that knee, mm-hmm. like Gomez isn't ready for it, but yeah. Mago doesn't give a fuck. He just gives him the knee. Yeah, this match is interesting, like you said, because I feel like. 
for the first few minutes that we'll go over, it's not good. Mm. And if you're really looking and you know wrestling, you can pick out little things that are bad. Yeah. But it, it, it it's kind of passable. And then in the last minute, it like falls apart and you're like, oh, well, now it's just garbage. First, I wasn't sure it's garbage. Oh, now I know. Both men get back to their feet and Mongo's lip is busted open already. They lock up and Mongo powers Gomez into a corner for chops and shoulder charges. Then they exchange some bad punches. But, and also, I think that Mongo has was busted because uh, uh, I feel like uh, that Mongo was kind of being rough at the beginning. Mm-hmm. So Gomez is like, if I'm punching him, I'm really hitting him hard. Get a receipt. Yeah. yeah, why not? Gomez blocks a Mongo attempt to drive his head into the turnbuckle and hits a couple shots on Mongo until McMichael hits the mule kick low blow because every match tonight needs a low blow. <laughs> right. Mongo stomps on the downed Gomez for a while as the announcers laugh over use of the word groin to describe the <laughs> aforementioned low blow. <laughs> Because our announcers are 12 years <laughs> they old. They seriously are. <laughs> the last thing had that whole thing, whether thwart was fart. And <laughs> if, if it was, it'd be really funny because fart is a really funny word. I mean, they're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. <but laughs> hey, no disagreement here. Mongo gets a kick on a down Gomez and then signals, it's good. Bobby claims to have always liked Mongo, and Tony points out that they have plenty of moments on tape to prove otherwise. <laughs> but Bobby claims they edited the dub. <laughs> That's what I was to say. He's this is the Donald Trump defense right here. <laughs> Heenan always says it in a way where it's like, I'm bullshitting you now. <laughs> yeah. Try yeah, to yeah. call me on it. You know what? I've always liked him. <laughs> we get a good backbreaker for Mongo that gets a two count. He settles in for a chin lock and excitedly tells the camera, Now I got him. <laughs> Gomez fights back in with elbows and Mongo locks on a sleeper hold. Gomez manages to drop down and turn it into a jawbreaker, and Mongo sells this by standing straight up, holding his jaw, and then falling straight backwards like a tree that's been chopped down. (laughs) Well, at least he's selling. It's a little bit. It's like baby steps. After some awkward grappling, Mongo gets a reverse neckbreaker for two. Mongo declares he's going to do it four horsemen style and tries for a figure four, but Gomez rolls him up for a two count. Body slam from Mongo, who then misses an elbow drop, but he stays on the offense, why not, going for a pile driver before getting back body dropped instead. Next is a baffling moment where Gomez keeps coming off the ropes and, quote, chopping McMichael on the head by just sort of tapping him lightly on the head as he goes by. (laughs) And then Mongo will sell this by wandering around completely aimlessly (laughs) so that every time... Gomez comes off the ropes and then has to run at these very strange angles to go over and tap Mongo on the head again. (laughs) They do this three consecutive times, and it's just weirder and weirder until Mongo (laughs) finally goes down. Gomez hits two bad drop kicks and tries to shoot Mongo to the ropes, but Mongo doesn't want to for some reason, so instead he just stops and shoots Gomez to the ropes. Gomez tries for a sunset flip, but it gets real fucked up, and Mongo just sits on his chest. (laughs) Randy Anderson starts to count, because he's recognizing that is a pin. Yeah, right. But Mongo stands up because it was a botch. He's not supposed to be sitting there. (laughs) Then he realizes that he probably should pretend it was a pin attempt, so he tries to sit back down. (laughs) But Gomez rolls him forward into it like a pin reversal of his own for two. Gomez comes off the ropes, but Mongo catches him and hits him with a tombstone pile driver for three. I guess that's his finisher. Mm-hmm. This was six minutes and 44 seconds, and it was bad. Also, I mean, amongst the many, many points of, like, uh, the notes to give Mongo McMichael when he comes back is the fact that he gave him uh, he gave Gomez the tombstone, 
and Gomez was really close to the ropes. Yeah. And and, and any veteran would know a guy move him out of the way so he can't put his foot on the ropes. Mm-hmm. But Mongo didn't care. He just he just covered him. Yeah, this match was a mess. Uh, in the words of Dave Meltzer, McMichael has the attitude and his wife has the look, but it was painful putting two guys who were so green out there on a pay-per-view and having them go this long, and it exposed him big time. Yes. Just terrible. Oh, that's what he said? <laughs> he ends with just, just terrible. Did he Did he give a, a rating to it? Uh, yeah, let me find it here. It, it was uh, half a star. <laughs> well, I mean, I know he's given negative before, so that's... <laughs> So. Yeah, nothing on the show actually gets a negative. I think even Tenta Bubba was like one and a half, maybe. Yeah, but that half a star. Yeah, you kind of wonder like what was the what was the good thing they did? Like they got to the ring. The tombstone looked good. Yeah, I think he has a good finisher. Yeah, with how like rough and like uh, and rough around the edges he is, I would hate to face him and be like, I'm taking a tombstone pile driver on my head from this guy. I would ju- I would oh, not yeah. be looking forward to that. Mongo leaves the ring with Deborah and the dog, whom Bobby calls their pet guard dog, Ditka. <laughs> a replay of the tombstone in the pin shows in slow motion Gomez laying with his feet under the ropes and then turning his own body a bit <laughs> and moving his legs because Mongo didn't know to do it. <laughs> and with that, we go backstage with Mean Gene Okerlund. You can just hear the seconds ticking down to the attempt of the hostile takeover. With that in mind, we go to Mean Gene. I'm joined once again by Miss Elizabeth. I'm joined by woman. Uh, please, you distract me. I can't do a job as a professional if you're going to constantly do that to me. Ric Flair, you've got to have other things on your mind this evening. An opportunity of gaining, yet as I said earlier, another trophy for your large trophy you case. You can never have enough trophies in life. Now, Mongo did it once. The Nature Boy will do it twice, and then Double A and the Crippler will take down the Devil and the Giant, and tomorrow night at Nitro, woo, I will be a man with a U.S. Championship and a World Heavyweight Championship, Mean Gene, La Cucaracha, woo, brother, it's Bash at the Beach, and we are here in Daytona to stop. Woo! And profile. Take a look at yes. what's not south of the border, brother, but right here in Daytona. Elizabeth, I'm very Woo! curious. Uh, what Conan, kind of a... They say that you're a man with a thousand holds. Tonight, brother, you got to meet a man that has unlimited knowledge of the greatest sport in the world. Right, Mean Gene? Do you, do, do you mind if I talk to the ladies? Don't mind at all, I brother. would assume across the street at that big, large uh, hotel overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, uh, Elizabeth, you're going to be throwing a little party. I know you've got some extra money <laughs> in your pockets these days. Oh, absolutely. There's going to be a <laughs> great big party. Great big, a great big party? Yeah. <laughs> is it something that I should be included in? Oh, I think a uh, woman would like that. Woman, is that oh, true? Yes, I would. I'd have Liz tap into that big source of money she's got so we can have a private party, Gene. A, 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 a pri- private party? Yes, yes. I have no idea what you're talking about. Please, mean Gene, don't embarrass me. Let me make reference to one more point. Macho man, we know you're focused. We know you've got great plans for later tonight. But macho, never stop looking at that camera. Never stop, stop thinking, wondering, and praying that someday, woo, 
the lovely one could be back home because, brother, it's never going to happen. Woo! I think, uh, Ric Flair, you have said it all, as they say in the beer commercial. My friend, not only said it all, done it all. Woo! Conan, grab your best hold, kid. Nature boy, coming your way. Woo! You know, woman, if anything, you know, I've, I'm, I've got a commitment elsewhere, but uh, I must say, if anything were to happen, you've been very, very kind to me, very attractive. I just don't particularly care for the people that you hang around with these days. Is that true? Well, I just don't believe that, Gene. I believe you have it bad for me, and you don't care who I hang with or what I do. Isn't that right, darling? Mean Gene, Excuse bottom me. line is, woman makes one more advance towards you, you won't be able to go back to Sarasota. You'll be across the street on the penthouse with the nature bar and the girls partying in Daytona. Woo! All night long. Tell him, Mean Gene, Conan, we're fixing Thank to you. Lock that aisle. In addition to wrestling, Woo! we're going to have a little pole vaulting competition here. Let's get you back up to the ring for more action. Mean Gene is in the locker room with Miss Elizabeth, Ric Flair, and Woman. Liz is in a pink dress to go with Flair's gorgeous pink robe. My favorite Flair robe, as we all know. <laughs> Woman is wearing a white sleeveless dress that looks like what a sexy bride would wear at her sexy wedding. <laughs> but she is also tanned to the color of old shoe leather. Yeah. it's, it's just, She, like, fell asleep in the tanning bed or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Gene introduces the group and is nearly hypnotized by woman before snapping out of it and castigating her for being so darn attractive. <laughs> you. <laughs> he asks Flair about getting another trophy for his trophy case, but Flair doesn't even let him finish the question before shouting that he's going to get the U.S. title and then Arn and Benoit will earn him a heavyweight title shot on tomorrow's Nitro where he's going to recapture the world title. Then he sings La Cucaracha because his opponent is Mexican. Or at least because he thinks his opponent's Mexican. He's actually <laughs> right. Cuban-Puerto Rican and raised in Florida. But I think it's all the same to Flair. Right. <laughs> Gene nearly loses it as Flair bleats that they're in Daytona Beach to style and profile. Flair sings La Cucaracha again. And Gene tries to ask something, but Flair isn't interested. And says, <laughs> instead, says that Conan may be the man of a thousand holds. Which, which not. No, he's not that at all. <laughs> But tonight, he's facing a man with unlimited knowledge of the greatest sport there is. Gene asks Liz if there's going to be a big party at her hotel thanks to all the extra money. Yes, Liz says, <laughs> there's going to be a great big party. <laughs> Gene asks if he, if he should be invited, and Liz actually has a decent response to this, yeah. uh, saying that uh, woman would like it if Gene were invited. I think woman would like it. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Why haven't, why haven't we done this in the first place? I don't know. <laughs> Woman agrees, saying she wants to get enough money for her to have a private party with Gene. And that's very confusing because it sounds to me like she's saying to Gene that she wants to pay him a bunch of money to fuck him. <laughs> like, normally it would be the opposite. It'd be the pervy old guy being like, well, what if I get enough money for a private party for the two of us? <laughs> right. It's like, how about I give you a bunch of money and we bone? <laughs> right. What, like... You don't have to give Gene money to bone you, woman. He'll do it. It's fine. <laughs> Gene's response is amazing as he goes, P -p 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 private party? <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> but then he snaps out of it and says he has no idea what she's talking about and asks her not to embarrass him. <laughs> Too late. He's he's like caught in this weird thing where he wants to bone her, but he also wants to slut shame her. <laughs> like he's really not sure which. 
he he wants it both ways. Flair then decides to address the Macho Man for some reason. <laughs> he wants Macho to never stop looking at the camera, which is uh, I think he means TV, but he says camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and praying that Liz will come home because it's never going to happen. Jesus, actually, dude. Actually, he says, it's never going to happen. Because uh, today he's like, I'm going to sing everything I say. Like, someone's put it as, like, a challenge to him. <laughs> okay, you have to get through this promo, but you have to sing every reply you have. Directing his attention back to Conan. <laughs> <laughs> he says he... <laughs> Conan! Conan! <laughs> Conan! He says he better grab his best hold because the nature boy is coming his way. Gene tells woman he really appreciates her affection, but he doesn't like the company she keeps. Woman doesn't believe him, and she thinks he has it bad for her, and doesn't care who she hangs out with or what she does. And suddenly, I'm wondering if the relationship between Okerlund and woman is the most interesting dynamic in WCW. Right. Or is it Sting and Lex? (laughs) (laughs) Both of them equally want a bone, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Gene nearly drops the mic He does like an incredible job of dropping it And then catching it Yeah, Really really smooth mm-hmm. And the nature boy shouts some more stuff And then Gene finishes by saying In addition to wrestling There's going to be pole vaulting competition at their party Because <laughs> boners <laughs> Right. So many boners <laughs> I can't believe he snuck that Into the pay per view <laughs> That's incredible he, He's all about like those little jokes That like maybe not everyone's going to get it he just says it so straight faced that you're almost like, oh, I guess uh, their parties they they play, have a they, they, they have can, a pole vaulting yeah, contest. They're oh. athletes, I guess. So. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, I guess. In the arena, Conan makes his entrance with some sort of military-like jacket with a pollets and big buttons on it. Uh, it also has AAA right in the breast of it, which is kind of cool that he's getting a little shout out for mm-hmm. you know kind of his main promotion on there. Yeah, and and also it's just like I don't remember what his theme music was before. But this is the more generic version of his music. <laughs> it's like it's a most like right. I can't even remember what it is right now. It's a most I, forgettable. I can't think of it either. Yeah. They still describe him as the Mexican heavyweight champion. Flair and the ladies are out next and Flair makes the ladies turn as he does often and then turns himself because he's become distracted by his own entrance video. <laughs> he's just like, I'm so great. Look at all these moves I can do. Also, once again, it's like he turns and it gets to the point where he gets a camera to look at it, and it's him with the figure four on Macho Man because he never will stop <laughs> with the Macho Man. On his way down to the aisle, a girl yells for him and reaches towards him. He stops and kind of considers her, but she looks like she might be 16, so he smartly just keeps going to the <laughs> ring. He, like, looks at her and is like, oh, maybe, and then he's like, oh, wait, no, no nope, <laughs> keep <laughs> but, walking. But really, he filed that away for later. <laughs> He definitely sent, like, Benoit out there to get her backstage. <laughs> That's totally Benoit's job. <laughs> but then then also, like, by the time he turns around and gets, starts heading back to the ring, he's, like, forgotten about the entrance, and so the fireworks go off again, and he's, like, surprised by it. The bell rings. Even though Flair and Conan are both still holding their extra entrance gear, Liz and Woman are still in the ring, and Nick Patrick is currently holding up the U.S. title belt. <laughs> <laughs> Someone wants this show to get on the fucking road. Yeah. By the way, I just wanted to note that the fact that uh, Conan has stopped bringing that really shitty Mexican title with him. Yeah, they just refer to it now, but they yeah. don't show it. Maybe because he lost whatever belt that really is. Whatever $10 belt he had with him. 
Because I just noticed that because they mentioned him being a Mexican heavyweight champion yeah. and how he's like always dragging this really awful belt when he has like a gorgeous United States championship already. Mm-hmm. So he gets a point for that. Flair, despite arguably being a heel, shakes Conan's hand to start the match. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of stretch out on the ropes. Then Flair fakes locking up and struts and woos. <laughs> as soon as Conan gets him off, it's like just a punch. Tony goes, immediately, woman is screaming. Mm-hmm. And he's right, because immediately she is screaming, and she pretty much never stops. Yeah, and also, <laughs> Tony sounds annoyed by it, too. He should be. He's closer <laughs> to it than we... Like, I wouldn't oh, want to be in the same true. building, you know? It's That's true. <laughs> but it's like, upon, like, as soon as he hears it, he's like, ah, oh, here we go. More screaming. Flair slaps Conan, and when he gets his receipt, he actually bumps for a very weak slap. <laughs> and honestly, that's the kind of selling by Flair that I, I got to say, it really gets yourself over, not your opponent. Like, yeah. it's the type of selling that's all about you, and it's very much um, Flair can do that, HBK can do that, certainly <laughs> HBAK can do that. There's just, It's just, I don't know, it was, it was unnecessary. Woman reacts by to the slap as if Flair has been shot to death in front of her. <laughs> I, this is also um, either Tony or Bobby suggests that no one has ever done that to Ric Flair. <laughs> no one's ever slapped him. Or or like th- has knocked him over with like a slapper or a punch right, or right. something like that. When not only do all wrestlers do that, but also some referees do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's that's just, true. It's just there's nothing further from the truth of that statement. Conan tries to get the crowd to cheer him, uh, but he's facing Ric Flair, and so they just boo. Yeah. They're just like, (laughs) fuck you, no. Conan puts Flair in the surfboard, but no way is the Nature Boy going all the way up for that shit. Yeah. He is, uh, I believe, 47 years old as of this pay-per-view, so he just goes back onto his knees, which still kind of looks like a decent submission, especially when Conan gets his foot against uh, Mm -hmm. the Nature Boy's back. Yeah, and and that would, I think it would have been fine, Except that, like, Heenan goes out of his way to undersell that being effective. Tony says we may see a submission victory a mere six minutes into this match, and I can't believe that this match is six minutes old already because nothing has happened. Right. How is... Maybe he's off on the time, I don't know, but, like, if it's been six minutes already, that's just baffling because I've I've written down, like, four moves. Yeah. Conan gets a gorilla press. Then they get a little miscommunication as Conan chops Flair in the corner and then goes to whip him, but Flair just says something into his ear, and they stay in the corner for more chopping back and forth instead. Hmm. And it's not, like, that noticeable, but it just kind of shows how these two are are oil and water. It's not that either of them are bad. Certainly, Ric Flair is not bad. He's one of the greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. And I think Conan... I don't know a lot about him. You know, I know you don't have a super high opinion of him, but he's he's not Mongo. Right. You know? I think the problem is that these two together just does not work. If you look at Conan's body work from WCW up to this point, yeah. he just is not very willing to sell. Sure. And so if you're working with someone that you haven't worked with and also are unwilling to take their offense, it just is going to make for a terrible dynamic. And also paired with the fact that like when if Conan's not on TV, he's not wrestling with them. He's wrestling in AAA mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. So... I would su- I would suggest this is literally the first time these guys have ever faced each other. Right. It's not like they're working it out on house shows or anything yeah. like that. You're absolutely right. Another gorilla press from Conan and a pair of clotheslines sends Flair to the outside. Conan steps over the ropes and takes a running leap from the apron and jumps down onto Flair and Liz, which 
kind of shocked me. Uh, it seemed planned mm-hmm. because Liz kept looking to the apron yeah. to see like when was Conan going to jump at her. Yeah. She seems terrified. Right. It's just it's so surprising to me because Liz never gets involved physically. Like I can I can't think of another time where she was like a dude jumped on her. That's that's crazy to me, you know. If she gets involved, she she's doing something to another wrestler. Yeah, she's she's usually the one distracting what woman is doing something. She, yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. getting a low blow or something like that or spraying something, but or or like handing over the high heel shoe. But I think it's a very stupid spot to have a guy Conan size jumping yeah. from the apron down onto the floor into a woman Liz's size. That just seems needlessly dangerous. Right. She's and, and the announcers, despite the fact that she's a heel and they kind of despise her, the announcers are like, she's OK. She's OK. Like they're reassuring themselves like, <laughs> right. like, OK, OK, Liz is fine. Right. OK. Yeah. <laughs> She shouldn't be out there in the first place, says Dusty, and I agree, though probably for different reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> the announcers also claim that Flair pulled her in the way, which he definitely didn't, but I wonder if he was supposed to. Yeah. Flair and Liz walk to the other side of the ring. Conan heads the top rope to dive onto them again, but Woman shakes the bottom rope, and somehow <laughs> this is enough to make Conan fall down on the top rope. <laughs> right. <laughs> And he, like, flips over, too. Jesus. (laughs) And he lays there like he was knocked unconscious as well. (laughs) Woman gets in the ring and gives Conan a big old kick in the dick. (laughs) So here's your low blow for this match. We we took a little break in recording so we could have some lunch, and I was upstairs, and we actually had this match replaying, and this kick in the dick is... I heard you from upstairs. You just went, oh! (laughs) It is a powerful (laughs) kick. And I'll... (laughs) And I, I just watched it yesterday, too. It had the same effect. And I was saying, like, it, there's like there's a mini buildup going on here because of Conan mentioning that he was going to clothesline the women. Mm-hmm. And now Conan just, like, attacked one of the women and uh, attacked Elizabeth, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so woman hears these threats, sees this, and now I feel like she has vindication to, like, do something about it to kind of... Uh, even the score. So when she comes in the ring, she just kicks the shit out of his dick. <laughs> and, and not only that, but the fans go nuts for it. No, I didn't mean that yeah. pun there. <laughs> oh. Oh. Yeah. And then, of course, it, Conan sells it really weird by flying backwards yeah. when he should just, like, crumple down because his dick is destroyed. Heenan pretends not to have seen the low blow because, quote, his digital scope is off. Tony says that after that kick, Conan's digital scope is fuzzy, too. And you can hear Bobby practically do a spit take at how funny he thinks that is. Conan once again calls for cheers, apparently failing to notice that the crowd just popped for him getting nailed in the balls. Right. <laughs> he's, he's tired, though. Remember, he's tired. He's very, he's tight, tight. <laughs> Liz distracts the ref so woman can attack the eyes of Conan on the opposite side of the ring. A delayed vertical suplex by Flair gets several two counts. Oh, that was that was also uh, when Elizabeth was distracting, so Flair could just toss Conan over the top rope. Yeah, and this was another thing where they're trying to do more cheating, where woman's supposed to be holding the rope, but uh, she's not pulling it down whatsoever. But the thoughts there. Flair then works an eternal chin lock uh, before <laughs> hitting some punches and chops. Flair uh, then powders to the outside, and Conan goes for a baseball slide thinks the better of it, and bounces off the ropes, rolling backwards. He then points at his brain, like deciding not to do a baseball slide for 
mm-hmm. no reason that I can figure out was like a genius decision. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why he pulled back on the baseball slide, and then he's like, "Ha ha! I outthought you." <laughs> it's it's weird. I can change my mind on things. <laughs> a back body drop attempt by Flair is reversed into a sunset flip by Conan, but Flair stays upright and punches Conan in the head. Flair goes for the figure four, but Conan attempts a small package a spot that we already just saw in the Mongo Gomez fight right before this, and just like in that match, it got a two count. <laughs> uh, also, so this is two matches in a row with figure fours into small packages, mm-hmm. and in the match before the Gomez-Mongo uh, match, yeah, it was the Disco Inferno match, and he turned a Texas Cloverleaf into a small package. So they've essentially done the same spot three matches in a row. <laughs> And and low blows in every matches mm-hmm. and two matches use tape and scissors. I don't know. Like I know in WWF, your match has an agent, like a producer that you work with. The guys work through the spots. The agent usually gives you the finish. And if you want their help, they're guys like Dean Malenko and Arn Anderson talking in, in current terms. Yeah. And they just sort of keep everything cohesive throughout the show. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of their job to make sure like every match doesn't have the exact same spots in it. Right. I don't know if WCW just didn't have that level of communication. If it was just you and you are in a match, you're winning, and then you figure out everything else. Yeah. I don't know how they put these together, but clearly there's there needs to be some kind of communication amongst these people in all these different matches to make sure they're not doing the same shit all the time. Right. And, and the thing is, like, with the idea that Bischoff is really busy, like, backstage and stuff like that, which is like why why isn't that like affecting it in a positive way? But you realize he's just doing all this work for the last match. Right. Conan gets a sloppy drop toe hold, partially Flair's fault because Flair really early starts turning onto his back because Conan's about to put on a figure four. Oh. And Flair's just anticipating it too much and it makes the whole sequence very, very sloppy. Mm-hmm. They're standing in Daytona Beach, cries Tony, as virtually every fan on camera is sitting down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Flair makes it to the ropes and Conan suplexes him back into the ring for two. Conan goes for a corner charge, but, el- but Flair elbows him. Flair heads to the top rope so Conan can throw him off, but Conan takes an eternity to get there. So Flair looks like a complete boob just standing on the top rope forever. (laughs) Conan gets a bulldog that makes Stings look great by comparison, and it gets a two count. (laughs) Conan shoots Flair off the ropes, runs after him, and does an unnecessary somersault into a clothesline for two. (laughs) Like, your somersault is no more powerful, and you just made yourself more tired. (laughs) I I could just tell by your play-by-play that you want this match to end. Too. I hated this match. We'll get. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little more later. But yeah, th- I really hated this match. Conan blocks a hip toss and turns it into a pin, but the ref is distracted by Liz in the apron. Conan gets up and Flair whips him into the corner, but Conan uses the ropes to leapfrog as Flair charges. Flair hits chops in a weird backbreaker that I think was Flair going for an atomic drop that Conan thought was a backbreaker, so he sold it kind of oddly. This sends Conan into the ropes, where Woman nails him with the high heel, weakly and slowly. Right. This takes forever. Liz uh, must have had time to like give the ref her doctoral thesis on the deforestation effects on indigenous populations of the Amazon <laughs> in the amount of time. Which is something that she's passionate about. <laughs> oh, by she's the way. so passionate. <laughs> Conan sells the heel to the head like death, mm-hmm. and that's the finish as Flair gets his feet in the top ropes for the one, two, three. He immediately says something to Conan, which I assume is just like, thanks, kid. (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Flair, after 15 minutes, 
15 and a half minutes of action mm-hmm. is once again the U.S. champ. Dave Meltzer gave that two and a half stars. I give it. I. It's tough because, like, technically it was better than some of the other, like, really low-rated matches. But it just yeah. it was so long, mm-hmm. and I just could not wait for it to end. I thought it was so boring. Yeah. These two had no chemistry together. I had no interest in Flair becoming the U.S. champion. Mm-hmm. There was no heat to this rivalry. This was literally a match that was just announced on Saturday night when they were, like, going through the matches on the pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the case of a lot of the matches tonight. Yeah. It was just something that was just announced on Saturday night. All of a sudden, this is one of the matches. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I really wish this wasn't even on the card. What would you think? I feel like this kind of projects not maybe either the outcome for the tag team match or the outcome for if, if the horsemen win the world tell match the next night. Because Flair is U.S. champion, he, he's not going to also win the the world title the next right, night. Right. Anything like that that kind of like gives away a result is always is like a negative in my book. I mean, these two just don't they just don't have a lot of chemistry with each other. If it gets to the point where Ric Flair is like losing his timing, yeah, you, you know something's going amiss. Like you're talking about him messing up a drop toehold. Ric Flair messing up a drop toehold is like. A rarity. Sure. And it was like also really overbooked. The referee was getting distracted for long time periods. You know, it gets the belt onto Flair, so it has something for Flair to do for the foreseeable future. So I think there's a positive result out of it, but we really did not get there very gracefully. All right. According to Kevin Sullivan, Ric Flair hated being U.S. champion. <laughs> uh, and let's let's read this quote here from Ric Flair's book. And I... I don't have the name of it in front of me. Was it To Be The Man? Probably. I mean, just sounds like what he named his <laughs> <Right>. book, right? <laughs> Quote, The moment Nash arrived from the WWF, he told me how much he hoped that we could work together, but I felt Bischoff was always trying to keep us apart. I'd figured out that he wanted everyone to be at odds. Hogan and Savage on one side, Luger and Sting on another, Hall and Nash on another, Arn and myself on another. No matter what Bischoff claims, he used me to get Hogan and Savage. After that, I was a bit player to him. Eric knew that if he used me as a top guy, nobody could get over me. Hogan knew it, too. The book also quotes Arn Anderson as saying, quote, At different times, the people who had control over WCW wouldn't nurture Rick and use him as an asset. They felt no one else would be able to get over him unless they killed him, unless they just shoved him so far down that someone might pass him by. Now, if those quotes seem overly dramatic or conspiratorial, consider that Kevin Sullivan admits on his kayfabe commentaries timeline of 1996 uh, that he booked this match and Flair's win to make it clear to Hogan that Flair was out of the way as part of convincing Hogan some things that we'll talk about later. Wow. So he, he says basically he put Flair lower on the card as a way of just saying like, here, he's out of your way. Because... It was just three weeks ago that the Horsemen reformed at Great American Bash, and the crowd went nuts. The Horsemen yes. were the focus of this promotion. Mm-hmm. That's just Hogan for for something like that to just bother him or make him feel insecure. The uh, I mean, never mind the fact that he, you know, is coming in is going to be part of the biggest angle he could possibly dream of. Yep. He also he still has to be scared of Ric Flair the whole time. Yeah, if there's already a cool kind of pseudo heel 
faction that's the top like he needs to he needs to cut their knees off now yeah before he comes in it's it's crazy mm-hmm. this was flair's sixth reign as u.s champion the last being when he lost the title on january 27th 1981 <laughs> to roddy piper <laughs> nick patrick hands the title to woman who delivers it to flair i don't know how all three of them are going to wear the belt quips dusty that's, <laughs> that's a good line yeah it is Flair dances in the aisle, and Tony sends us backstage with me and Gene, who is standing in front of a door marked Restricted Area. Uh-oh. Dusty Rhodes, yourself, because I have been, I hate to say this, I've been eavesdropping, and behind these doors are the outsiders, and apparently they have been joined by a third man. Let's try to get out here. I must confide in you, this third man's voice sounds somewhat familiar, but it's muffled, and I can't really identify it. It rings uh, in the back of my mind, but who it is, I really don't know. That's the question that people have been asking for a long, long time. Tonight, here at the Bash of the Beach, they are going to find out who will be joining these outsiders to meet Lex Luger, Sting, and the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Tony, I said I wanted you to stand by. All of this speculation, everything that we've heard in recent weeks, the chatter, the names that have popped up from time to time, from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour. Tony, do you have any idea who might be the third man joining the Outsiders tonight. Uh, Gene, I I don't have an idea. Have you heard? Let me ask you this. You've heard the voice. Give me a a guess. Well, it's so muffled that I really can't identify it, but it's something that springs in the subconscious. So it's somebody that you obviously... It's somebody that we've seen, somebody that we've heard before. Gene, Gene, Bobby Heenan. Yeah. Offer offer the the, the police there some cash. See if they'll talk. See if they saw who went in the door. Excuse me, officer. Did, Did you see anybody... Hey, wait a minute, Heenan. Don't get me involved in one of, one of your scams. Uh, Gene, do you know anything about Eric Bischoff? As not a thing. We have not heard anything. We haven't heard a word, not even a telephone call. I know you've requested a telephone call. If he could have seen the broadcast earlier tonight, if he's watching the pay-per-view, you certainly think he would have got back to us. Absolutely. But absolutely nothing. Gene, ask him. Br- bribe them. I'll offer them something. Hey, Heenan, Give him a box of donuts. Off, Gene, we appreciate your work back there. I- I'm sorry about that. Okay. I'll get back. I could make him talk. All right. Me and Gene Oakland talking... Why don't you go back there? Go uh, back I'm, there I'm and do it. Here. I'm not going anywhere near that dressing room door. Okay. Here we go. Uh-oh. They don't fade the arena audio down quickly enough, so at first Gene is speaking really quietly, but all you can hear is Flair, who is yelling at a camera that he thinks oh. is still showing him. <laughs> Gene says that he's been dropping eaves on the outsiders, who have been joined in their locker room by a third man. Gene recognizes the voice, but he can't quite place it because it's so muffled. This is hilarious if you consider who the third man is yes. and how distinctive his speech pattern is yep. and that Gene's been working with him since, like, the early 80s. <laughs> right. And also pretty funny, again, considering that Gene was a guy who just a couple hours ago on the pre-show claimed to already have a good idea who the third man was. Right. <laughs> He's such a carny. <laughs> Unless his good idea was, like, way off or something, like, he was pretty sure it was Stevie Ray. Gene decides to ask Shivani if he has any idea who the third man is. Tony has been calling the show for two hours now, so this is a dumb fucking question. <laughs> right. But imagine, just imagine if Tony had known. Like, if all of a sudden, he, if Gene was like, Tony, do you know? And he was like, yeah, I figured it out. It's uh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Tony basically says to Gene, well, you just heard his voice. Who the fuck is he? <laughs> right. Only he doesn't use that language. Right. Gene again says it was muffled, but it's triggering some sense memory in his subconscious. (laughs) 
Bobby suggests on a nationally broadcast show that Gene commits a crime by bribing the cops to see if they saw anyone go into the room. Right. And Gene's just like, no, I'm not doing that. Well, well he does the, the, hey, how about that? Hey, wait a yeah. minute. Yeah, well, the weird thing is he starts to ask them, just like, did you see anyone go in there? And then he's like, wait a minute. Yeah. But he didn't try to bribe them. He just <laughs> asked them a legitimate question, which he's right. perfectly free to do. Unless that's like his typical bribing technique is just to get the information first <laughs> and then bribe And then him. give money. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Here's $50. <laughs> right. Uh, Oakland also hasn't heard anything about the whereabouts of Eric Bischoff. The sweet, sweet guitar of the Four Horsemen's theme plays, and out comes the enforcer Arn Anderson and the crippler Chris Benoit. They're halfway down the aisle when they're attacked from behind by Kevin Sullivan and the Giant, who have Jimmy Hart in tow. They brawl on their way to the ring, with Sullivan hitting Arn with a chair. We cut to the Giant beating on Benoit when he's suddenly nailed in the back by the Halliburton case by Mongo. Giant no-sells, and Mongo hightails it to the back. Giant chases him, you know, back behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. This leaves Sullivan alone at ringside with Benoit and Anderson, who take advantage with a beatdown on the Taskmaster. Arn eventually rolls Sullivan in the ring, and the Taskmaster and Benoit chop each other in the corner, and the bell sounds to start the match. Even though Giant's nowhere to be found. Giant's nowhere to be found. A guy's already been hit with a chair. They're uh-huh. in the middle of fighting. Yeah. This is supposed to be a legitimate sport, and they're <laughs> like, all right, good enough. <laughs> right. I'm going to allow this. After the bell sounds, the Giant pretty soon returns to ringside, having given up on Mongo. I mentioned earlier that Shivani thought that it might be Sting who was the third man. Uh, his other theory was that it was the giant because he thought when the giant ran off chasing Mongo that we just wouldn't see him for the rest of this match. And then mm-hmm. that would kind of set up the surprise of him coming out as the third man oh, later. Oh, oh, you meant like uh, that Tony Shivani, not the commentator, the, the just the individual. Tony Shivani, the man. Yeah. Yeah. In his head. He, he Yeah. So he doesn't share this with us on the show. This is something he talked about on his podcast. Arn and Benoit tag in and out, mostly staying on offense on Sullivan. There's a weird stretch of Sullivan and Benoit just grappling on the mat like the worst MMA you've ever seen. Yeah. They're not doing moves. They're not punching. They're just rolling around on the mat, kind of like trying to grapple. It's I don't know what they're going for. Mm-hmm. Sullivan is definitely the baby face in peril here, following all the weak link that's uh, been talked about leading to the match. Yeah. They're just trying to keep him from the giant... And I guess it makes sense. Like, you're never going to make Sullivan a sympathetic baby face, but the crowd is going to want the giant to come in because he's a freak show and it's fun to watch him. Yes. So I guess the idea is that they're, that's what the crowd wants and the horsemen are being heels by, like, denying the crowd that release of seeing the giant come in. Mm-hmm. Sullivan, despite being, like, squashed two-on-one for most of the match, does not sell, like, at all. <laughs> he does not care that he's getting beat this of whole time. Course, of course he doesn't. Arn is brawling with Sullivan, and they get too close to the Giant, and the Giant levels Arn. The Taskmaster gets a two-count, broken up by Benoit. Benoit gets Sullivan up on the top turnbuckle and climbs up for a superplex, or maybe the ten punches in the corner spot, but the Giant comes into the ring, so Benoit goes for a twisting crossbody on the Giant instead. Giant catches him, and Arn comes in. The Giant just dumps Benoit onto Arn, and the horsemen crash to the ground. <laughs> Arn gets up and just stays like he's the legal man, despite the fact that there's no tag. He came in just to save Benoit a second ago. Yeah. But Jimmy Jett, the referee, is going to allow this. I'm going to allow this. More in and out from the horsemen, and Sullivan is not really selling any of it. Eventually, Sullivan nails a low blow on Arn because, Ah, of course. There we go. Benoit cuts off Sullivan, though, before he can tag in the giant. We get more of the same until the horsemen try to set up for a spike pile driver, 
with Arn holding Sullivan in like a pile driver position mm-hmm. and Benoit climbing up to the top rope. But Sullivan manages to get to the ground and turn this into a monkey flip where he sends Arn forward into Benoit, oh. who's standing on the top turnbuckle. Okay. But it's so, so slow because yeah. Sullivan and Arn are both going to be like retired within six to nine months or so of the yeah. show. Uh, so they're just like not in a position to be doing a monkey flip minutes into a match. They're, <laughs> right. It's not happening. It's very <laughs> slow and awkward. Of course, this means that Benoit gets hit from the top rope. He lands on his crotch. <laughs> it's the night of a thousand crotches. <laughs> Taskmaster, <laughs> Taskmaster tags in the giant who tries to run wild on the horseman, but Arn and Benoit just leave the ring. Eventually, Arn rolls back in and the giant follows, but Benoit and Sullivan brawl up the entrance aisle. Giant hits a big boot and a suplex on Arn in the ring as Benoit and Sullivan head up the stairs to the announce area. They're like, they're not next to the ring. They're on a platform kind of off to the side of the entrance area, but it's a raised platform. Yeah. Uh, so they start on the, they start on the steps up to the announce area. It's, it's actually pretty funny that, that they can get up to the announce area so easily as we've spent weeks hearing about all the beefed up security specifically yeah. protecting the announcers. Right. Sullivan slams Benoit on the floor of the announce platform as on split screen the giant calls for and hits a choke slam on Arn Anderson for the victory. So this is again a little more of the dungeon uh, being cooled off just three weeks after being formed with Mongo. And becoming this like huge yeah, the horseman. Yeah, what'd I say? The dungeon? Dungeon, yep. <sighs> it's been a long episode. Yeah. <laughs> the bell rings and the dungeon is victorious. Taskmaster leaves the broadcast area, but Benoit dive tackles Sullivan from the elevated announce platform onto the beach set in a great spot as <laughs> Benoit essentially flies onto Sullivan from like off camera. Yeah. It's it's amazing. It's just funny the way that like Sullivan's walking and then from out of nowhere Benoit comes from the top <laughs> of your screen. Right. The two men are now coated in sand as Benoit leads Sullivan back to the ring and you can see the giant walk by them on his way to the back, oblivious to all of this despite being about 15 feet away. Yeah. Benoit stops to hit Sullivan with a chair. Benoit lifts Sullivan onto the top turnbuckle and hits a second rope side suplex. Woman, who I'd like to remind you is Kevin Sullivan's real-life wife, even though this is not acknowledged in any way previously or tonight, comes out to the ring. Benoit continues to stomp Sullivan, and Woman begs him to stop, saying that Benoit is going to hurt him. Benoit keeps stomping Sullivan as Woman begs for mercy. Shivani says, uh, on his podcast, so this is Shivani nowadays, okay. says that they didn't mention the relationship between Sullivan and Woman because they had zero direction or notice of what was going to happen. Oh. So this was just complete, you know, they were as surprised as anyone, and they had no idea what to say about it. Yeah. The giant hustles back to the ring, and Benoit nonchalantly steps outside. Hart checks on Sullivan, and the giant picks him up and tosses him over his shoulder like a sack of potatoes. Mm-hmm. Between all that talk about him being the weak link and this emasculating moment of his little <laughs> baby body being right. carried out over the giant's shoulder, <laughs> one has to speculate that Sullivan may be on his way out, which is something that Meltzer has previously reported. Uh, that once his program with Benoit ends, he's going to end his in-ring career. Oh, sure. So certainly his character is not looking real strong <laughs> after <laughs> right. this one. Right. Giant carries Sullivan all the way to the back. The dungeon music plays, and we see some replays. As a production assistant sweeps sand out of the ring, Tony introduces us to a video package on the hostile takeover match. So much has been said, written, and talked about. So many unexpected occurrences have happened 
over the past couple of weeks and the past couple of months that we don't know where to start. Tony, everyone's standing. But we do know where to end. It will end tonight. Right here, baby. The hostile takeover. I've never looked forward to a match like this before in my life. The hostile takeover, will it happen? Let's take a special look. Uh, I would play a clip, but there's really no audio. It's just a song. Yeah. Uh, and we see, so we hear like 90s kind of guitar music, and it's very 90s montage of Hall and Nash's antics along with fake news headlines yeah. about what's been going on. <laughs> uh, I'll just read some of the ones that I transcribed. So, so keep in mind, these are ostensibly like a legitimate mainstream news organization is writing these headlines. Okay. A hostile takeover underway in WCW. Oh, no. Sting confronts Outsider. <laughs> The man shows up with a big surprise. The man? Yeah, that's how they're referring to Hall, I guess. <laughs> Daring duo has not divulged man number three. I guess this time it was the Gotham Gazette. I was about to say. <laughs> the Daring duo. Who is the third guy? <laughs> this is Pulitzer winning shit here. Bischoff is attacked. Stop the outsiders. <laughs> I guess that one's an editorial. <laughs> this one's good. There's a lot of speculation regarding man number three. <laughs> That's how is that news? And of course, all wrestlers have banded together. <laughs> That's so ah, uh, I love all of those. They're all great. Here we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen. Your attention, please. Tonight here at the 1996 WCW Bash at the Beach, an event like no other in the history of professional wrestling is about to take place. A group of outsiders have threatened the sanctity of the WCW with a hostile takeover. A lottery has been held among the great superstars of world championship wrestling, and three men have been selected to defend the honor and possibly the very existence of the WCW. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready? Damn right we are. WCW fans, are you ready? That's good. For the thousands in attendance here at ringside and the millions watching around the world on television, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Yes, sir, baby. Boy, have I got butterflies. Yeah, brain. I know, you know, this was like the verdict on the OJ case. Remember how everybody's watching that on the sets? Couldn't get their eyes Ladies off Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, let me introduce the man whose plan and goal is to take over the WCW with force and hostility. We were told there would be three of these interlopers, and I must apologize, as I have been informed, and as you can see, there are only two. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the So there's only two of them. Yeah, what's he talking about? What? There's only two of them. They, they got to deal their hands sooner or later. 
Well, they got to deal with it right now. It has, it has to be done right, right now. Ladies and gentlemen, we have police everywhere. We have security everywhere. We have no, I have no idea what's going to happen next. There's an obvious electricity in the building at the conclusion of the video. Michael Buffer is in the ring, and he reads his notes introducing the match. He explains that the lottery, which formed Team WCW, before hitting all of his normal catchphrases. Mm -hmm. The same music from the montage we just watched plays, and out comes Hall and Nash to a big pop that settles into a mixture of cheers and boos. Nash is in essentially his WWF gear, sans the, I think he wore one glove, or do you wear two gloves? As Diesel. Um, well, now he's not wearing any, okay. is my point. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Only uh, his gear is red and black instead of, I think it was red and white mostly as Diesel. No. I didn't watch a lot of new generation stuff. No, it was just black. Okay, so now yeah. it's red and black. Yeah. That's the kind of concession he's made to being a new character. <laughs> it also says the outsiders on it. Mm -hmm. Hall has a black vest and black trunks with dripping red blood design, and I think it's fucking cool as hell. Yes. Uh, and kind of like reading about it and hearing some other podcasts, I've heard some people say it's cheesy. I think it's cheesy in a good way. Like, I, I love the blood. Yeah. Scott Oliver Hall is 37 years old. Oliver? <laughs> yep. Born in Maryland, he was an army brat who moved frequently. He began wrestling in 1984, a year after being charged with second-degree homicide after an incident in Orlando, Florida, where an argument over a girl at a club led a man to confront Hall with a gun in the parking lot. They struggled, and Hall, in self-defense, turned the gun on his assailant and shot him in the head, killing him on the spot. The case was dropped as there was insufficient evidence to refute Hall's claims of self-defense. I mentioned the incident because I think it has a lot to do with the personal demons that Hall will deal with from now until the end of our timeline and well beyond, like yep. up to now in the present, really. Hall started wrestling in Florida, training under Dusty Rhodes, Mike Rotunda, and Barry Windham. He teamed with fellow trainee Dan Spivey, a.k.a. Waylon Mercy, uh, probably when he was most famous, at least the mm -hmm. most national exposure, and the two debuted in Jim Crockett Promotions' Charlotte-based territory as American Starship, with Hall working under the name Starship Coyote. Nice. American Starship. The team wasn't featured much, and Hall was in the AWA by 1985, where he wrestled as Magnum Scott Hall, because he kind of looks like Magnum TA, I'm guessing is where they came up with that, before becoming simply Big Scott Hall. <laughs> Hall teamed with Kurt Henning, a.k.a. Mr. Perfect, and they became AWA tag champs in 1986. After the team broke up, Hall got AWA title chances against Stan Hansen and Rick Martel. And in 1989, Vern Gagne wanted to put the championship belt on Hall, but Hall knew that the territory was sinking, and sick of Vern's bullshit and the winners here in Minnesota, he left. <laughs> the AWA was dead a year later, so good on Hall for getting out. It seems like there's a lot about Scott Hall's career where it's like, championships just were not a big deal to him. Right. And the fact that, like, we literally want to give you our biggest championship. He's like, nah, instead I'll just leave. Yeah, I think that there's something we said, like Hall and, and Nash are not marks. It's a tricky term using mark, but what I mean by that is like they're not caught up in the idea of like the prestige of their character or the championships they win. They simply approach this as a business and what's going to make them the most money. And if if like that calculation doesn't include being champion, then who cares about being champion? Whereas Brett would like a guy like Brett Hart mm. would make less money if he could be the champion more often. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to disagree about that when it comes to Kevin Nash in particular, sure. especially okay. with all the accolades he puts upon himself when he is running things. That's that's true. Um, and maybe that's maybe he changed at some point or another. But I, I tend to feel like 
that he is kind of a mark for his own character. Okay. But definitely not Scott Hall. Jim Ross brought Hall into WCW in 1989, and he appeared on the very first Great American Bash pay-per-view under his own name in the opening battle royal. After becoming a jobber, Hall left for a stint in Puerto Rico before returning to WCW in 1991 as the Diamond Stud, a cocky and vain heel who hit on pretty women in the crowd. Basically, he was doing like a Rick Rude gimmick. Yeah. He became part of Diamond Dallas Page's Diamond Mind, the two being familiar with each other from their time in the AWA. The Diamond Mind would also eventually add Vinny Vegas, a character of Kevin Nash's. Hall stuck with WCW until they had nothing for him, and he joined the WWF in 1992. Hall came to Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson with a character based on Tony Montana from the movie Scarface, and was surprised to find out that the two men were unfamiliar with the movie. (laughs) The character was named Razor by McMahon and got the surname Ramon from Tito Santana. His first major angle was a program with Randy Savage. In one of my favorite angles of all time, Razor would shockingly lose a match to the jobber The Kid on the May 17, 1993 episode of Monday Night Raw. Later that year, Razor became Intercontinental Champion for the first time. He then feuded with Shawn Michaels over the belt, including a ladder match at WrestleMania 10 that Razor won. That match was voted Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Match of the Year Award for 1994 and was the first WWF match ever to receive a five-star rating from Dave Meltzer. Razor feuded with Michaels and HBK's bodyguard Diesel, portrayed by Kevin Nash, along with the 123 Kid, and that group formed a powerful backstage alliance known as the Click. Despite his popularity as a babyface and his effectiveness as a heel, Razor tread water with the Intercontinental title, winning it four times. His final major feud came against Goldust, and the homoerotic implications of that character made Hall uncomfortable. We've already talked about his decision to leave the company over opportunity and pay issues, and McMahon's petty suspension of Hall that led him to miss WrestleMania 12. Oh, that's right. So I feel like we've already kind of covered everything with why Hall left. Yes. Kevin Nash is two days shy of his 37th birthday. He was born in Detroit, Michigan, and lost his father when he was only eight years old. Always exceptionally tall, Nash played center for the University of Tennessee Volunteers basketball team for three years, but a physical altercation with his coach and other attitude problems got him kicked off the team uh, before his senior year. Nash moved to Europe and played professional basketball until 1981 when he tore his ACL. He then had a short stint in the military police, worked at a Ford plant, and was the floor manager of an Atlanta strip club before deciding to give pro wrestling a try. Nash trained at the Power Plant, an Atlanta-based school that was not, at the time, officially affiliated with WCW, though Mm. it will be later. Uh, And his primary trainer was Jody Hamilton, a.k.a. Assassin Number 1, who happens to be the father of WCW referee Nick Patrick. Nash debuted in WCW in the fall of 1990 as one half of the Master Blasters. They were fairly successful until being squashed by the Steiners in under a minute on an episode of Worldwide that aired in early 1991. WCW dropped Nash's teammate Al Green, who we will eventually see on Nitro, but not for a very long time. Nash was then redubbed the Master Blaster Singular, but he was still not much more than a jobber. In May of 1991, Nash debuted as Oz, a baffling character who was both based on the Wizard of Oz, but he was also managed by the Great Wizard. <laughs> I could never figure out what this character was supposed to be. Uh, the Great Wizard, his manager, by the way, was Kevin Sullivan. Oz was a flop and lost to Ron Simmons on the Great American Bash of July of 1991. He then jobbed to everyone, including Brad Armstrong's Arachnaman character, 
<laughs> until January of 1992, when Nash was repackaged as Vinny Vegas, a wisecracking mobster inspired by Steve Martin's character in the 1990 movie My Blue Heaven. Later that year is when Nash joined the aforementioned Diamond Mind. Nash did nothing much of note with the remainder of his WCW run, and in 1993, he joined the WWF after Shawn Michaels saw him cracking wise on WCW and personally requested that Vince McMahon bring him in to be Shawn's bodyguard. Nash then portrayed Diesel, a sort of hybrid biker-trucker character who mostly just did what Michaels bid, uh, but began making strides of his own, first eliminating seven men in the 1994 Royal Rumble, and then winning the Intercontinental title from Clickmate Hall on an April episode of Superstars. Nash would become a double champion when he and Michaels would win the tag team belts, but this lasted less than a day when he dropped the Intercontinental title back to Razor the next day at SummerSlam 1994. Michaels and Diesel split after Survivor Series 94 with Diesel turning babyface. Three days after Survivor Series 94, Diesel squashed WWF champion Bob Backlund in eight seconds at a Madison Square Garden house show, winning his very first world title. Nash retained this title through a feud with Bret Hart and against Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 11. The day after that victory, Diesel and Michaels would reunite as a tag team, and by September they would hold every major title in the company, with Diesel as WWF champion, Michaels as Intercontinental champion, and the pair as tag champions. Though again, the double championship held up for only a day due to a technicality which returned the tag belts uh, to Yokozuna and Owen Hart. It's a hell of a technicality, too. <laughs> if, if, yeah. you know, if you know how that went down, yeah. 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 <laughs> Diesel dropped the heavyweight championship to Bret Hart at Survivor Series of 1995. His reign was one week shy of a full year, and by many metrics, that year was the WWF's worst from a financial standpoint. <laughs> giving Diesel the ignominious distinction of being the WWF's lowest-drawing champion of all time. Diesel began a feud with The Undertaker, and around the time of WrestleMania 12, his contract status was very much in flux. His buddy Hall told him how much he would make in WCW, and Eric Bischoff offered him a guaranteed contract of $1.2 million over three years. Nash felt loyalty to Vince McMahon and was on the fence, but a combination of his then-pregnant wife pushing him to think of his future family and frustration that Nash had in dealing with Bret Hart led Nash to accept the deal. Nash, like Hall, gave Vince an opportunity to match the offer from WCW, but Vince knew that there was no way he could do so without upsetting his entire pay structure, uh, so he'd have to offer more to Undertaker and Michaels and everybody. Mm -hmm. There was just no way with the company in the state that it was that he could do that. Nash, in the time-honored tradition of wrestling, saw the lights in all his matches on the way out, losing to Undertaker and Michaels several times, up until the Madison Square Garden curtain call closed the books on his and Hall's run in the WWF. What was the, what was the difficulty he was having with Bret Hart, though? Oh, you haven't heard that story. Um, so there, so there's a match um, between I believe Hart and Undertaker. This story's probably been told a hundred times, but that was the one where um, I fucked Taker at Rumble and then Taker was going to come pull me through in Louisville mm -hmm. and in your house, and Brett would go walk out the cage mm -hmm. and, and basically fuck me from, from beating Brett and getting my belt back. So Brett wouldn't let me fucking powerbomb him. And I went to Vince. I said, fuck, I said, this, this, this makes the story. Me powerbombing and having him beat mm -hmm. builds up. He's dropping the motherfucker to Sean at Mania anyway. This is for me and Mark. 
Like, this is for our angle. This makes our WrestleMania. I took the belt away from him at Rumble. He took, he took it, 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 it. It's for our package. Right. It doesn't fucking hurt him. He doesn't lose. He could have tripped me. He could have fucking, you know, mm -hmm. fucking dropped toehold me. And I could have hit my head on the pipe and he could have walked over me. You know, it's just, it's, right. it is what it is. And when, when they folded and said, no, Brett, you're not going to powerbomb Brett, I fucking, I fucking walked right over to Scott and I said, give me the deal. Give me Eric's number. <laughs> give me the deal. I said, I'm, I'm fucking gone. And that was a turning point for me. That was it. I said, fuck it. So Nash just got so fucking sick of dealing with that that he, the way he's told the story in several different places is that after that, like, argument with Brett, he called Hall and was like, tell him I'm coming. Yeah. <laughs> I f forever to my grave, like, defend Bret Hart no matter if I even feel like he's in the wrong. Yeah. Pretty much. I'm just, like, having a hard time understanding why he would be not wanting to do that if it makes sense in the match. And it's not like he hasn't taken the power bomb because when he won the championship at 95 Survivor Series, Diesel still got to powerbomb him afterwards and look strong. Well, if you, you've you read, uh, of course you have, because I borrowed your copy, uh, Hart's book. Yeah. He actually talks a lot about this feud and feeling pissed off that he was champion, but he kept, like, only winning escape. Like, these two were feuding with each other, mm -hmm. and he'd have matches with both of them, and he wouldn't win. He would just sort of, like, be lucky and catch a win when, like, one of the other guys interfered. So there was no heat for him. And yeah, he, and he talks about it in his book being like pretty disappointed, and and in the movie too. Yeah, I think he keeps saying he keeps being like, "Is he scooping my heat? Feels like he's scooping my heat." Like that's the kind of quote that people used to make fun of him a lot. Yeah, because I remember he he's he talked a lot about how that title reign of his, he felt like he was like second tier, and that like a lot of the action was going to the click. Right, and so maybe he was just like fuck these guys get enough of the heat as they want like i'm not going to give them any more so it's it's not there's not like a really good reason it's more like a personal reason like i don't want to give you anything more right. than you're already getting well and it should be noted and i'll talk about this in a little more detail later but despite claiming several times that that argument with brett was sort of the tipping point mm -hmm. he still is on the phone with hart like months later trying to get hart to come be the third man yeah um, and we'll talk about that later. Okay. Back in the present and the Ocean Center, <laughs> while the present being 1996, not the <laughs> present present. I, I, this is later 96, not <laughs> early 96. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Michael Buffer says that there were supposed to be three, but he must apologize. He's just been informed that there's only two. The announcers flip their shit. Shivani yeah. is outraged. Yeah. I, so I was watching this match last night. And I was uh, messaging back and forth with my brother, who has been a guest on here before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was mentioning, I was like, I really like it that uh, Michael Buffer also refers to him as the interlopers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I was like, what if that was their tag name this whole time? The interlopers. Sting's music plays briefly, then stops. Now Mean Gene is in the aisle looking confused. Gino enters the ring and has a brief conversation with Buffer before taking Buffer's mic. Gene Okerlund is Gene Okerlund is going to the ring. He's going to find out who this third guy is, I guess. Well, he's in that conversation now with Michael Buffer. Oakland wants to know. That's what it is. Absolutely. And we we need to know. Right, go, Gene. Go. Yeah, there you go, gentlemen. If I could have your attention, I don't have police protection with me at this time, 
but I want to confront you in front of this full house here at the Ocean Center and millions of others across the country and around the world. I don't see three men here tonight. Where is your partner? You know Scheme Gene, Chico, you know too much already. All you need to know, little man, is he's here and he's ready. Well, if he's... Well, wait a minute. Where is he? Is your partner telling me that your third man is in the building? Oh, he's here all right, Gene. Let me tell you something. We got enough to handle it right now, right here. Oh, for quite... Come on. Oh, man, I'm going to tell Come you what. Come on. They cannot handle our three guys. Yeah, okay, let's send three out and just kick their teeth in and get it over with. There you go. Gene asks point blank where the outsider's partner is. Hall says that all Gene needs to know is that their partner is there and he's ready. Gene asks Nash if that means the third man is in the building. Nash says yes, but he and Hall have enough to handle things between themselves. Tony is even angrier mm-hmm. <laughs> by this insinuation. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, this is a great way of getting them over as heels because they're still not delivering. Even at the case where it's like, we put up with it so far, now we have to show us a guy, and they're still not doing it. Yeah. And not only that, I'm thinking about if I was watching this live at the time, I would be angry too. Absolutely. <laughs> because that gives me the impression I'm just not going to find out who he is. Like, they're going to push... Oh, oh fuck, God. Fuck, if you they're going to w- push it to Nitro, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, I'd be apoplectic. <laughs> right. Now Sting's music plays again, and here's Team WCW. Did they scam us? I don't know. I... No, I'm going to tell you and what. Now, ladies and gentlemen, from the great they mean business. World yeah. Championship Something's going on. Yeah. Stars. You know as well as I do, Dusty. There's meet. bad intentions the going on. The WCW. Level, but we've seen it happen before. I'll tell you what, it's going to take your breath away. This will take your breath away. Back away from the challenge. Ladies and gentlemen, Rex Luger. You're witnessing history in the making. And a man of power and speed. What a roll. What a rush. Tell you what, that's cold chills running up and down my body. I guarantee you. What a roar! Uh-uh. Sums up. Sums I've up. I've never seen anything like this in a pit. Those two are tough men, but they're not going to take on those three. I guarantee you. There's the bell. Here we go. There is First out is Lex to big cheers and pyro. Then Sting and the Macho Man follow close behind to more pyro and more cheers. And Heenan is super fucking pumped <laughs> on behalf of WCW. <laughs> and my immediate reaction is kind of. This is going to, again, make the outsiders sort of unintentional baby faces. Yeah. That they're going in there three on two and they're, like, not afraid and they're mm-hmm. totally brave about it, you know? Right. The bell sounds with all five men in the ring. Words are exchanged between the teams and Hall and Lex shove each other. The paranoia amongst the announcers over the third man is at a boiling point. 
Well, get I out of here. Even, I don't even know I, don't, I won't even I don't that. even, I trust no one. Well, you got to do that, Dusty. You can't trust anybody. I know you don't trust me, and you shouldn't. But I'm not the third guy. As Bobby tells Tony, you shouldn't trust anyone. I know you don't trust me, and you shouldn't, but I'm not the third guy. It's an awesome fucking line. Lex and Hall start things off, and Shivani says that they've wondered for a while if this would be a wrestling match or a war, and all appearances right now indicate a wrestling match. Uh, and you you talked about this a little bit while we were having lunch, um, that it's kind of it it feels a little strange that all this just ends up being a wrestling match. But I think yeah. personally, I find it really cool because this is wrestling and uh, and all like personal and professional matters should be decided via a wrestling match. Yeah, um, I, I kind of like that. But at the same time, there is a really fuzzy feeling where they keep talking about like the consequences. If WCW should lose this match, like what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Nitro could get taken off the air, yada, yada. But really nothing there's nothing actually on the line here yeah it would just be embarrassing mm-hmm. that's really about it i like one point heenan was suggesting it was just gonna be a test screen for two hours yeah, yeah. i'm not saying like it, it shouldn't have been a wrestling match it just it, there's a weird feeling to it oh i agree because I, agree. I feel like they were building up to something that was like so epic that it would go beyond just a wrestling match but but you're right in the end that's pro wrestling it comes down to fighting in the ring and and too often in like the russo era it comes down to other bullshit so i right. like that here it still does come down to in the ring you know yeah hall throws his toothpick in lex's face and gets a slap in return hall kicks lex in the gut and hits some punches he shoots lex off the ropes and misses a clothesline luger nails a forearm shot and then hits nash in the corner he makes the mistake of keeping his eye on nash and hall pushes him from behind and lex falls through the ropes but stays on the apron Luger runs down Hall with a clothesline from the apron and goes for Nash, who holds him in the corner with a headlock. Sting comes in the ring and runs for a stinger splash on Nash, which ends up crushing Lex's head between Sting and the turnbuckle. Nash and Luger tumble to the floor. Hall drags Macho Man down to the floor on the opposite side of the ring, and the stinger is suddenly alone in the ring, realizing what he's done. This places a seed of doubt in the minds of the audience. Could Sting have done that on purpose? Right. Sting drops down to check on his friend, but Luger is out cold. Macho Man knocks Hall against the guardrail and jogs over to check on Lex, and Randy Anderson is calling for help from the back. The announcers are devastated that this is now a fair fight. (laughs) (laughs) A stretcher comes out, and Luger is attended by medics who load him up as we see a replay from the splash. Tony is conspicuously calling Kevin Nash the big guy a lot, and at this point in the match, I really, I was like, are they unwilling to say their names again? Or like, because they've used the name Kevin Nash, but they haven't used the name Scott Hall. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, he just keeps calling him the big guy. I was really kind of confused by that. Hall tries to get cheap shots on Luger as they cart him out, but Sting and Macho Man stop him. Hall joins Nash in the ring, and everything resets to the new two-on-two situation. In the back of our minds now, we have to expect a surprise third man, a Sting heel turn, or perhaps a Lex return and heel turn. There's so many exciting red herrings out there for how this could play out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because, yeah, Luger gets crushed in the corner, but that is that easily could have been a thing that, he, that like, a plan. Ooh, oh, he's, like, super injured or something like mm-hmm. that. So, again, I think, like, at the time, I would, that's, he's someone I would suspect, like, that he was faking that the whole time. You know, and we haven't talked about this. Were you watching this live? No, I th- at this point, I have yet to order a pay-per-view 
Like, okay. Um, Are you watch? But you're watching Nitros. Yes. Okay. Yep. Interesting. The first pay per view I ever ordered was uh, the '96 SummerSlam. So close. Oh, we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> Before the action starts again, Tony finally does clarify the names of the outsiders, telling us that they are Hall and Nash, and which one is which. Sting and Hall are in the ring, and Hall looks for a test of strength. Sting is about to go with it, but Hall slaps him, and Sting has finally had enough of these guys. Mm-hmm. He steps back and collects himself against the ropes before charging forward with a spear, only unlike a typical spear, he stays on his feet afterwards, <laughs> and then he just lands punches on the downed Hall before slamming his head repeatedly into the canvas. It's very unstinger-like, and it's very cool. Yeah. He stomps Hall and hits an inverted atomic drop and a characteristically sloppy bulldog. He tags in Macho Man, who immediately comes off the top rope with a double sledge that Hall dodges while hitting a punch to Randy's gut. Hall turns his attention towards Sting, and their ensuing argument distracts Randy Anderson long enough for Nash to come in and hit Snake Eyes on the Macho Man. Savage nevertheless dodges a Hall clothesline and gets one of his own for the first pin attempt of the match, but Hall kicks out at two. Hall tags in Nash. Savage gets some punches in, but Nash takes over with a big knee to the gut and then elbows, clubbing blows, punches, etc. Nash slams Macho in the middle of the ring and comes off the ropes for a standing elbow drop, which Savage sort of dodges, but not quick enough, and they collide awkwardly. To their credit, the announcers note that Savage was hit in the head and may have an injured neck now, but Savage manages to tag in the stinger. I, I just I like that they called what happened and not what should have happened because mm-hmm. way too often they do the opposite. Yeah. Sting comes in and gets the same knee to the gut that Savage was victim to. He's thrown into the corner where Nash chokes him with his boot. Tony says that they aren't calling this as a normal match. Basically, he's he's kind of apologizing for being so biased. Yeah. And explains like he just there's too much on the line. And Dusty says they can't call it like a normal match because it isn't. Bobby says that tomorrow when Nitro comes on, there may just be a test pattern. And this is simultaneously awesome and nonsensical. <laughs> right. <laughs> As Sting falls to the mat, Nash stares down Randy Anderson. Tony points out that Team WCW was a result of a random drawing and says that they should bring someone else out to replace Lex. That wouldn't be fair at all, of course. Right. But I love the homerism that is coming from the announcers right now. Yeah. Plus, I think it establishes another fun, like, booking direction for this match. And and it kind of, you could argue, is what happened or what we're led to think is what's happening later. Mm-hmm. That, yes, yeah, someone else just comes out to take that third spot. Yeah. I just love how many different options they've set up so far. Yeah, like during the match, not beforehand. Nash whips Sting into the corner and charges, but Sting floats over and catches him with a dropkick. Sting comes off the ropes with a sunset flip attempt, but Nash will not go down and instead locks on a two-handed choke on Sting, lifting him from the mat to his feet and then up into the air before tossing him down effortlessly. That's just raw strength and determination, says Brain. We're in deep sand. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Nash tags in Hall, who gets boots in the down sting, angering the macho man who rushes in. Randy Anderson is distracted, and Mrs. Nash help Hall with some punches on Sting in the corner. Hall gets a fallaway slam, one of my favorite wrestling moves for some reason. Just, I've always loved a good fallaway slam. Yeah, and not and not only that, like, not everyone pulls it off effortlessly, but yeah. for Hall, it's effortless. He's so big and so strong. Yeah. It's I, I think we've talked about this before. It's easy to forget how big Scott Hall is because he hangs out with Kevin Nash all the time. Yeah. But he's a big fucking dude. Yeah. 
Nash gets tagged in and hits a big boot on Sting and exchanges words with an irate macho. Nash toys with Sting with weak kicks to the face and then a real one to the gut. Sting manages to get back to his feet, but Nash punches him down again and Sting has officially become a babyface in peril. Nash misses a clothesline and Sting gets a drop kick to Nash's knee and he goes down clutching his knee. Uh, Tony, however, says that he got kicked in the gut. Yes. <laughs> it, he emphatically says it, too. <laughs> Nash makes it to Hall for the tag before Sting can regroup and make it to his own corner. Hall comes in and Sting gets him with a small package, but Randy Anderson is distracted by Savage, and by the time he counts one, Hall kicks out. Hall drops a few elbows as Tony hopes that Nash is injured, saying normally he wouldn't wish that on anyone, but in this case he'll make an exception. <laughs> Hurt somebody right now, he implores Team WCW. <laughs> Bobby thought he'd never hear Tony say that, and Tony says he's resorting to Heenan's tactics. Kick a man when he's down, says Tony. <laughs> Bobby replies, oh, they're easier to reach. <laughs> right. Great line. <laughs> Bobby's so hot and cold tonight. Like, when he's on, he's so good. Yeah. Hall locks on an abdominal stretch, using Nash for leverage whenever Randy Anderson isn't looking. Savage rallies the crowd, and Nash is tagged in. And though Randy Anderson didn't see it, he's going to allow this. I'm going to allow this. Nash also goes with an abdominal stretch, adding shots to the ribs with his elbow and just some punches. Sting's arm drops once, but not twice, and he gets a thumb to the eye of Nash, who tags in Hall. Hall just barely cuts off Sting's attempt to tag out and gets a clothesline on the Stinger that gets a two count. Hall dumps Sting to the outside for Nash to attack, but Macho is wise to the plan and runs over with a chair. Shivani is pissed at Randy Anderson for stopping him. <laughs> Don't hold him back. Let him hit him in the head. <laughs> back in the ring and Hall hits more punches on Sting who is out on his feet. A discus punch gets a two count. In comes Nash with an elbow to the ribs and a huge sidewalk slam. He waits too long for the pin and gets a two count, and frustration begins to show on the face of Nash. He rams Sting into the turnbuckle a few times, then goes for a big back body drop, but Sting kicks him in the head. Sting hits punches on Nash and dodges counters from the big man. Stinger knocks Hall from the apron and runs towards his corner and leaps. Nash catches him, but Stinger still has enough forward momentum to reach out and tag in the Macho Man. Tony exclaims, Randy Savage is in and he's nuts. <laughs> he's not wrong. <laughs> Randy nails Hall with a top rope double axe handle. He grabs Hall and drives the heads of the outsiders together in a double noggin knocker. <laughs> he tosses Hall to the outside and pounds on Nash. He runs to the top turnbuckle and jumps down with a double axe handle on Hall into the guardrail. The crowd is going bananas. Savage rolls Hall into the ring and comes down on him with another top rope double axe handle. He grabs Nash, who is on his knees by the hair, and makes his twirly macho man taunt gesture. Yep. Nash nails Savage with a huge two-fisted low blow, which is yet again another low blow, but this one is, like, it's both of Nash's gigantic fists. Yeah. It looks like it would really, really fucking yeah. hurt. Yeah. I, I, I told my brother I referred to as the double axe handle low blow. <laughs> And it's like, and that, I mean, with all the other low blows, it was leading up to the mother of all low blows. Now all four men are down in the ring. Man. And then there was one, and it was Sting, and he didn't look too good. Hulkamania. Hulk Hogan is here. Hulk Hogan's here. Hulk Hogan is in the building. You're damn right he is. Go get him, Hulkster. Yeah, but whose side is he on? Go, what are you talking about? Whose side is he on? What are you talking about? 
Yes, sir! Get him, Hogan! Go get him, baby! Come on and get some of this now! Who's bad now, boys? Hulk Hogan arrived! Hulk, Hulk, Hulk! What is oh he doing? Oh, my God! Is he the third man? He's the third man! What oh. the hell is going on here? Hulk Hogan has betrayed WCW! He is the third man Look in at this. this picture! Oh, my God! What the hell is going on? Oh, my God! Are you kidding me? I, probably the lowest shot ever given to professional wrestling. That man did right there, Hulk Hogan. Let's get everybody out of the dressing room right now and kick his rear end. Unbelievable, brother. You just what have I been saying the all these years? Huh? What have I been saying all these years? Oh, you know, oh my can... God. A career it's... of a lifetime. It's right down the drain, kid. I hope you love it. Can you, you see just those sold your soul to the devil? See those little hulksters with the tears rolling down their face right now? We are not going to even acknowledge that three count. Now what happens to us? What happens now to WCW? There was no three count. I never thought I would say that he's yellow, but he may be wearing red, but he's wearing red and yellow. What do we do now? What a uh, I'll tell you what. Oh. This is a... Unbelievable situation right here at Bash at the Beach. Hulkamania, the third guy with the outsiders, betrayed WCW. Can't talk. Suddenly, the crowd, already loud, takes it up another several notches. All the fans near ringside jump to their feet. Coming down the aisle is Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan is here, shouts a rapturous Tony Schiavone. Mm -hmm. Dusty joyfully proclaims, Hulk Hogan is in the building. You're damn right he is, cries Shivani. <laughs> Heenan asks, but whose side is he on? A remark that disgusts Dusty and which we will discuss a little bit more later on in the show. Hogan makes his way to the ring, and if you pay attention, he does not look at the fans at all. Like, I don't know if he can't bring himself to do it or mm -hmm. what, but he just comes out and his eyes are locked on that aisle at the ring the whole way he, he walks down there. Yeah. Hogan enters the ring and the outsiders bail in terror. Hogan tears off his shirt and the crowd pops even more. He makes his way to the corner in the upper left part of our screen. He pauses for a moment, perhaps Terry Belia having one last hesitation over what's about to come. Then, fucking professional that he is, he gently pushes Randy Anderson back a little bit so that he's out of the next camera shot as Hogan takes a couple of leading steps towards the prone macho man and drops the leg. Hulk Hogan is the third man. Hulk Hogan is with the Outsiders. Hulk Hogan has turned heel. Oh, man. Shivani and Dusty's joy has turned to ash in their mouth. <laughs> Dusty, <laughs> it, it gets a little overwrought in some of my writing here. <laughs> wow. Dusty can't believe it and asks if Hogan is the third man, which Bobby confirms. Hogan has betrayed WCW, screams Heenan, as Hogan hits another leg drop. Hall and Nash come in the ring and high-five Hogan. What the hell is going on, Dusty Road? Shout asks of an uncaring universe where evil prospers and good men are left to rot. <laughs> Sting stumbles toward them and Hall nails him with some punches before Nash kicks him to the outside. Tony begs the locker room to come out and beat up Hulk Hogan. Hall drags Savage to the middle of the ring. Randy Anderson is holding his head in shock. He seems to plead with Hogan for some kind of explanation, but the Hulkster just chucks him from the ring. Bobby rhetorically asks, what have I been saying all these years? As Hogan continues his grotesque parody of his once-beloved babyface act, 
running the ropes, and hitting Randy Savage with leg drop number three. Hogan covers Savage, and Hall counts an unofficial one, two, three. Uh, the actual result of this match is a no contest. Right. Dusty tells Hulk he just sold his soul to the devil. We're not going to acknowledge that three count, says Tony, acknowledging that three count. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> the Outsiders and Hulk raise each other's arms in victory. Tony says he never thought he'd call the Hulkster yellow, and he may be wearing red, but he's wearing red and yellow. Oh. And it might be best if Tony were to stop talking for a little bit. <laughs> right. The Outsiders do Hogan's hand-to-the-ear pose to the various sides of the ring. Bobby says, I told you so. And Bobby really needs to stop trying to use this moment to get himself over. Yep. Like, everything he's doing is arguably consistent with his character, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's good to do. Yes. Stinger pulls the unconscious Macho Man from the ring. Hogan surveys the destruction with smug satisfaction. The crowd is split. Some are applauding, others booing, some sit in shock. Bits of trash begin to pelt the ring. Only a couple at first, but once the idea has infected the crowd, it spreads quickly. Tony speculates that this was all premeditated back to 94 when Hulk first joined WCW. The suggestion that this this was, uh, this was began in 94, I like the idea of it. Yes. I like to think of it, but there's no way you can totally sell me no, on that. No. But I'll, I really, I like the idea that, that it's, it's, sta- it's two years in the making. Food wrappers, cups, programs, and other debris litter the ring. A fan in the first few rows is flipping Hogan the double bird. A different fan in the front row, of course in an ECW t-shirt, has been cheering the entire spectacle. Right. He, the ECW guy, of course, loves this. Yeah. Bobby laments that Hogan came to WCW with a ticker tape parade. In the background, you can just make out a fat dude get in the ring with a Hogan tank top over his t-shirt. He confronts Nash, and you can see in the background Nash level him with a single punch. The camera cuts to a shot of the whole ring, and Nash is now stomping a mud hole in this idiot. What have we got here? We've got a fan trying to help matters out, says Tony, as Hall joins Nash in stomping the fuck out of this guy until they finally slide him out of the ring where security deals with him. Uh, this this is a famous moment, and it's cut out of the network version. Yeah, I was about to say, I didn't see that at all. It's actually what made me seek out the original version, because I realized that was cut out, and then mm-hmm. I wanted to see what else was cut out. Yeah. So, because, yeah, I definitely remember the Outsiders beating the shit out of this guy oh. who comes in because he's so drunk and mad about what he's seeing. <laughs> Hulkster high-fives the Outsiders, and that's roughly uh, where the network version joins back with the original. So now, before we get to the promo that Hogan gives, let's take you through this momentous occasion, uh, specifically with the history that has gotten us here. Mm-hmm. Quoting from the July 15th Wrestling Observer, After a 15-year babyface run that started by accident, Hulk Hogan turned heel amidst incredible heat in an angle that will be remembered for years as the climax of WCW's Bash at the Beach pay-per-view show on July 7th in Daytona Beach. Now, uh, this idea, or really the two ideas kind of running in parallel, one being a Hogan heel turn and the other idea being the third man, they've been in gestation for quite some time. So first, I'm sure you remember last September when Hogan ditched the red and yellow for black, uh, oh. shaved his mustache, and was wearing a Zorro mask. Oh, do I ever. <laughs> and as we talked about at the time, Kevin Sullivan says that he saw that angle as his attempt to convince Hogan to dip his toes in the water to try to get him to turn heel. Mm-hmm. It was clear that Hogan just wasn't working in many WCW markets, and uh, in the markets where he was working, it just wasn't what it used to be. But Hogan was still resistant to the idea of a heel turn. Eric Bischoff wrote in Controversy Creates Cash. 
At the beginning of 1996, I began thinking a lot about Hulk Hogan as a character. His character, from my point of view, had played itself out. But Hogan was a tremendous performer, and it made sense to try to do something more with him than just pencil him in. (laughs) He was an enormous resource, if we could tap it. The more I thought about it, the more I came back to one idea. Hulk Hogan was one of the all-time great babyface characters. What would be the impact if he turned heel? Handled correctly, it could be huge. By this time, I had a good relationship with Hogan on a personal level. So I called him and said, Hulkster, what are you doing next Tuesday? I'd like to come to Florida and run some ideas by you. Sure, brother, come on down. Uh, so, so I flew down to Tampa, rented a car, and went over to his mansion on the beach. We sat down, had a beer, shot the shit for a while, and got caught up. Everything was great. Then I walked him through the idea that he might turn heel. He stroked his Fu Manchu. He rested his chin on his hand and continued to stroke his Fu Manchu for what seemed like 20 minutes. And I hope it was 20 minutes. I hope Eric Bischoff sat there while Hogan just stroked his own Fu Manchu. <laughs> Bischoff's just like nod, nodding. Mm-hmm. Then he said, well, brother, until you've walked a mile in my red and yellow boots, you'll never really understand. And with that, he looked at his watch and said, I'm sorry, I've got to go pick up my kids at school. He showed me the door. <laughs> So essentially, Hogan politely kicked Eric Bischoff out of his house for even suggesting a heel turn. I, just, I like even in the privacy of his own home amongst friends, he yeah. still talks like Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yes. Until you wrestled him by <laughs> ready in the boots, brother. It just, he's, he's that Hogan's Hogan all the time. Shortly after the uncensored pay-per-view, Hogan began a hiatus from WCW to film some movies, specifically Santa with Muscles and The Overlords, a movie with Roddy Piper and Gary Busey that was ultimately never finished. There was no set plan for what he would be doing upon his return. And that's an important point. It's not like the third man role was always intended for Hogan. Right. They didn't make it up thinking we're going to have Hogan do this. Mm -hmm. It was something they kind of stumbled upon. When WCW began promoting the third man angle, they did not know who would fill that role. Many names were discussed with the biggest possible defection being Bret Hart. Nash actually called Bret to try to talk him into taking a deal from Bischoff, but ultimately Brett chose against it. It's interesting, you know, I mentioned earlier about how Nash had problems with Brett, but then here he is trying to talk him into coming. Mm-hmm. It's important to think that because of the favored nations clause, as it's called, in Hall and Nash's contract, if anyone is brought in after them and is paid more, yeah. they then get bumped up to that pay. Mm-hmm. So they may not like Brett Hart, but if he comes in, he's going to get paid more than they are because he's a bigger star, yeah. and then they're going to get paid more. Right. So f- I don't care if I don't like him, like, bring him in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I... I... I know seeing like even really recent um, interviews with Nash, he, he mentions like I was trying to get Bret Hart to do it, which is like, again, you know, I've talked about like how much of the truth is the truth with right. Nash. But the fact that like 20 years later, he's still like that was the original idea suggests to me that, that that's like the absolute true story that that was their number one guy. Well, and actually, yeah, where I got the information that he called Hart was from an interview with Hall that Hall did in like 2002 or thereabouts. Okay. Where he said that he was he was in the room while Nash was on the phone with Hart trying to get him to come. Sure. After it was clear that Brett would not be defecting from the WWF, Bischoff started leaning towards Lex Luger, but once that leaked and everyone suspected it, he had to rethink things. That's also that's also not a great idea, by the way. Sure. Personally. Hall and Nash wanted it to be Hulk, But after being kicked out from Hogan's house for suggesting a heel turn, Bischoff didn't see it happening. Eric realized that most of the speculation had been whether Luger or Savage would turn, but he had never heard anyone talk about the potential of Sting being the third man. I even said that like just earlier, like, why wasn't anyone (laughs) talking about Sting? (laughs) 
<laughs> he talked to Sting, who was initially reluctant, but ultimately agreed. This plan only changed with an unexpected phone call from Hulk Hogan to Eric Bischoff. Back to the July 15th, 1996 Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Hogan's contract with WCW was, was scheduled to expire after two more pay-per-view shows, the Hogwild Show in Sturgis, South Dakota next month, and Halloween Havoc in Las Vegas, where, by virtue of a sponsorship deal with Slim Jims, they had long promised a Hogan versus Randy Savage main event, which you may remember when we did those Vegas shows, the Nitro mm-hmm. and Clash of the Champions, they did talk about doing a hogan versus savage match like a year later and it seemed very odd at the time right apparently it's something that they'd agreed to with like caesar's palace and slim jim that they were going to do that in vegas right so that actually was driving towards something Mm -hmm. so back to the observer in hogan's usual knack for great timing he left wcw to do a movie with roddy piper and gary Busey just before the nba playoff games changed the monday nitro time slot and wreaked havoc on the ratings so it appeared to be a great leverage move. Hogan can say, I went away and the ratings went down, even right. though really they didn't go down. It had nothing to do with him. However, in the expansion to two hours, the show's rating, ratings have increased to their consistently highest level to date with Hogan not on any of the shows. This weakened his leverage position as compared with Bischoff's and negotiations to stay at his incredible money deal. While Hogan has continued to draw much stronger buy rates than WCW has averaged without him, Although the pay gap between those sets of numbers has declined as time has gone on, the belief is the new program with Nash and Hall was hot enough and would draw basically as well with or without Hogan. Thus, Hogan's huge cut of the pay-per-view revenue would no longer be worth it for the company. But in the end, Hogan proved to be the ultimate Fox once again in that this angle on the surface appears to be the hottest angle in the history of WCW, and Hogan, who a few weeks ago looked like the real outsider, maneuvered himself back into being the centerpiece right interestingly in his appearance on chris jericho's podcast hogan claims that he's wanted to turn heel going all the way back to the aftermath of his loss to the ultimate warrior at wrestlemania 6 <laughs> and yeah it's coming from the mouth of hulk hogan so yeah. take it with so much salt I, I, as much as i like you know believe or don't believe Bret hart or kevin nash i don't believe a goddamn word that hulk hogan says I don't either. So I continue to take this with. But so what he said is he wanted to turn heel, but Vince wouldn't let him. Hogan more or less confirms Bischoff's story about Hulk being unreceptive to Bischoff proposing a heel turn. Only Hogan says it's because he wanted to be a heel on his own, not part of any faction. Although that doesn't make any sense because Bischoff visited him in like January mm-hmm. and there was no faction idea at that point. It would have just been a. So right. That makes no sense. Mm-hmm. He sa- but Hogan says, and I believe that this part is true, that it took seeing Nash and Hall on Nitro from his trailer filming Santa with Muscles to realize that they were going to be a big deal. Yeah. And I believe that 100%. Mm-hmm. I, I can also, I mean, I don't think he approached the idea. I do think that Vince's reaction would have been no at that time because he was a huge draw still in 1990. Right. And there's no, there was no real benefit because they had plenty of, of heels anyway. Bischoff flew to Los Angeles to meet with Hulk on the set of the movie on June 26th, so a little under two weeks ago. Hogan asked who the third man was, and Bischoff sort of truthfully said he didn't know yet, even though he had discussed with Sting and Sting had accepted the idea. Right. Hogan said, I think you're looking at him. Quote, Eric Bischoff. It was around this time that I realized Hulk Hogan was a master negotiator. He had seen the outsider's story unfold and he wanted to be a part of it. If anyone can smell an opportunity and turn it to his benefit, it's Hulk Hogan. 
Kevin Nash. Hogan had the business acumen to watch that money train leave and think, it's not moving that fast. I can still jump on it. <laughs> I love Kevin. <laughs> Kevin Kevin Nash, despite being such a dick, is so charming and funny, just like without even trying. Yeah. Scott Hall. I think at that point in his career, sitting on that jet plane, I'm just guessing, sitting on that private jet plane on his way to Daytona, Hulk had to make a decision. What am I going to do? He had already seen us for a few weeks. Me and Kev were building some momentum. We were building some steam. I don't think it would have worked. The whole NWO thing would never have worked without Hulk. From the day that Hogan told Bischoff he wanted to go heel all the way through to the pay-per-view, Bischoff and Sullivan had to constantly check in with Hogan to make sure that his cronies, uh, the Jimmy Hart's, Ed Leslie's, uh, mm -hmm. Brian Knobs of the world, who relied on the Hulkamania machine, couldn't talk the Hulkster out of it. In the days leading up to the pay-per-view, Bischoff and Sullivan managed to convince Hulk to stay at Kevin Sullivan's house so that he could constantly be monitored, soothed, and convinced. Hogan slept in a guest bedroom, and Sullivan kept Hogan's lawyer on his couch. <laughs> the convincing and negotiating took up to the start of the pay-per-view. Back to the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. Because Bischoff didn't arrive at the building until moments before the start of the live main event show, because of his last-minute workings out of the details with Hogan... WCW created yet another last-minute angle claiming that Bischoff wasn't even there and that he might have been kidnapped, an angle that had no conclusion on the pay-per-view show because it wasn't planned in advance. Right. So, yeah, the only reason they came up with this whole thing with Bischoff that they prattered on and on and on about, and which we'll talk about the conclusion tomorrow on Nitro, yep. is just because he had to write up until the pay-per-view keep negotiating with Hogan. And I assume by negotiating... That just means, like, okay, Ric Flair will lose 10 matches. And Hogan's like, hmm, how about he lose 20 matches? And Bischoff has to be like, uh, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and, and also, I, I think, like, the whole, like, soothing his ego because it's like, Hogan seems like a guy that could easily change his mind if you're just not, like, reminding him it's a good idea. Hogan, to this point, was pretty much most known, especially in his WCW run when he had this creative control, for coming to the show and saying, this doesn't really work for me, and changing shit at the last minute. Right. That's like what they constantly dealt with from Hogan. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure they thought, okay, he agreed to it, but at the very last minute, of course he'll change his mind. Mm -hmm. um, so to that end, Sting was always prepared to step in at the last minute and yeah. be the third guy. So that's always the backup plan, is Sting is going to do it if the regular plan doesn't work out. Do you think that like the beginning of the match was also... Like, in case he dis he changes his mind during the match? Great question. I don't know. You know. Maybe. Maybe. Bischoff says he still had doubts that Hogan would do it until Hogan finally arrived one hour before showtime. Bischoff, that's just crazy to me that it's one hour. That's, that's not that much time. Mm -hmm. And there's so much chance that fans could see Hogan coming in the building and start talking about it. But yeah. the internet's not quite, I mean, it's not at all what it is now in yeah. 1996. So I guess it's not that big a deal. Bischoff went to Sting and thanked him for his professionalism. Bischoff says that Sting seemed to have mixed emotions about it. On one hand, he was relieved because he didn't really want to be a heel. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it seemed like he was annoyed that he wasn't trusted to deliver on it. And uh, Sting could basically just see that Hogan had successfully executed like a major power play. And also that, I mean, like the idea that Sting was basically willing to do this like career changing thing just in case Hogan changes his mind. I mean, he's he's being heavily used here right. by a company in which uh, he helped build it, like with Ric Flair, essentially. 
Both Hall and Nash say they went to the ring still not positive what was going to happen. <laughs> Hall says that Bischoff told them only on the day of the show that the third man would hopefully be Hulk, but if not, it would be Sting. So it was the day of the show. They heard it be Hulk. They didn't see Hulk at the arena. Like, they didn't have a chance to, according to them anyway. Yeah. They didn't talk to him at the arena at all and didn't really know. Like, they'd met him, but they didn't really know him. So the mm. first time they're really interacting with him is when he comes out to the ring. But Hogan stuck to the plan, and the rest is history. Quote Scott Hall, It was Kev's finish. Kev laid out the finish where Hulk doesn't come out until the end. It was fucking sweet. It was the first time I've been in a building where I was fearing for my safety. The marks hit the ring. You can see it on tape. People were throwing shit and stuff like that. I'd never been in that kind of environment before. But at the same time, it was the first time I'd ever in my life been in the ring with Hulk. So I remember saying, I just want this in my scrapbook. <laughs> I, that's so awesome. Yeah. I love the fact that he's like, it was the first time I ever feared for my safety. It was awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> and also, I like the fact that like wrestlers like kind of recognizing uh, the legend of other wrestlers. Right. Or, I mean, you could easily just be like, oh, this Hogan guy is still around. He's a dick and what, or whatever. But Scott Hall's like, yeah, but it's Hulk Hogan. You know, yeah. and I'm going to be doing stuff in the ring with Hulk Hogan. No matter how this turns out, this moment is awesome. Kevin Nash, in some interviews I've seen, also says what Hall said there, that the idea of Hogan coming out at the end was his suggestion. Mm -hmm. It's kind of cool. I, I mean, I just I don't know how else it would exactly work. It would be tough. You made a joke earlier. It was off mic, but uh, yeah. you made a joke about if Hulk had just come out at the beginning and then stood on the apron waiting to get tagged in. and Like, just... the, like the third man's holding the tag rope. <laughs> yeah, it would have been very awkward. <laughs> uh, so let's talk, before we get to the, the promo that really closes out the show, let's talk a little bit about whose side is he on. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a quote from Bobby Heenan. Bischoff would never tell us the finishes of matches or the angles that were supposed to air. I told him it would be better to just tell us what was happening so we could enhance the product. Mm -hmm. uh, Tony Schiavone talked about this on his podcast episode that I've referenced a number of times. He agrees that they kept the announcers in the dark and said it was frustrating because he needed some of that info to do his job. Uh, Bischoff, for his part, confirms this strategy in his book and says it's because the announcers would too often foreshadow what was to come. Wade Keller wrote in the Pro Wrestling Torch... He, in his review of the show, I should specify. Mm -hmm. At this point, Heenan made perhaps the biggest announcing miscue of his career as he blurted out, whose side is he on? Mm -hmm. Scott Hall. Heenan got a lot of heat for that. Heenan's always putting himself over. That was fucked up. I think he made a crucial error in judgment, and I think it hurt his career. I think he got such major heat with Bischoff that it hurt him contractually. So what do you think, Dave? Do you think... I guess, there's two kind of ways to see it. There's one... I've seen the argument plenty that it's completely consistent with Heenan's character mm -hmm. and it doesn't give anything away because it's what it's what you would expect Bobby Heenan to say in that moment. Do you are you buying that or do you think that this was a major fuck up? Well, I mean, I think it kind of goes both ways. I mean, if he I don't know. I mean, by, by the time Hogan's coming down, Heenan has to think that's an option like in his mind. He's a smart guy. He realizes that could be an option. So And Tony Tony says you know, of course, everyone was aware that it could be Hulk Hogan. It's not like mm -hmm. it, they were surprised to see it happen, but it's not like no one in the company thought it was a remote possibility. Of course, they thought it might be what would happen. Right. You know, I, I don't think it I don't think it plays off very well, but it's not entirely his fault, because like you said, you know, if you're not giving them cues, they have to play off something. And Bobby Heenan 
always wants to think the worst of faces. Right. You know, and so that's something, you know, it's just uh, if there's something that's like kind of that big of a deal, why not? And, you know, Heenan goes into business for himself. Why not just tell him? Yeah. Or say something like, I don't you know, this thing happens and I don't want to get into it. But when the third man comes out, I don't want you speculating on anything. Or when the third man comes out, take two minutes off. You know, just sure. wait until you see the development. Yeah. Some, you know, something that gives him the idea without saying it explicitly, saying, yeah, when Hulk Hogan's come out, don't speculate that he's a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and I think some fault of that could be, I mean, because Bischoff is the one that should be telling them how to react. Yeah. And I think that he is too wrapped up in making sure Hogan still goes along with the story. So I, there, I, I definitely think there's fault there on Bischoff's side. I, I just think, I think there's fault to go around as far as that because uh, the announcer should be better prepared, and if you don't prepare them, they have to go based on what their instincts are, and his instinct is to second-guess the intentions of every face that there is. I agree, but at the same time, this match felt unique in that he and Tony and Dusty were on the same page for once, mm-hmm. and they were in complete agreement, and it was really different and cool. So all of a sudden that he kind of splits off from them, and I get that he it's because he has a special hatred of Hulk Hogan, and he always has. Yeah. And he's always been speculating that all this Hulk stuff is really just like a facade. So it's tough. Like like I said earlier, it's completely consistent with Heenan's character. Yeah. And I don't think it ruins it. I think if I were watching this live, and it's almost impossible to divorce yourself from context and, and go back to 1996. And I wasn't even watching wrestling in 96. I was kind of in an off period. Mm-hmm. But if I were to watch this, I don't think that that, that Heenan saying that, I don't think that would tip me off. I really don't. But it's not even if it tips you off. It's Hulk Hogan's so good that you probably ha- wouldn't even remotely think that he could be yeah. until Bobby plants the seed, you know? So it's not even like you're like, oh, shit, he's right. You're like, it just it enters the idea and and the execution of the leg drop would be more special if the idea wasn't even touched on by anybody. I think it would it would have helped it some if if he didn't say that, but I think until it happens, it's such a unforeseeable event that even him saying like he could be the third guy, you won't believe it until you see it. I think it would work better without him saying it. Yeah. And I think he is, he takes the majority of the blame for it, but the blame doesn't go entirely with him because they should be for a big event like this they should be given more direction on how to react to it well mean gene has entered the ring he's got a mic and let's hear what hulk hogan has to say oh my god what about nitro tomorrow what happens gene i gene i don't know what you think of this my man but this has to be the absolute worst moment in my broadcasting career and we're all witnessing it. Go Look ahead, at Oakland. He looks like he's going to break up. Go ahead, Gene. Hulk Hogan. Excuse me. Excuse me. What in the world are you thinking? Me, Gene, the first thing you need to do is to tell these people to shut up if you want to hear what I got to say. you for so many years for you to join up with the likes of these two men absolutely makes me sick to my stomach (laughs) 
And I think that these people here and a lot of other people around the world have had just about enough of this man, this man, and you want to put yourself in this group, you've got to be kidding me. Well, the first thing you got to realize, brother, is this right here is the future of wrestling. You can call this the new world order of wrestling, brother. These two men right here came from a great big organization up north, and everybody was wondering who the third man was. Well, who knows more about that organization than me, brother? I've been there, I've done that. You have made the wrong decision, in my opinion. Well, let me tell you something. I made that organization a monster. I made people rich up there. I made the people that ran that organization rich up there, brother. And when it all came to pass, the name Hulk Hogan, the man Hulk Hogan, got bigger than the whole organization, brother. And then billionaire Ted, amigo, he wanted to talk turkey with Hulk Hogan. Well, billionaire Ted promised me movies, brother. Billionaire Ted promised me millions of dollars. And billionaire Ted promised me world-caliber matches. And as far as billionaire Ted goes, Eric Bischoff and the whole WCW goes, I'm bored, brother. That's why these two guys here, the so-called outsiders, these are the men I want as my friends. They're the new blood of professional wrestling, brother. And not only are we gonna take over the whole wrestling business with Hulk Hogan and the new blood, the monsters with me, we will destroy everything in our path, Mean Gene. Look at all of this crap in this ring. This is what's in the future for you if you wanna hang around the likes of this man Hall and this man Nat. As far as I'm concerned, all of this crap in the ring represents these fans out here. For two years, brother, for two years, I held my head high. I did everything for the charities. I did everything for the kids. And the reception I got when I came out here, you fans can stick it, brother. Because if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, you people wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, Eric Bischoff would be still selling meat from a truck in Minneapolis. And if it wasn't for Hulk Hogan, all these Johnny-come-latelys that you see out here, wrestling wouldn't be here. I was selling out the world, brother, while they were bumming gas to put in their car to get to high school. So the way it is now, brother, with Hulk Hogan and the New World Organization of Wrestling, brother, me and the new blood by my side, what you gonna do when the New World Organization runs wild on you? What you gonna do? What are you hey, gonna do? Don't touch me, I'm gonna free the lawyers. Cody, Bobby, Dusty, damn it, let's get back to you. 
Hogan flexes, and Gene asks what Hogan was thinking. Hogan gets some very quality easy heat by demanding that the crowd shut up if they he- want to hear what he has to say. Mm-hmm. Like, if there was any hesitation about him turning heel, the second he does it, he seems so natural. He really, really yes. has figured out what his heel persona is mm-hmm. right away. Yep. It's great. Gene expresses shock and disgust with Hogan, doing his best to maintain composure as the ring is pelted with crap. Hogan says that the first thing you need to do is recognize that this group is the future of professional wrestling. You can call them the new world order of professional wrestling. He alludes to Hall and Nash coming in from a big organization up north, and who knows more about that organization than him, brother. Hogan made people rich up there, and when it all came to pass, he was bigger than the entire organization, and billionaire Ted came and promised him movies, millions of dollars, and world-caliber matches. Hogan now has to hold Gene's arm in place to speak into the mic, as Gene is busy trying to use his other hand to get the crowd to please stop throwing shit at him. (laughs) Right. Well, because he's standing right next to Hogan. He's in the line of fire. Hogan says that he's bored with billionaire Ted, Eric Bischoff, and WCW. Hulk and his new friends will destroy everything in their path. Gene directs Hogan's attention to all the crap in the ring. That's Hogan's future if he hangs out with the likes of Hall and Nash. Hogan has a slightly different interpretation. All the crap in the ring actually represents these fans. Hogan nods to what I imagine is some real resentment he has by saying that for two years in WCW, he's worked with charities and done everything for the kids, but he's not been given a good reception from the fans. Hogan says if it wasn't for him, the fans wouldn't be there. If it wasn't for him, Eric Bischoff would still be selling meat from the back of a truck in Minneapolis. All the wrestlers in the back owe him for their livelihoods. What's you going to do when Hogan and the New World Organization run wild on you? Gene angrily signs off and gets the fuck out of Dodge. And Hogan, he definitely botches the name mm-hmm. of the New World Order there, the New World Organization. But that's that was the promo. What did you think? That's probably arguably one of the most famous promos of all time. For Hulk Hogan, it is a promo of a lifetime. Absolutely. For a... Uh a heel turn that kind of came at the 11th hour. It has 12 years of potential resentment that might have been boiling up in Hulk Hogan, the character yeah. that's coming out uh, on the top. Resentment towards Vince McMahon, resentment towards WCW. I mean, mm. the little line that I think is so interesting about the world caliber matches, I think he's taking a shot at the opponents that he's... I think he's saying, like, mm-hmm. you guys don't have anyone worth me working with, mm-hmm. which kind of fuck you because you worked with vader and rick flair and then and then kind of the shit you've done since then is a lot of his own devising mm-hmm. like starcade 94 uh, against ed leslie you know right. like that's you that's that's putting that together yeah yeah so i, I wanted to just go back and and read probably my favorite part and i, I want to explain why sure. it's my favorite yeah, part yeah. and then billionaire ted amigo he wanted to talk turkey with hulk hogan well, Billionaire Ted promised me movies, brother. Billionaire Ted promised me millions of dollars. And Billionaire promised me world-caliber matches. And as far as Billionaire Ted, Eric Bischoff, and entire WCW goes, I'm bored, brother. And and when I, when I was younger, I thought it was kind of like a lame way of like saying, like, this sucks. But at, the more I thought about it, the more I love this line. I came to WCW, and I got everything that these wrestlers in the back want. I got it handed to me. And even though I get everything I want, I'm bored. And that, Ooh, and I, and I, yeah. and I hold it against 
your company because you can't give me more of what I want. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what made me want to go and turn against everything, which by the way I built. Yeah. And, and also uh, that part of the beginning about like, who knows that organization better than me? Cause I built the organization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's taking, it's taking things that are truthful and, and just adding so much arrogance and also resentment towards the, the fans that like, I gave you wrestling basically is what he's saying. Yeah. And the fact that you don't worship at my feet at all times, that angers me. And now yeah. I'm ta- I'm going to come back and I'm going to take wrestling away from you with Hall and Nash. It is such a fucking brilliant promo. It is. It's so good. I've watched it so many times in preparing for this yeah. and it's just so great. Hogan typically he gets really worked up and and he he'll like either flub lines or he'll he'll say phrases wrong, things like that. But there is like a laser focus on this. It, yeah, other than calling it the New World Organization, which isn't great, but he did say New World Order earlier, yeah. so at least he hit it once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hall was saying that the NWO wouldn't have worked without Hulk Hogan, and I think this heel turn would have been fine, but like it, it was that much better by how well he he pulls off this promo. And knowing nowadays that it was kind of like a last-moment thing, but he made it seem like years in the making. Right from the very beginning, I was a I was a good guy, and I made wrestling as being a good guy. And from the very beginning, I resented it. It it is just it's amazing. It's so amazing. I would say nine times out of ten, when you're talking about like you should watch this match on pay per view, this match on pay per view, mm-hmm. there's not always promos to watch. Oh on sure, yeah. I mean, this one's up there. The Austin three sixteen yep. promo is up there, but there aren't a lot of them. We have seen the end of Hulkamania for Bobby the Brain Heenan, for for Dusty Rhodes, Gene Okerlund, I don't know. I'm Tony Schiavone. Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. We're out of here. Straight to hell. Hogan, Nash, and Hall resume posing as Tony says, we have seen the end of Hulkamania for Bobby the Brain Heenan, for Dusty Rhodes, Gene Okerlund, I don't know. I'm Tony Schiavone. Hulk Hogan, you can go to hell. We're out of here. Straight to hell. (laughs) It has got to be Tony Schiavone's best call of all time. Yeah. It's incredible. It's off the cuff. Mm -hmm. It's so good. He says he didn't really think much about it. He just kind of said it. And right as he got in the back, Brian Knobs was like, that was fucking awesome. Yeah. And he was like, oh. And he kind (laughs) of like thought like, yeah, that was a cool thing I said out there. Yeah. I mean, the way I feel like he wanted to use like even stronger language, uh-huh. but that was like the best I can get away with is go to hell. I like I the thing I like about it is that I don't know, like he's struck dumb. He's speechless. Right. He's a man paid to talk for a living and he's just there's no words for what he's seen other than go to hell. Yeah. You know, he, he's there to describe the, the action to the viewer and. It's to the point where it's like, I can't even tell you what to, to think about this. I'm just distraught. We get a couple replays of the shocking moments, and then the credits roll, and the pay-per-view is finished. Quote Tony Schiavone, I remember going backstage, and we were all high-fiving and hugging and thinking we had done something really, really big. Eric Bischoff, a split second after Hogan made it clear he was the third man, I saw a fan throw a cup of Coke or Pepsi in the ring in disgust and anger. I knew it had not only worked, but it had gone over big, really big. 
As Hogan filled the air with trash talk about Ted Turner and the WCW and what it stood for, people went nuts. They filled the ring with garbage. All the effort that had gone into keeping this quiet was worth it. The reality, the surprise, the action were all 100% right in the money. Viewers loved the war we'd created, and they were going to love it even more as the story continued. Hogan's leg drop and promo marks the formation of the New World Order, or NWO. Hogan had a small botch, as we mentioned, in the name of the promo, getting it right the first time, but calling it the New Organ- World Organization on the close. Mm-hmm. This invading group is three men who have all spent time in both WCW and WWF, but clearly had their greatest success, quote, up north. Yep. Uh, I don't know why I said quote. I'm not. I just put quotes <laughs> in my notes because to indicate that it's a phrase, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, the bones for this idea came from a trip that Eric Bischoff made to Japan in April of this year. At the time, he already knew that he would be getting Hall and Nash, but he hadn't yet figured out how to incorporate them into WCW. Bischoff was in Japan for New Japan Pro Wrestling's Battle Formation Show, which was held at the Tokyo Dome April 29, 1996. The main event of this show was the culmination of an angle where New Japan Pro Wrestling had been invaded by the stars of Union of Wrestling Forces International, or UWFI. The staple of UWFI was shoot-style pro wrestling that presented itself as real. Uh, one of the stars was Minoru Suzuki, who is still wrecking shit up in New Japan to this day. Boy, is he ever. <laughs> <laughs> and he still does like that shoot style, you know? Yeah. Though UWFI was a legitimate separate organization, New Japan was in full control of the booking of the angle and had their stars routinely trounce the UWFI stars, with the exception of UWFI's ace, Nobuhiku Takada, who captured the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, New Japan's top title, from Kenji Mudo at the annual January 4th Tokyo Dome show, which is basically New Japan's WrestleMania. Yes. So at, at the equivalent of their WrestleMania, an invading star won their biggest title. Mm-hmm. So at this April 29th show that Bischoff was at, New Japan pro wrestling star Shin, Shinya Hashimoto won the title back from Takata, thus proving the superiority of New Japan's wrestling. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the crowd goes wild. Um, I, I watched the match uh, on New Japan, cause, yeah. uh, New Japan World, because I was thinking about pulling an audio clip. But on a lot of the older matches, <laughs> because they present it so much as a sport, the only thing in New Japan World is the match. And then as soon as he wins, they, like, cut it off. You don't get to see, like, the crowd pop or the celebration. It's like, oh, oh that's the part I want the audio clip of. Yeah. Um, but so I assume the crowd went nuts, I guess yeah. I should well, say. Okay. So now, now that you have that mentioned, so... I brought with me the uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated 1997 Wrestling Almanac and Book of Facts. Yes. Um, in which that includes, they list the uh, the 10 biggest events of 1996. Okay. Um, so I'm going to read these in order just so you can kind of see how, wh- which one of these two impacted wrestling the most. So uh, their number one biggest uh, new story was a formation of the New World Order. Absolutely. Number two was Hulk Hogan telling the fans to stick it. Nice. Which is essentially the same as the formation of NWO. I, it's so good, though. I like that it got its own thing. Um, number three, Nitro is a rating success. Sure. A couple others. And then number six is Shinya Hashimoto defeats Nobuiko Takada to climax the feud. So the, the angle that they stole from, <laughs> they have like by far the biggest like story uh, of 1996. So I thought that was really amusing because like I just read about this climax and now that you're mentioning it, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. So they, they took that idea and they ramped it up because it's like the American version pretty much. It's funny. And, um, 
you know, we we try to stay a little spoiler free here um, Mm -hmm. in terms of things that happened 21 years ago. Yeah. But it is interesting, given some of the criticisms that we will see forward on the New World Order, that the inspiration for the angle was an invasion in New Japan that lasted for only four months and ended with the New Japan star winning decisively yes and vanquishing the invaders yes forever <laughs> right <laughs> so bischoff learned some things right <laughs> there were other lessons he chose to ignore <laughs> right <laughs> bischoff liked the idea of wcw being invaded from the outside with hall and nash on the way he knew that the best antagonist would be the wwf when he was legally prevented from continuing that implication, the NWO became just a more nebulous invading force of, of outsiders. Yeah. There's still the implication that they're they're from the WWF, but they've stated definitively that they aren't working for Vince McMahon. And the Hogan promo buries the WWF to a degree, too. Yeah. So it makes it seem like, no, they're just their own thing that is trying to take over this existing company. Yeah. Now, as for the New World Order name, uh, it's kind of an interesting developing story. Bischoff claims to have come up with that name the day of the event in a burst of spontaneous creativity. Quote, I said, Hulk, when you grab that mic, I want you to say, this is the beginning of the New World Order. The word just kind of sprang into my mouth. New World Order. Hogan claims that the term was biblical. It may be. Maybe it was out there in political commentary. The first President Bush had spoken about a new world order a few years before. The general idea has been out there in different ways, but as far as we were concerned, it was spontaneous and unplanned. As soon as I said those words, I realized they were going to work. They summed up everything we had been doing, not just with the angle, but with Nitro. It was a new world order for wrestling, and the fans loved it. By the way, that term is not at all biblical, mm. but as Bischoff said, it is part of like the zeitgeist. It is a political term that goes back to President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson had pressed for a new world order following World War One, when he had tried and failed to get Congress to place the United States in the League of Nations, a sort of early prototype version of the United Nations. At the time, the new world order was an optimistic concept of a technocratic world government enacting a planned economy. In the following decades, though, right-wing thinkers began using the term in a conspiratorial context, Basically, to them, the New World Order of secular liberals was going to rob America of everything that made it great. The term once again found its way into the mainstream five and a half years before this pay-per-view, when then-President George Bush, uh, the first one, used the term twice in his State of the Union address to Congress, including the speech's second paragraph. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea a new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Bush was more or less using the term in a positive context, similar to Wilson's. Mm -hmm. Now, in our last episode covering the July 1st, 1996 Nitro, we mentioned that we heard Larry use the term new world order multiple times and larry is known for being very very interested in conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. so it makes sense that he would be very familiar with that phrase yeah and maybe introduce it into the lexicon of world championship wrestling yep and kevin nash in an interview with wade keller said that it was wcw director craig leathers who came up with the name and the iconic nwo logo 
So who really did come up with the name uh, and when is very much an open question. And I've decided to become a little bit of a dork Twitter journalist. Mm-hmm. And I, for a few weeks, I was tweeting that question to Eric Bischoff and the co-host, uh, I think his name is Matt Hausman, something like that, uh, of, of the Eric Bischoff podcast. Yeah. They have like a hashtag and you use, you know, and then they'll ask the questions on the podcast. And mm-hmm. it took a couple of weeks, but they actually finally asked Bishop about it. He sort of summarized my question and didn't mention the correct leathers part with annoying me because I want specific responses, but whatever. Yeah. And Bischoff basically said, and this literally happened yesterday. Yeah, I, I yesterday. Think yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as of the date we're recording this. By the time we release it, it'll be a few more days down the road. So, and, and yesterday, interestingly enough, was July 7th, the 21st anniversary of the show airing. So yesterday, what happened was I, I listened to the podcast, Eric Bischoff's podcast, that had been released, I think, a day before, so mm-hmm. July 6th. And on it, they asked the question, and Bischoff says, uh, I'm capable of making mistakes. Yeah. And if someone would show me the footage of Larry using that phrase prior to the July 7th pay-per-view, I'd be very interested to see it. Mm-hmm. So I brought up the network and I just filmed it with my phone because if you if you play it in windowed mode without making it full screen, it has the date right on there. Yeah. July 1st. Mm-hmm. And I filmed it and I tweeted it to him and Bischoff replied right away and said, yeah, this is incontrovertible proof that he used the term before I thought I created it. Yeah. And he said that an update is to come. So I'm hoping that before this episode is edited and released that Bischoff has said some more about it and I can probably just like put in a drop right here of uh what like an update that i'll record all right i mean we could or we could put on the the next nitro because i mean nwo is gonna be mentioned a lot anyway so it's kind of fascinating like and it's fun that our little podcast is actually like changing perhaps the narrative offered by eric bischoff on where that name came from it's it's fascinating to me yeah uh, that we were able to affect that sort of change I yeah guess. Uh, like i and i said yesterday you you've you've become a podcast journalist <laughs> yes yes <laughs> and uh and i don't want to try to get myself over anything um i'm not the only person that's noticed this in in doing a lot of reading and listening to other podcasts about this event mm-hmm. uh there's other people who have noted that too i'm just kind of the first person it seems like who's gotten the question to bischoff that's yeah all. Um, so I, I don't want to try to make it seem like I'm the first guy to notice. This, yeah. Yeah. Because not. I mean, there's just a lot of like substantial evidence, especially with the WWE network being out for a few years that like this nitro has this guy saying it. Eric Bischoff's WWE sponsored book says something otherwise. So obviously more than a few people have probably noticed that, but you're just, you know, your stubbornness of like asking the question over and over again, eventually like, Oh yeah, that's a, that is a good question. Or like, this is the week in which they see it before right, they record, right. sort of deal. So, uh, I, I and I do I do like uh, I appreciate the fact that like Bischoff is willing to say like if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Yeah. Although I don't know why they didn't make sure he was right before they put it in his biography. But oh, dude, that that autobiography. I think I've mentioned this a few times. It'll it'll have the same wrestler's name spelled two different ways on the same page. Oh, I don't okay. think it was proofread at all, let alone okay. fact checked. So it's is it like on the line of like The Rock says? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I think all <laughs> WWE books are basically on that level. Which I was just thinking about the other day is like that's a terrible book. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's so bad. All right, Dave. That's our our whole show. What did you think of Bash at the Beach '96 as as an overall event? Um, it is, you know, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's very, it's famous for the event that happens at the end of Hogan joining the NWO. 
which now it's going to be a little bit of relief to actually be able to mention that because I feel like I've been hesitant of like not saying that too many times before the event. Yeah. And like I said, I was like, it'll be interesting to see if there's like any other interesting low nuggets of, of matches. And there are a couple, but there are also some matches that I thought were better than they actually were. Like I thought Flair Conan was a good match back in the day. And I realized now it's not. I think that um, at the time, the turn was played and replayed and, and done over and over and over that I think time had to pass before I could appreciate just how well executed it was. Yeah. Uh, you know, cause at first, at first it was like, well, Hogan turning heel is something that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And that it seems like it should be easy money to turn him heel, but it's not easy to pull it off. And they pulled it off. I, there's like that promo could not be any better in my opinion. Since we started this podcast, that's the best promo we've heard. Yes, and and it's it's the greatest moment that, that's happened in WCW since we started the podcast. So yes, that being said, the majority of this pay per view sucks. It's interesting because if you take any of these pieces out individually mm-hmm. and you look at them, they suck. Yes, I mean with exception, the Ray versus Psychosis match is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Dean Disco Inferno match is is not a it's not an excellent match, but it's a good pay-per-view match that told a good story. Yes. It belongs on a pay-per-view mm-hmm. 100%. Yep. And even some of the stuff that sucks, Tenta versus Bubba, if you shave that down to tight five minutes, <laughs> it's... Shave it down. <laughs> 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 Your fake haughty laugh. Uh, but if you shave that down, uh, that's wouldn't be that bad. I think I think that match, if that's the act, I I don't remember if that's the actual end of the feud. Yeah, it's a good end to the feud. Sure, that ending is great. But even even the elements that don't work, the Gomez and Mongos, the Flair and Conans, the Nasty Boys dog collar match. If you take them out, yes, they suck. But if you're watching them as part of this event, where all throughout these matches, and a lot of them you don't care about, and that are sucking, but all through them, these announcers are getting you so hyped. Who's that third guy going to be? Yeah. What is going to happen to WCW? Mm-hmm. What could possibly take place in this main event? And for once, for once in wrestling, all the hype and all the build, yeah. it culminates in something that is as good as it could have been. Yes. Like, there's no disappointment with mm-hmm. what happens. Yeah. Other than the disappointment at seeing your hero don a black hat, you know? Right. Other than, like, and that's that's what they're going for. That's, that's the feeling they want to elicit. But... Mm-hmm. It lives up to the hype for once. It delivers on exactly what it promises. Mm-hmm. So I have a hard time looking at this event, even though there's a lot of sloppy shit in it, yeah. and saying anything other than it's great. It's so good. Yeah. And even if you were to watch it, I wouldn't say just skip to the good matches. I'd say watch the whole thing because even when you know what's going to happen, I tweeted about this a little bit. Even after I watched the show three or four times for this Mm-hmm. The last time I watched it, I was still getting excited yeah. when Hogan came out. I was still getting goosebumps thinking about like just everything that built to that moment. It's incredible. It's mm-hmm. so, it's so much fun to watch. No, I agree. And 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 I remember I know that like leading up to this, I was saying, "Man, this this show is a slog. It's so difficult." Yeah. It it was not as difficult as I remembered it cuz I thought it was I thought most of it felt like Tenta versus Bubba, which is just like that match is just too way too long, but no, it is. And and um, another thing, I just I liked I pointed out with uh, Great American Bash, and I'm going to point it out again here. Uh, maybe I didn't say it exactly in these words, but um, 
it's different from WWF because WCW gives you like the full spectrum of kinds of matches. Yes. We got Lucha Libre. We got we had brawling, regular tag matches, technical matches, big big guys fighting, like uh, you, like you, garbage wrestling. Garbage. And I don't not trying to be insulting, but just that term of you know yes. weapons and yeah, they they give you the whole variety of like matches that are were available at the time. Essentially, yes, absolutely. And, and WWF just simply is not doing that. They're giving you WWF matches and at the time. If you're looking for something a little bit more interesting than WWF, WCW is in their pay per views at least. Uh, the Nitros can be a little bit iffy, and they, they they drop like a lot. They don't have nearly as many Lucha Libre matches as it should. Sure. But they are, they are giving you uh, uh, a product that seems similar to WWF, but has a great variety in which, like, after three hours, you've seen a little bit of everything. And, and I think in, to that aspect, that's why their pay-per-views th- from now going forward are going to be generally really entertaining. All right, well, Dave, it probably seems like a fate accomplished at this point, but what was your match of the night? Well, I'm going to go. Uh, I know we've talked about match and and or segment, yeah. and so I'm going to go one of each. Okay. Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Psychosis should be given credit for, like, you know, those two guys were put in a really, uh, like, high, highly intense position of, like, start this pay-per-view off right. Sure. And they did, and you could tell that they, they went – all out trying to give the best match possible and it worked really really well right so that to me was the match of the night and the segment of the night is the hulk hogan promo it goes down as uh, in the history of wcw probably the greatest promo i mean i can't think of any other promo yeah that stands even close to the hogan promo especially going back and realizing how great it was right and it wasn't just like the history around it hyping it up it is an amazing promo and that's coming from a person that fucking hates Hulk Hogan. Yeah, so. sure. I am also going to basically double dip. I, I was going to say it was the main event, but really what I'm going for is... I'm, you know what? I'm not going to double dip. I'm going to say the main event because mm-hmm. the Hogan promo was great, but the match itself and the way that it set up all these possibilities during the match, all these little storylines mm-hmm. as to who that third man could be or what we were about to see was just great. So whereas the action was not nearly uh, on the level of the... Ray psychosis match I just thought like in terms of getting the crowd wrapped up in a frenzy and then delivering them this emotional gut punch uh, I'm going with my match of the night as the main event my MVP I'm going to give mine to Eric Bischoff for just having the balls to turn Hogan heel and the ability to get him to do it right I think I just you know this this starts a hot angle that turns this company into the biggest wrestling company in the world yep uh for a short period of time at least uh you know and he deserves a lot of the credit um certainly you know there's plenty to go around to a lot of other people Mm -hmm. um but for managing to pull this off this angle to the degree of success that he did uh my choice is easy e all right and well it's not gonna be uh an interesting choice but i have to go with hulk hogan for one thing knowing how you know, insecure he can be about decisions that aren't like doesn't have the full confidence in the fact that he went with going heel, and not only that, but like I said, like eight thousand times already, the fact that he gave a promote that suggested like this was building ever since Hulkamania started. It's su- it was such a great way of making this like the eleventh hour decision to seem like this long planted idea, mm-hmm. and like what Tony Schiavone saying like you know this maybe this started in ninety four. It's not entirely you, – you could kind of buy someone 
you could sell that to someone. Right. The NWO, I f- like Scott Hall said, it worked because of Hogan. And I think it worked because of Hogan because he gave the promo of a lifetime. He's got to be my MVP. All right. Well, we head into tomorrow's Nitro wondering if Tenta and Bubba are truly finished. If the United States champion Ric Flair will have any words for uh, Chris Benoit and Arn Anderson who failed to secure him a heavyweight title shot. Mm. Who will come for the Giants title now anyway? And of course, most of all, how will WCW be shaped by this new world order and their leader, Heel Hulk Hogan? Look upon his works, ye mighty, and despair. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> just, uh, I was going to say, or if we're going to just get two hours of test screen now. <laughs> that would be a disappointment. <laughs> what, if, what if they did like even 10 seconds at the beginning? Well, there's only one way to find out, and of course, that's to keep your podcast app tuned right here <laughs> for, I don't know, weeks probably. <laughs> Until we rejoin you right here where the big boys play 20 years of Nitro. Had double trouble bashing the beach bubble right there, brother. You can see it both. What did he say? Double, double trouble, trouble bashing the beach bubble. There you go. Yeah.